Welcome to Trove Talk, your weekly gaming and getting to know you podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Starkey from trevortrove.com. And joining me this week, I have Jake James Lugo. How you doing, Jake James? JJ? I'm good. I'm good, Trev. How's it going, guys? How's it going, everybody? This should be fun. Again, since I watch your stuff all the time, why not? This is surreal. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, so we, we finally met uh, at PAX East last year. Yep. Um, after after a lot of back and forth on on the internets and and whatnot, uh, both uh, uh, members of the kind of funny community, um, we've both done some some freelance work for uh, for IGN at this point. You do probably far more than I do uh, actively because you're out there doing wikis and reviews and stuff, and I've just written a handful of news stories. But uh, for anybody uh, who is not familiar with your work, uh, go ahead and kind of give a quick rundown of where uh, where people can find you online. So besides the IGN stuff that I got more recently within the last two years, I've actually just hit my two-year anniversary freelancing for IGN. So that was pretty freaking awesome. So besides that, though, I've been doing games industry stuff or games media stuff for almost about six years now. I'm getting ready to go on between six and seven years. Uh, I started off originally not only in like more of the earlier days on YouTube, just again, starting my channel, just uploading random videos, you know, vlogs and such, talking about gaming stuff. But my first real games media thing was when I joined up with a site called Real Taco Gamer at the time. It was like more than a good number of years ago. And from there, I moved, I did a bunch of stuff there, went to a lot of local conventions down here in South Florida. I used to go to a lot of comic conventions, anime conventions, gaming related events, because there's not a lot of gaming conventions down here in Florida, especially down in the Southeast of the United States. Uh, but from there, I also went to another website called shiftedtoyou.com, which is no longer around. The, the website went under at some point. And I did some freelance work for them there, not only as a community manager, but also as a writer at some point. And then eventually, over time, I want to say maybe about a year or so, give or take, I ended up becoming the editor-in-chief there for a short period of time. And then from there, once that website went down, I did some freelance work for a place called Out Loud Media, which is down here in South Florida exclusively, where they cover a lot of events and such that's in like, you know, that I want to say kind of like early 20s to mid 20s pop culture type of stuff, where I used to go to a lot of different events down here and I used to write about it and get pictures and do photography and stuff. Uh, then after that, obviously, I came to the coalition.com, which I've been here for about four years, I want to say, give or take. Again, I, the exact dates uh, is a little bit fuzzy, <laughs> but um, but I've been there for a while now. And at this point now, I'm a senior editor at the coalition and I've been doing a lot of different games media stuff. I've gone now to about three E3s. I've gone to a couple PAXs. I went to my first PSX recently, which was awesome. And a bunch of other events, uh, Comic-Con, New York Comic-Con, a whole bunch of stuff since then. Excellent. Uh, great. Yeah. I, uh, I occasionally, uh, uh, you'll post your stuff and I'll, I'll hop in, check it out. And, uh, I, I definitely like a lot of the work I've seen you doing over there at the coalition as well as, um, the, uh, I, I, at this point I'm like, I, I stressed or I, I, I've, I'm very stretched thin in terms of like watching everybody doing all their, their videos mm-hmm. and stuff. But the, uh, the handful of, uh, of gamers, gamer with gains videos that I catch, um, uh, I've enjoyed as well. Uh, I think, Thank you. Uh, like your your top tens last year and stuff. I think I um, I think we had um, a couple of the fa- same same kind of games um, in there. So uh, so yeah, good good work out there. And yeah, I see I see you just kind of going crazy with like the For Honor beta wikis yeah, right now that you've been working <laughs> on. Um, so yeah, great great work. Um, uh, it's it's interesting because I you know obviously I've I've only been kind of pursuing it um, for a couple years. So it's it's awesome to kind of um, uh, hear and chat with people, um, that have been kind of doing it a little bit longer and I can kind of, um, 
like I love hearing your stories and stuff. And so we'll get a little bit more into that um, kind of as we as we talk through this segment. But nice. um, for those that that aren't familiar with the show, uh, haven't haven't tuned in before, uh, Trove Talk is a uh, a four part show. Uh, we go through. Uh, one-on-one interview, long-form show. I bring on a guest every week. We talk about their gaming history. It's part one. We talk about their favorite game or a favorite game of theirs. It's part two. And we talk about a getting-to-know-you topic, uh, a non-gaming topic, since most of the people I know here are uh, are from the gaming industry. So it gives me a chance to kind of get to know another side of them. And then we round out the show with uh, Trove Topics, which are community questions uh, kind of called from Twitter. So without further ado... Uh, JJ, tell me, uh, where did it all begin for you? Where did game, your gaming history begin? So my gaming history, funny enough and almost cliche enough to like a fault, it began with the Sega Genesis. That that literally was my first video game console when I was really, really young. And the only reason why I came into contact with that is because my older brother had gone the model Genesis, the Genesis, the, the model one Genesis that came bundled in with Altered Beast at the time, way back when, before Sonic the Hedgehog became the more of the packaged uh, game with that actual console. And uh, I interacted with that again in my household and stuff because he used to get a lot of video games over time because he was much older. He's about 10 years older than me uh, at that point. And he used to play a lot. So my first video game, believe it or not, was an Ultra Beast. It, again, I got really into it sometime later on in my lifetime, you know, as a younger child. And my first video game itself was Sonic the Hedgehog. That, that was literally the very first game that I played that I just became fascinated with games from that point onward. And it's like, even then it got to the point where my own parents would like have to limit me, limit me to like the weekends to play my video games. Cause again, I would just be playing so much. I just get immersed in it. Like anybody would, when you become something, you know, passionate about something, you know, when you first discover for the first time, it, it, it's an indescribable feeling. And even then for a young age, I still vividly remember just sitting there, just playing that game for hours. And my mom was like, okay, what the hell are you doing? Like, come on, like you gotta go, you gotta go eat dinner you got to go do this other stuff you got to get ready for school tomorrow like that everybody goes through that especially you i'm pretty sure at yep. some point and everybody else you know whenever they first got into gaming but from there it branched off into other games i played a lot of sega genesis growing up and i never got a super nintendo it was like during that time when the console wars were like really a thing and mm-hmm. one of the things that you would do especially as a young kid where again you're not making money back then so you go to your friends houses and you would play the other consoles and that's how you get exposed to some of the other video games like that's how i played super mario world that's how i got uh, into super mario all-stars donkey kong country uh the legend of zelda there are a variety of different classics from back in the day like and one of them was street fighter 2 street fighter 2 I first played it not only just on the Genesis, but also on the Super Nintendo. But I also, a couple times, not a lot, but a couple of various times, we would go to the arcades like with my older brother and one of his friends, and we would play Street Fighter 2 in the arcades, on the arcade cabinet. And that was a cool time because you're surrounded by other people. You're having pizza or lunch or whatever have you, burgers and fries and stuff. And it was that atmosphere that really kind of, you know, I gravitated towards. But... From there, at that point, you know, through the years, eventually I got other systems. I got a Nintendo 64, which was my second system. I never got a Super Nintendo in my household. So my first time that I really wanted to get a new console was the latest Nintendo console at the time was the N64. And that's when I played games like Star Wars, Shadows of the Empire, uh, Torok, Dinosaur Hunter. I remember opening those up on Christmas Day. When I got it, and I got it with the controller that was the gold controller that was the pack in for the Nintendo oh. 64. And alongside of that, as like a stocking stuffer, uh, my parents gave me this uh, code book or this cheap book, which is like a little small, it was about that big and stuff that had random codes for Torok Dinosaur Hunter for like other games that I didn't have, like War Gods or like Hexen 64. It was like really random stuff and things like that. But 
I got exposed to other games from there. And what really stuck with me at the time was the wrestling games. Because I was, for years, I could tell you I'm a big WWF fan. I'm a big wrestling fan. For like, you know, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96. And then obviously when you move into the Attitude Era. But those were like my years of wrestling. And that's when I vividly remember going to Madison Square Garden for the house shows with my family and watching the shows unfold. Again, it wasn't televised like Monday Night Raw or something. But I would see like my favorite wrestlers, The Undertaker, Yokozuna, uh, Razor Ramon, guys like this. And just, you know, being in that atmosphere. But so... As I got older and I was playing on N64, I would buy those wrestling games. I would get WCW, NWO Revenge, World Tour, uh, WWF WrestleMania 2000, No Mercy, you know. Uh, same thing, WWF Attitude, even though that one sucked compared to the other games. <laughs> so it was like a, a lot of those games really resonated with me. And then, you know, the classics and everything else. But from there, I ended up getting a PlayStation 2. When I really started to get into the PlayStation brand was with PS2. Even though my friends had a PS1, we would play Tekken, uh, Tekken 2, Tekken 3. Uh, we would play a variety of other games. Metal Gear was a big one. I was fascinated by Metal Gear, and I never really sat down back then to really play it. But I was always, like, you know, intrigued by it. You ever, you ever have one of those games where... You, you don't have the opportunity to really kind of explore it to the fullest because of like time constraints and stuff, but just like there's something about it that you gravitate towards like that. Yeah. That, yeah. That's how I was with Metal Gear back in the day when it was still, again, on PS1 at the time. Same thing with Final Fantasy VII. My love for, for uh, RPG starts with that and also Final Fantasy VIII. But those were games at the time when I first experienced them. I never really sat down and played them through. It was like you see it at a friend's place and it's like, okay, I got to know what the hell that is at mm-hmm. one point so that's how i got exposed to the playstation brand so when i got a ps2 i got it with crash bandicoot the wrath the cortex i got it with a uh, test drive off road and then i ended up getting to the smackdown games for wwf and then obviously it branched off from there to like onimusha devil may cry uh capcom versus snk2 which is a big one in my life because that was when my love for fighting games really took off again around that time between that and then going back to playing uh, street fighter 3 third strike at one point and then obviously now we get more to this day and age, which is where now gaming is like a huge, like, you know, intricate part of my life at this point. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I want to jump back real quick to uh, uh, you were talking about kind of the uh, the arcade uh, feeling and, and like the the uh, camaraderie and, and going there and hanging out with friends and eating and stuff. And uh, and just the way you were phrasing that um, made me rec- like recognize how much i miss of that kind of experience and i don't i don't think uh necessarily it's it's just not a commonplace experience i think that that kids get these days is um is really that like going to the arcade with friends and like like i have i have pictures of me and like when i was like eight or nine or something and all of us are hanging around the teenage mutant ninja turtles cabinet and like each of us (laughs) are like i'm playing donnie because i didn't care i was fine being the smart guy or whatever that's whatever um and uh, and just like pouring what felt like hours and hours into that, but it was probably like half an hour or something, and then we moved <laughs> on to, to something else. Um, and and like I remember, like all through high school, like we would do that, and and like I had friends that went and started working at the arcade in high school, and then um, you know, by like the end of high school, that place was starting to close down, and and we were getting you know online gaming that was kind of like overrunning it so we so arcades outside of like dave and busters or GameWorks or something just stopped being a thing maybe you'd find like one or two cabinets in a in a local pizza joint or something like that but it was like the the dedicated days of going to the arcades um i i like i just remember kind of watching that fade away and not realizing at the time 
like the the nostalgia I would end up feeling for that kind of experience um, that like that I you know I'm talking about here now. But um, but yeah, it's it, it it's definitely just a sign of how games have changed. I think um, in in our lifetimes. How how old are you? Uh, right now I'm 28. I'm gonna be 29 in June. Yeah. Okay. So and so you were you were coming on you were coming up with uh, like with Sonic what probably around like four or five three four something about, like that. about five about five years old i want to say because yeah. i know that again it the genesis had been around for a while at that point again you we, i don't even think that we even got like games like smooth uh what is it moonwalker at the time oh yeah or, or, like, or like streets of rage or, or or i could be wrong in like the dates and stuff but i know like vividly it was sonic for me like, yeah no and that's that's i mean like uh all of it like i was you know, I'm I am as old as a Nintendo because that came out in '85, and I and I was born in '85. But I wasn't playing Nintendo in '85. I was playing it, exactly. you know, four or five years later. It was like back in those early days. We were playing on systems that were four or five years old, but they were new to us, and they were new to still most people, um, even that like that late into a run. Like it, it's weird to think that like if I had if I were born around the the like the start of the PS4 era and the and P and the Xbox One, like I probably would not be playing those systems yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, just just of how my like my household grew up, but but now we see like just the the rapid fire kind of um, acceleration of of gaming um, in in the more recent generations and years. Um, so we've kind of uh, uh, gone through a lot of kind of the console highlights. Did you ever get into to handheld mobile? Were you like Game Boy? Oh, of course. Yeah. Like... Yeah. Here's the crazy thing, and it's a funny story, too, because I got into the Game Boy late, obviously. Uh, I got into more... Once the Game Boy Color was already out was when I got into the Game Boy. And the reason being is because my parents refused to buy it for me. Uh, it was more because we had a, a Sega Genesis. And at the time, especially back then, the Game Boy was kind of expensive. Like, you were paying for value back then, even though by today's standards, it's archaic as hell. Uh, mm. At the time, the idea of being able to play games with you, you know, on the go was a very novel type of thing. Because not only did you have the game, the, the Game Boy itself that you had to buy in the games on top of that, but you also had to buy batteries. We didn't have chargers back then. You had to run double yeah. A batteries. You had to run on four of those things, you know, yeah. and it was pretty nuts. Absolutely. It was like, why... Why why get you a Game Boy when we can get you one of those little like um uh tiger handheld games. tiger, yeah, tiger games. games yeah that oh that'll God. just like that'll that you know it's it's the silhouettes or whatever that you move over and you and that character lights up or whatever um mm -hmm. and you you know you get those for five bucks why are you gonna spend um you know one hundred and fifty on on a Game Boy and a couple of games and then yeah like the the, the battery drain um, that oh goes along God. with it it was ridiculous like and now when i did get the game boy though like the obviously the big games that i got into was pokemon that was a huge deal i remember even going to school you know getting up like what five six o'clock in the morning and pokemon would be on and that'd be like what you watch before you go to school and that was a thing it was such a big thing that some people seem to have forgotten how big of a thing it was back then it was oh, yeah. absolutely insane like between the merchandising and everything else, but really it was the Game Boy game that everybody wanted. It was Pokemon Red, Pokemon Blue, and then when Pokemon Yellow came out, that just threw more fuel into the fire of the mix and stuff. But between that and games like Wario Land, I was always fascinated by the Mario Land games because Super Mario Land 1 and 2, I feel like, were games on the Game Boy that I always wanted, but I never got for many, many years until much later in my life and stuff because I always saw other friends playing it and such. Then there was like other random games I remember on Game Boy that I've always wanted too, but also again I never got them until much later in life when it was pretty much obsolete at that point. Like uh, games like I believe it was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. Uh, what is it? Uh, 
I, I forgot. I don't, I don't remember. If it was like you know the foot fall of the Foot Clan. I think it was. Oh yeah, yeah. When you could play as like the different four turtles, and again, it wasn't that great of a game in in by most standards, but it was still a TMNT game that was yeah. just like it played pretty good on the Game Boy at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what so which uh, which Pokemon did you play, red or blue? I had Pokemon Blue and my brother had Red. And then later, once Yellow came out, I picked up Yellow. So I had both Blue and Yellow at the time. So I started, obviously, because it's Pokemon Blue, I started with Squirtle. That's why I love Squirtle. It's my favorite Pokemon. Or Blastoise. I always say Blastoise because Blastoise is like the mobile suit Gundam Pokemon because he's got two cannons on his back. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. You got cannons, you win by default. But We're, we're jumping ahead because one of the questions in the uh, in the Trove Topics is what is your favorite Pokemon? So we'll we'll hit we'll we'll circle back to that later. But yeah, that's a that's certainly yeah. a, a solid choice. But it was Pokemon um, Blue for me. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, so touching on or kind of bouncing off of that, um, uh, brother, how uh, older, younger brother? I have two. I have an older brother and I have a younger brother. I have my younger brother who's four years younger than me right now, okay. and he he actually and now is doing his own thing. He finished college. He actually works for iHeart right now. Uh, my older brother is about ten years older than me right okay. now, and he does his own stuff or whatnot. Okay, and what, so was uh, growing up with them uh, was that kind of a factor in your gaming life? Um, did like did you guys play together with a with a brother who's ten years older? It seems like um, he had the Game Boy, so or the 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 Genesis, so that kind of is what got you into it. But I don't know how much you guys would have been playing together necessarily if he's in you know high school at that point and then soon going off to college. Definitely, we did play a lot. And at some point, obviously, he moved on with his life because he ended up going through high school and going to college at some point. And I was still fairly young when that was happening. Uh, a couple of the games that we did play a lot together because we did a lot of couch co-op or a lot of couch multiplayer because it was the Sega Genesis at the time. And I even did that also when I eventually got the N64. But specifically on Genesis, the games that I would play together either with my older brother or my younger brother at the time, uh, WWF Royal Rumble, WWF Raw, uh, WrestleMania the arcade game, a lot of the wrestling games at the time uh sonic the hedgehog 3 which is my favorite sonic the hedgehog game period I, I like it better than sonic 2 i know a lot of people love sonic 2 for for a number of different reasons but sonic 3 was always that game for me and i used to play multiplayer with my younger brother on that and then obviously the fighting games mortal kombat 2 being at least for genesis at the time for me was the better fighting game of that entire console that was the one i had the most vivid memories of that again just resonated with me because i was always playing against my uh younger brother or friends whenever they came over yeah, no, excellent. Because yeah, my so my my experience growing up with a a younger sister, like we played Pokemon, and that was mostly like we would play Civilization or we would get into stuff like that. Um, uh, I, uh, Danny O'Dwyer just posted some uh, some like tweets uh, in the last day or so about um, Theme Hospital, and it got me thinking about that game and how <laughs> my sister and I would like take turns playing a game like that. Um, uh, but for the most part, like competitive stuff we didn't really get into so mm. like we uh so i i wasn't playing fighting games with them um if anything it would be like my high school friends or like my my group of friends from like elementary school up through high school we would like go uh, as i've said kind of on the show before we would go kind of rotate through friends houses and play um you know nintendo super nintendo um a lot of like the wrestling games that was definitely mm. kind of a, a common feature um like i remember tons and tons of hours going into wcw uh nitro and uh and and wrestlemania 2000 and stuff like that um and then once you get to the the like the golden era of of like golden eye and smash oh, yeah. and mario kart on the n64 and all that stuff um that's certainly kind of where like my like co 
couch multiplayer stuff really um, took off. And it was, it, it like, even that was kind of the evolution of going to the arcades. It was, oh, hey, like, we can play four-player games now just on our couch exactly. and not have to just pour quarter after quarter after quarter into a machine. <laughs> Let's do that instead. Um, and, and you know, somebody's mom will order pizza. Uh, yeah, right? So, um, so yeah, that's uh, I, I always love kind of hearing... Um, those kinds of stories of how you know how people played together with uh, with friends and family. Did your so your parents, your mom? You were saying um, was kind of uh, poo pooing gaming. She like she allowed it, but it was it was so it, it definitely wasn't a thing like you were doing with your parents necessarily. No, like. it was very rare when I ever played games with my parents for a number of different reasons. The re- she wasn't so much against gaming as she wanted me to actually make sure that I did get stuff done. Like obviously. School, obviously, for anybody growing up during that era was a very important thing. And you needed to finish school. You needed to do good in school. So, obviously, if you didn't or if you were getting sidetracked, things would get taken away or things would get kind of, you know, restricted for the time being. And one of the things that my parents, specifically my mom, always did was that she always restricted us to play games on the weekend as opposed to throughout the week. Because, obviously, during the week, I could focus on homework. I could focus on actually getting up to go to school. I wouldn't be staying up late playing my games. So, she was never against gaming itself. She always knew it was, like, my favorite thing to do. That's why I would always get presents about or related to gaming over the holidays or I would get it on my birthday and stuff if I wanted a game or I wanted a console, etc. So she never really was against it. And the same thing with my dad. He was like, you know, same same uh, page with my mother and stuff. But uh, funny enough that you mentioned a lot of the, the couch co-op and stuff. I have a funny story uh, where... I used to get together with a lot of my friends between middle and high school, and when the GameCube came out, if you remember, obviously Smash Brothers Melee was a big deal. Everybody played Smash Brothers Melee. That was like a staple if you owned a GameCube, or at least if somebody you knew owned a GameCube, at one point throughout the weekend, you were going over to their house to play Smash Brothers Melee, and that was like a thing. And the other thing about that too, because you mentioned couch co-op and you mentioned multiplayer gaming locally, uh, I always used to associate the PlayStation 1 with the smell of pizza, and the reason why is because whenever I would go visit a friend of mine that was like close by he had a playstation one he had tekken 2 and tekken 3 so i used to go all the time to his place to play those games together and just chill and he lived on top of a pizzeria so all the time we would constantly just get this brick oven new york style pizza whenever we would hang out and it was just amazing nice yeah i think that like i just had a flashback to the one like fighting game that i played on the playstation and it was when i went and was visiting uh one of my cousins in michigan and we, we played Masters of Terras Cassie. Oh, my the, God. The really crappy Star Wars fighting mm-hmm. game. Um, but, you know, I was I know, like 10 or whatever, and that was amazing that there was a Star Wars fighting game, and I could, like, be Luke Skywalker with a lightsaber. I could be Darth Vader. So I definitely didn't realize until years later how bad, how bad. it was. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, it was just like, it, it was it was an experience I hadn't gotten to do before, um, and... And in those days, that, like, you took those and you, like, you know, at that age, you're not critically thinking about, like, oh, is, you know, is this game balanced or is, it, you know, is there um, a good flow to, to the combat, to the mechanics and any of that stuff. It was just like, I'm fighting, uh, like, I'm, I'm Luke Skywalker, my cousin Sean is Darth Vader, and we're just fighting, and it's awesome. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's. Uh, it, like looking back at some of those games and, and those experiences over time, I'm like, what? Like, I I definitely know I liked that game, um, and I wish I could be like naive again like that at times. I wish I wish I could still like um, look at that without necessarily a critical lens. Um, it's the like I always joke. Uh, the worst thing I ever did 
uh, to to continue appreciating theater was study theater because now I go to a show and I'm thinking about the lighting design or the sound design or the costume design or the set design and all of the acting and the direction and why did this character move over here um, and and it it I can't just go and sit and enjoy a show like I like I used to I can't just like let the spectacle wash over me. Um, and I think kind of some of that bled into just just because I think about art critically now uh, much more so I think like that bled into video games where I, I can look at like Masters of Terrace Cassie and say no that's a bad game um, and here's why and, uh, and and kind of pick it apart when um, you know it, it like uh, like Colin Moriarty is out there like chiding people who say to him games should be fun it's like yeah games should be fun. But sometimes they're not, and here's why sometimes they're not. It's exactly. okay to it's okay to think that, and it's okay to think a game is bad and still enjoy it too. Um, and I think like we get so bogged down in uh, everybody thinking their opinion just is the most valuable to everybody else around them. Definitely, uh, I agree. I can relate too because I think it, that's a thing that sometimes, especially when you go into like more of a critical medium, whether you're a film critic, a game critic, a theater critic, a comic critic, a TV show critic, etc. Like that, you have to know when to turn it on and turn it off. And like even now, like recently, I reviewed uh, Double Dragon Four recently, and it's like I'm pretty sure like you know people will go play that game, especially if they grew up in the NES era, have vivid memories of playing Double Dragon One, Double Dragon Two, and stuff. And it's like it was cool back then, but obviously things have changed now over time. It's like the same things back then don't necessarily work now. I mean, you can still have that appreciation, you can still have that nostalgia. There's oh, you're always gonna have that nostalgia, especially if you were part of that time or part of that time capsule. But like again, people grow up and things change over time, so you have to look at it with that ever evolving eye yeah yeah like one of my one of my earliest reviews on on trevor trove was i reviewed the Mega Man legacy collection and i like i grew up with that that generation i had every Mega Man game and it was at that era where like you have that game and that's all you're going to play for a few months because you're not going to get another game for a while so i beat all of those games and i was really good at all of those games for a certain point of my life and then like the game they they come out uh, and the legacy collection comes out and i play through it i'm like if I'm measuring this game through nostalgia, yeah, it's fun to play and see through all these things. But if I'm measuring this game as a release today, it's broken. It is broken beyond belief, <laughs> and it is glitched. And we just all learned how to play with the glitches of that game. And the fact Adapted. that it was restored so faithfully um, uh, to to all of like the glitch points and stuff, it was just like that, like... I don't have the patience for this anymore. This <laughs> this kind of game design does not does not um, you know appeal to me in this day and age. And so um, I was much more harsher. And and it is kind of I do try and take off those nostalgia go- goggles when I can. Uh, I recognize that like on something like Final Fantasy, um, it might always be hard for me, and I might always see Final Fantasy four or Final Fantasy six from the Super Nintendo as like the the be all end all of gaming, but. Um, but when, you know, at least when somebody comes to me who's playing it for the first time now and they talk about it, I, I understand like the feedback and the criticism that they're lodging against the game and, and, and can recognize that, yeah, it it might not work for, um, kind of the gaming environment we exist in today. Um, so yeah, it's, it's always interesting kind of comparing games of the past to, to now and, uh, and like seeing what those those feel like how those feel and so yeah like double dragon is is one of those cases where i've seen it come up and i see it getting torn apart and i'm like i i I played through the double dragon and double dragon 2 back on the on the nes and i like they were fine beat-em-ups but 
they're probably not great games if I were to go back <laughs> and play them now. I, I would probably like just be like, okay, yeah, I'm just button mashing to beat up, you know, nondescript bad guys. Okay, <laughs> it's not. You know, it's it, a game that's like that though. Uh, if you remember Shadows of the Empire on N64, that's like mm-hmm. that's like a prime example of that where. Anybody, again, if you're a Star Wars fan, you consume everything that's Star Wars. Like, it doesn't matter the quality of it. You know, you're, you're ride or die Star Wars. And that was a game where, because it took place in the middle of the trilogy between episode five and six, and that was like a new story we never heard from before and stuff, we forgave a lot of the misgivings that happened, oh, a lot of missteps. Yeah. And it's the same type of thing with most games like that, that especially if they have that nostalgia or that retro lens through them. We A lot of people, especially if they had nostalgia for it, tend to forgive a lot of stuff rather than just seeing it, as it for what it is. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and uh, yeah, that like tying something like that ties into a completely different thing where it's like you're giving me Star Wars in video game form and it's a new Star Wars thing. We like that's the battle uh, hoth. <laughs> it was it was like yeah, consuming everything. I like I would play every Rogue Squadron and and all of those games and like that like it's the uh the the biggest thing I played ever on my original Xbox were the Knights of the Old Republic games because I was oh, like yeah. I'm I'm playing the, I played the hell out of Obi Wan which was a terrible game but it was a <laughs> it was a Star Wars game um, and so I was like I'm gonna give it a shot I'm playing young Obi Wan I'm getting to swing around a lightsaber this is awesome I don't get to do this on you know on on my GameCube or whatever um, uh, but yeah it's like it, so so even that you like you'll forgive um, because you're getting more of something you love. Like I would, I, and I, I stand by this. I would absolutely love for like Warner brothers to come out with a VR Quidditch game. Um, even, even if I'm not getting like a story mode of, of Harry Potter, just playing in the Harry Potter world would be a ton of fun. I agree. Um, and so that's uh, like, that's, that's the dream VR game that I would be looking for um, uh, to kind of like, like follow in the, in the footsteps of something like Riggs or something. And you like, and and I think that would be kind of has the potential to be a killer app on that system because everybody would say, oh, I really want the new Harry Potter thing. Sure, I'll go ahead and spend this, you know, 400 extra bucks on this this extra piece of hardware or something. Um, yeah, no, it's a uh, great, great conversation. So when did you start? Uh, do you do you like have a any kind of moments that that stand out in terms of when you started kind of following what was happening in gaming uh, following like the industry or anything like that well obviously i think like you and i think like most other people that we know a lot of us got into like following the industry following gaming news through ign at the time back then it was sega sages for me that was the url and and kudos to anybody watching this that remembers sega sages for the record okay because (laughs) that's like a long dead url that that if you type it in now it just leads right back to ign because it was like almost the same thing you would go there strictly not just for the gaming news but more for the cheat codes that was yeah. really what everybody went to it for. And I remember oh, that's, yeah, that's how it bleeded into me, you know, for it to actually following gaming news. And that from there, you know, on accident, really, I started listening to other stuff and, and what read, read really reading a lot of other stuff like reviews and such. And then that branched off into video, I think at some point or podcast. I don't remember which one came first at the time uh, when IGN started doing that stuff. But I remember at least for podcasts, it was podcast beyond that started off mm-hmm. for me. And also for video stuff, it was just random game trailers. It was, if it wasn't IGN that had game trailers that I would go to, it would be game trailers itself that everybody would go to, to look for that stuff. Whenever there was like a big game that you heard about that was coming out at the time, if you didn't already read it in magazines, because before any of that, a lot of us had like game pro. A lot of us had like official uh, PlayStation magazine, official Xbox magazine at one point uh, or yeah. tips and tricks. That was the, that was the other one. 
one that I know I had at one point, and then a, a couple of my friends did also as well. Yeah, so I was, I was going to say, or I was going to ask if, if before IGN came along, if you'd really had, uh, if, you'd, if you'd had any of the magazines or anything. Oh, like, yeah. Because I, I was like, I was a Nintendo Power kid. I never had Nintendo Power. That's the funniest thing. I never got into Nintendo Power. Like I don't know why it was. I don't think even any of my friends at the time or people that I knew in high school had that, which it's just, you know, mind-boggling to me because you would think that anybody that had a Nintendo console at the time had Nintendo Power or at least knew of it. Yeah, it's it's like I I know my parents still have in like boxes in in their house like all of my old Nintendo Powers. I'm like, those are probably like collectory items at right? this point. Um cuz I had I mean, I I had it starting pretty early i don't know if i had like the first issue that was like talking about i think super mario brothers 2 yeah but i had like i had a nintendo power for years and then eventually i got away from it so i wasn't around like when it finally started to fade away and die but um it was definitely like a a normal like a regular part of my childhood and then yeah i did um just just like you were saying like i got to something like ign um because of cheat codes you know when the internet started coming up it was like oh um you know nintendo power doesn't have the cheat codes anymore or if it does i have to wait a month for them to for <laughs> it to come out so i can go and and you like dial up and and like install a, an aol 500 hours go to the library i used to go to the library to go down like the line oh I nice to, yeah i used to go to the library uh, and do that yeah I, I I didn't do it at the library, and I know I didn't do it at the library because I know that I also, in those early days of IGN, would also frequent, like, the babe of the day kind of, <laughs> like, IGN babes when I was, you know, like a, a horny little, like, 14-year-old or whatever. We were um, all we were all doing it. So anybody yeah. watching this that's in denial, you, you're lying. <laughs> yeah. We all did it. <laughs> um, basically, like, Maxim, but, like, uh, it, it was basically Maxim light kind of uh, mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but yeah, like guides and stuff are certainly what, what drew me in. And even like, even outside of that, I would also, um, I also had like a subscription to PC gamer and stuff. So, um, so I got into like PC gamers site um, because of that. And, and like, I would, you know, every month it would come out with the demo disc and I would be like one showcase game that was like what everybody actually wanted. And then it was just a shit ton of like terrible garbage, um, <laughs> Uh, that that it was, but, but then like randomly one of them would just stick, and I'd be like, oh, I had a lot of fun with this game, and it was only a level, but um, I would like go and track down and find the full version of the game because it was something stupid, but it was something stupid that appealed to me. It was probably like, um, like I think the Lost World on uh, on PC was one of those games where it was <laughs> um, like I was like, oh, like I like Jurassic Park, and this is basically like Jurassic Park meets Warcraft or something like that. So I was like, I'm gonna play that. Um, and I had a ton of fun with that stupid game, but it probably started because of one of those little demo disc things. Did you ever get into uh, PC gaming? PC gaming, not so much because, again, I got a computer late in my household, and it was for a number of different reasons. I blame it a little bit on stubbornness on my parents, but also mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that I got exposed to, you know, not only with the internet, but also PC gaming at the time was either through school or it was through the going to the library for a number of different reasons. Like, the first time I ever played StarCraft, I think, was on PC, but it was, like, again, much later. Same thing with Doom, like the original Doom back then. But, like, there would be, like, PC games that were, like, very basic games, like Number Munchers, if you remember that growing up. Like oh, yeah. That. Or Oregon Trail, stuff like that. Yeah. The Ma- the Mark of Zorro. You know, some random games that were, like, almost like DOS games at some point. Mm-hmm. But, but like, that's what that was kind of, like, my first exposure to PC gaming. Well, uh, funny you mentioned about the demos and stuff. Official PlayStation Magazine or any of the demo discs that you got for, like, the PlayStation 2. 
stuff like that that was a big thing as i was growing up that's how i play like some random games i think I, that's the first time i can't remember if i played either devil may cry or or something else random that was on ps2 or ps1 can't remember there was there was like a couple big games that i played for the first time through that and then that's how i subsequently got into the real games yeah that's i, I miss i miss that experience um getting getting to like either either be it through like um like renting games through like oh yeah or something and the then, video and store then, the video yeah. store <laughs> uh, and then uh, so you can like you can try something you know three bucks or whatever for a weekend and then say oh i want more of that and play it or you like you play it for for you know a weekend and you're like okay i got everything out of that i don't need to play this game again um uh like that i miss and then yeah demos uh like getting i guess now like now we have betas um mm-hmm. Uh, like the For Honor beta and, and whatnot, but um, since that is so predominantly like multiplayer focused, and that's just not necessarily my scene, uh, I definitely feel like that that's something that we've kind of lost over time. You, uh, you and like EA and stuff, and and uh, and a couple of companies will kind of occasionally trot out and say, "Hey, this weekend, play you know the first four hours of a game for free or whatever," and that's that's a cool thing, and I think. Um, it would be interesting to know kind of the metrics on, hey, is there like a good conversion rate if people are doing that? Or is it that they try it and then they just say, nope, I'm good, I'm done, and walk away from it? Good um, example of that, Near Automata, that just had a demo not so long ago. And a lot of people are getting very excited about that game. So in instances like that, mm-hmm. it's definitely to the company's benefit to have something like that. Oh, yeah. I think, it, I think, I think it's Neo more... was another one of those, right? Yeah, something like that. And I think it's also more so that the betas are usually the things that turn people off. I feel like sometimes like it's like demos that are online on like PSN or Xbox Live Arcade or even on the Nintendo eShop. Those are the things that really get people into games. And I feel like people come out more negative about betas, especially if they're multiplayer betas when they play them online. For Honor is an example, even though that was kind of like more of a mixed reaction. Uh, Star Wars Battlefront, I think, had a beta at one point. Uh, yeah. and there's been uh, Ghost Recon. Ghost Recon, perfect example. A lot of people went into the Ghost Recon Wildlands beta thinking like it was going to be real good. They came back disappointed. So yeah. there's a lot of instances that happen like that. Yeah, they definitely like it. it like I remember, like Evolve and Destiny. Yeah. Um, like I like I I got into Destiny um, because of the beta, and it was like it. I I enjoyed the Destiny beta, not realizing that I was playing most of the Destiny game in that, <laughs> like, in that weekend. So when the game finally comes out and and you play it, and it's like, oh, that was pretty much like all the content that I played in the beta. Okay. Um, That's a wrap. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I do think, um, I think you are absolutely on point in that, like, yeah, a lot of people are going to try it and then walk away from it um, because, um, you know, the, the balancing issues aren't, aren't, you know, finely tuned or something. So it is, um, it is the rare game that will um, maybe benefit largely from a beta in terms of a, um, an attach rate. Um, but also I look at, you know, those people who, who maybe like stepped into Titanfall two or something and walked away because they didn't like how it felt probably weren't going to get Titanfall two anyway. Mm. Um, it's it, 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 but it was a, Hey, this is a free thing I can do. And so I'm going to give it a shot. Um, whereas I think, yeah, more, uh, like, uh, near or, uh, or Neo recently, um, those having those betas and it being, mostly or single player experiences effectively so it's not that you're you're combating against you know the the online players or the the player base it is just like hey um this is to give you a feel of our game before it comes out we're still going to fine tune a couple things but um but here you go um that is uh, i was i was watching uh, or i saw somebody tweet um 
uh, Zhug X is uh, he does a lot of like um, like gaming analysis stuff on uh, on Twitter. Uh, he was basically posting like Google Trends um, for like searches of um, uh, like Neo versus uh, For Honor versus um, some big game that uh, or versus like Mass Effect Andromeda or something mm. and. Neo and For Honor because of the beta, like everybody was searching for the beta and how to get access to to the beta, that they were like far and above in terms of uh, just the mindshare, uh, yeah. something like Mass Effect when it's dropping, you know, a late trailer or something, or even Zelda Breath of the Wild. Like those were beating out uh, because it's it is kind of getting that word of mouth out right before the game hits um, in a way that that is hard to to kind of capture. Um, without a hands-on kind of uh, experience, mm. so it is it, it is a very it is a, absolutely a fair point that I think I guess we do have kind of that in essence still uh, in in demo form, but it often ends up being like okay you have to play it like this weekend um, or that's it. So <laughs> it'll be, be interesting to see kind of if the uh, if the market kind of um, where the market goes with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's see what uh, what what are some kind of recent um, highlights of your gaming history? Uh, we kind of got uh, up through uh, up through PS2. Like, so do we have? Uh, are there like PS3? Have you ever been like an Xbox player? Well, here's the thing: I never owned an original Xbox at the time because when I played the original Xbox games, specifically Halo One LAN connections and also Halo Two, because that's what everybody played. I used to go to when I used to live in New York. I, I lived in New York for like over like most of my life up until like more recently and in Dobbs Ferry I used to go to this kind of like you know cards gaming and hobby shop and they used to have I think it's like six TVs hooked up to like different uh Xbox originals at the time but again mm-hmm. I think you can only hook up I think it was like four Xboxes at the time I think it was for like eight player uh multiplayer matches and they were, the extras would be doing like their own thing and that's how I used to get exposed to Halo Halo 2 um uh what is it um uh Jade Empire uh, a variety of other different games, uh, even like some of the Soul Calibur games, because Soul Calibur, remember at the time, GameCube, PS2, and uh, Xbox had their own characters and stuff, so that's yeah. how you got to play the multiple characters you got to play with Spawn. But uh, that's where I got exposed to that Xbox ecosystem and that environment, because that was still kind of fascinating to me, because at the time when they were still coming out with the original Xbox, everybody that I knew was either ride or die with PlayStation or Nintendo. There was no mm-hmm. third wheel into this mix, because obviously Sega had kind of like drowned out eventually some point with the dreamcast funny enough being someone that started off with sega i never got into the other sega systems i never got into a saturn i never got into the the dreamcast i never got into any even the 32x i never got mm-hmm. one at the time it just never happened but yeah, i had the i had the 32 i had i had the genesis and then the like was the 32x sega cd yeah sega cd yeah. and 32x was like the two yeah, attachments was, for it yeah. i never got them yeah i i got up to that point and then yeah once we got into into like Saturn territory and Dreamcast, I was I was out. I, so yeah, I had I had the those couple, and then I had a Game Gear. Um, but for the most part, I was Nintendo, and then PlayStation came along, and I I basically went where Final Fantasy went. Um, yeah, right. At that point, because <laughs> um, I was like those those were my favorite games, and so going from playing Final Fantasy three on the Super Nintendo to learning that there was a Final Fantasy seven on this PlayStation thing. I was like, what? I missed that many place, uh, Final Fantasy games. Where, where have they been? <laughs> where did this happen? happen? <laughs> like, and then it, it is it, cause it's, cause it's not until, 
you know, a couple of years later or something that I'm really like on the internet and learning, oh, okay, Final Fantasy 3 was Final Fantasy 6 and they just renamed it, renumbered it over here. Um it was it was like I was just like there are I don't know what happened to Final Fantasy 4, 5, 6, and 6. I'm just, but I'm going to play Final Fantasy 7, and it's on this other thing. So, Mom and Dad, I want a PlayStation, please. Um, it's and like you the missed reason, an episode. <laughs> yeah. The only reason I ever uh, really had an Xbox um, uh, out the gate uh, was because I won it at my high school graduation. Nice. Um, they did, like, a, uh, like high school graduation uh, here in town, and I think it's I think it's like a nation a nationwide thing uh, that that a lot of people do is uh, like project graduation, and it's basically like they take all the kids after graduation and they put them like in a, they lock them down in a location. Ours in particular was like the mini theme park that we have in in Phoenix, Castles and Coasters, where it's like mini golf and a few little tiny roller coasters, mm. and it's basically like we don't want you going out and drinking and driving and being stupid after you've graduated so like they get everybody there and they gave everybody raffle tickets it was like put your raffle tickets in to here's a variety of prizes and i was like okay i'll like a whole bunch of people were putting in for like a 50 inch tv or something like that and i was like the odds of that are are pretty low i'll go for this xbox um and so i put like most of my tickets in there i put a few in like for a best buy gift card or something like that and I ended up winning the Best Buy gift card and the Xbox, but they were only like, you only get one prize. I was like, well, I'll take the Xbox then. Thank yeah, you. right? <laughs> uh, no, no, I'll go to Best Buy and get, like, nothing. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, I, I got the I got the Xbox, and then I, like, and it came with, um, I think it came with, like, oh, it came with uh, Morrowind, and it came with Burnout. And I was like, wow. I'm not a car guy, so I, like, traded in Burnout um, probably for something stupid like Obi-Wan. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then I tried playing Morrowind, and I was like, this, this game is not hitting for me at all and so i i never got into elder scrolls until skyrim um uh, eventually hit and and they'd fixed that enough to to my liking that it was it was much more of a, a draw but yeah that was like because i had an xbox i was like okay these star wars games i will absolutely play them and like fable was a uh, oh, yeah, an RPG, fable. so i like i put a ton of time into that but yeah i never got into like halo or anything it was just that that my my main system was the PS2 and and even the GameCube at that point, um, but like so anything multi platform I was playing on the PS2, um, and then Nintendo stuff I was playing there, and then there just wasn't much drawing me into to Xbox, so I skipped the 360 generation, um, mainly so I could buy a super ridiculously stupid ex- expensive PlayStation 3. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so uh, so kind of into that generation, uh, PS3. Uh, did, you have a, did you have a 360? Yeah, I actually that's that was my first Xbox console. Is when I got into a 360. Okay. Admittedly, so probably one of the dumbest things that I did because that was one of those consoles where I think I think all of us at some point we had to either get multiple 360s or we had to pay for it to get fixed because of the red ring of death. Because of the red ring, yeah. That that caught everybody off guard, and it sucked because you know. Not only did Microsoft do the thing with the warranty, which I think I sent in my Xbox 360 about three times, I want to say, give or take. And at some point, like, you know, when, when the warranty ended and they said no more, I was like, there's no way I'm paying another $400, $500 for an Xbox 360. I'm just going to take all my stuff, with the exception of my Halo 3 uh, Collector's Edition with the helmet. I took all my games and all my accessories, traded in straight for a PlayStation 3. And that's how I got into the PlayStation 3 from there. And then I got a couple games from, from that uh, particular that particular console library, which is again probably one of the better things that I actually did because I played a lot more better, more fun games than I did on my 360. Because 
there was very few games on 360 with the exception of like Halo uh, 3. Uh, also, I believe uh, Fable 2, I want to say, or, or Fable 3 at one point. And I think also maybe like one other random game, because I know Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo HD Remix was on there. And there was, I think, Hyper Fighting was as well. There was like a couple random games that I really played a lot on 360, but nothing like, you know, to the grand scope of like, you know, some of the bigger titles that were associated with that console. I didn't get that way with that console generation until I got the PS3, which I felt was the better thing for me at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, and like, because I'd been so, uh, uh, like, addicted to playstation and that was where i would find like the final fantasies again exactly that's that's why i went playstation 3 when everybody else was going xbox 360 um uh so even though i had to wait like longer to play fallout or uh uh uh, something like that it was or grand theft auto i was like i'm okay with that i'm like i i can get my um final fantasy 13 on on this playstation 3 not oh realizing God. how much i would hate final fantasy 13 oh i'm with you i, tell me, I was <laughs> burnt bad of, by that game twice yeah <laughs> and 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 the sequels which i also still played through because i was like i have a problem um, <laughs> yeah it was it was probably around uh i want to say it was around the uh final fantasy 12 on uh on ps2 that I decided to go through and play like every Final Fantasy game again, uh, in a lot of cases again. But like, I don't think I'd ever played Final Fantasy V before that or something like that mm-hmm. because some of them did come stateside so late mm-hmm. um, uh, back on like the PS One or something like that. So it was just I I hadn't invested in it. It was like, oh, I can play I can play Final Fantasy V in this Chronicles collection or whatever, or I can play Final Fantasy Nine. I'm going to play Final Fantasy Nine. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, it was, it, so at some point I was like, I want to go through and play all of them and, and like really do kind of like a definitive ranking kind of thing. And even at this point, it's like, I know the ones I really like, I know the ones I really hate and everything else is just kind of in a murky middle ground where it's like, <laughs> they're not, they weren't so great that I love them. They weren't so bad that I despise them. They're just kind of forgettable. They're and meh. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're, right. they're meh games. And like <laughs> one and two and five kind of sit in there, three as well, or in that. And then. Like yeah, I've got my my highlights, uh, and then I've got my lo- my lows, low uh, lows. <laughs> yeah, um, but because that's like that was the franchise that I followed so closely, I was like, I even if I because I didn't I didn't love uh, twelve, so I was like I don't you know I feel like I've been burned a little bit if uh, you know I'm getting just the PlayStation for um, uh, for Final Fantasy thirteen, but. I'll give it a shot anyway, and there will be plenty of, like, there's enough other content on there I can play it, and I was hearing great things about Uncharted and mm-hmm. God of War and all that stuff. Uh, well, I'd, I'd play God of War, I guess, on, on the on PS2. PS2 yeah. So, 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 yeah, it was, it, there, was, there was enough of a lineage there from, uh, like, PS1, PS2 that I was fine sticking with PS3, whereas I didn't have the draw of, um, of Halo to bring me into the 360 era, and seeing things like gears of war didn't ever that was the other one that got me so. into it that was the other one that got me into 360 air was gears of war and specifically gears of war co-op with my brother that's what mm-hmm. made that that's what at least was probably the better if not the best highlight that i ever had playing that console because i did halo 3 co-op with my brother on legendary but it wasn't as fun as how much i played uh gears of war because that was something new it was something fresh and it was something different that i just at that point in time never experienced beforehand yeah no excellent and that's it like i'm the what i love about what Xbox is doing these days with something like the backwards compatibility is I am able to pick up those games and, and give them a shot. And uh, so I've played now through 
Gears 1 and 2, and then I played through 4. Uh, so I still need to play 3 and maybe Judgment. Oh, skip um, Judgment. You're good. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the the fact that like I got the Gears remaster and they were like, thanks for buying this. Here's all the other games from the 360 if you want to like catch up on those too. I was like, okay, yes, I will nice. absolutely do that. <laughs> um, uh, like I, I feel like I've bought maybe like seven games on my Xbox, but because of the games I've bought... I've got like thirty, um, because I mean, well, I've got far more than that because one of them was Rare Replay. But yeah, um, definitely, it is like, uh, um, like the Halo Master Chief Collection. I was like, okay, I can finally play Halo, um, which is this big, you know, void in my gaming history. The Gears uh, games, um, and and like I I love that. Um, I, like that's even though I don't dust off my Xbox all that much, that is one of the things I love about this generation Xbox is because I think they had to kind of come from behind. Um, they've been doing a lot of uh, very like consumer friendly stuff like that um, yeah. to say, Hey, like, <laughs> thank you for buying our system. Please here play. Like I bought the sunset overdrive bundle on that was my, was uh, that was why I got the Xbox one. Cause I really wanted to play that game. And like, that weekend they're like hey thanks for buying an xbox um here's rise son of rome if you want it enjoy and i was nice. like oh cool like free free game i like threw it in i didn't like really get too connected to it but I, I put probably a couple hours into it and had a good enough time with it that for for a free game i was like yeah okay, it's free. I, I get this this is fun awesome thanks um yeah um so where uh so what are some uh so we so we've hit gears um what kind of other like uh, on the PlayStation side, uh, did you get into like the Uncharted's, the Infamouses, and and whatnot? Well, the Infamous and Uncharted games I got into later, admittedly. So, and it was because I heard about them through Podcast Beyond and through other people talking about them. I didn't dive into those games specifically when I first got the PS3. I had a very limited palette when I first started playing PlayStation Three. Uh, a couple of the games that I did get that I made it a point to get at those times: Twisted Metal. I thought it was a big okay. one because, again, they had a legacy with PlayStation. And I kept hearing great things about it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to dive into that. Uh, Heavy Rain was another one. Uh, yeah. Same thing also with uh, Metal Gear Solid 4, which for a lot of people, myself included, heavy legacy from playing some of the other games on PlayStation 2 or PS1 with the original Metal Gear Solid. Uh, those those were games that, just like that really stuck with me. Also, other games on that platform, uh, Assassin's Creed 2, I want to say. At that point, and I think I also played it on the 360, if I remember correctly. That was like my favorite Assassin's Creed at the time, and also Assassin's Creed 3 because of that, which again I did not like as much back in the day. And then eventually, I started getting a lot more different games here and there. I got the Metal Gear Solid Collection at one point. Eventually, uh, I started getting into the Uncharted games. I got those bundles from the PlayStation 3, if you remember. They had those like different types of bundles on the PlayStation 3 for God of War, Infamous, uh, Ratchet and Clank, and I think also, I'm trying to look over on the side, Killzone, that was the other one. That's another yeah. game that I had on PlayStation 2 that, again, that transitioned over to PS3 for me. So I got most of those collections. That's how I played those. And then finally, every, I think everybody, yours, me and you included, ended off with The Last of Us. That was like probably the, like, the last big game that we played on PlayStation 3, at least for myself. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely, definitely last big new game. I... Because Nino Cooney is a game that I got, but I never actually like cracked open or, or got around to playing because I'd heard great things about it, and it seemed like it we were, would be right up my it's alley. Long. Just for whatever reason, it was it never like I was never in a in a in the right you know headspace for it or something. Mm. Um, and then yeah, like PlayStation Four came along, and I started um, kind of putting my focus on that. The last game I did end up playing on my PS3 though, and I touch on this um, in in last week's episode with uh, with Chelsea was um, I was playing. 
Fallout 3 at my then girlfriend's house because um, I would ha- like I I kept my PS4 at my place, um, but then I would like wake up early before her in the morning or something and just be like bored out of my mind with nothing to do. <laughs> so I was like, I'm gonna bring my PS3 over here and just kind of leave it at her place and and um, it was uh, Fallout 4 was was had just been announced and I was like, I wanna I wanna get that back in my system. And so I went back and like replayed through um, Fallout 3 was so that was the that was and I, like I'd already beaten the game. Um, I'd done pretty much everything in the game. The only things I hadn't done were play like a neutral run or an evil run. Mm. So I did those and got like the the platinum trophy for uh, for Fallout Three. Nice. And that was the like the send off. I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna play that and I'm gonna play New Vegas before the before Fallout Four comes. And then um, we ended up moving uh, into into a house, and so I was like, well, um, I can just play my PS4 now. So I don't need to <laughs> I don't need to keep going with the PS3. Oh well. Um, so didn't didn't end up uh, getting the plat on on New Vegas, but. Um, but yeah, the my time with uh, Fallout Three ended up being like this is this is how I said goodbye to the the system, and it's like I've still got it. And if I like, there are games on there that I want to play, like Nino Kuni, um, like uh, Kingdoms of Amalur, uh, or Amalur Kingdom Reckoning, whatever, um, that I started to play and just never got like through. And so if I get if I ever get into like a streaming thing or something that those are the kinds of games I would probably try and like revisit or or play through or are like new experiences or experiences that are new to me on an old system that I'm not going to just plug in and, and play randomly necessarily. Mm. For me, the PS3, I think was a console for myself and a couple of the people I knew that was like our opportunity to go back and play some older games. That's like, you know, the collections and stuff. Definitely, one of the, yeah. one of the collections also, and again, I think I told this to you before we even started recording was kingdom hearts. Now mm. I, I have a really big legacy with kingdom hearts again, right from the very beginning and stuff but that was also a time where i replayed those games again because kingdom Hearts 1.5 and 2.5 came out on the playstation 3 they're gonna come out again on ps4 but at that time that was like my second time going through those games and experiencing it again so it was like opportunities like that to go back and play those legacy titles that you either miss or that you just wanted to relive again that's that was the ps3 for me to be honest with you yeah no that's uh, like i uh like jack and daxter when you were talking collections that was one that i completely missed because i missed like most of the weirdly i missed like most of the ps2 platformers mm. jack sly cooper sly cooper I, yeah I, I never played a crash game or anything like that so um so uh at ratchet and clank i didn't play that until the the reboot last year so jack and dexter like i was like oh this is like 20 bucks sure i'll pick it up and played um uh played through um really enjoyed jack one and then i could see very easily and very quickly where they were like oh okay Grand Theft Auto came out between Jack yeah, and right? Two, <laughs> so everything's now a Grand Theft Auto kind of uh, got a got a Grand Theft Auto feel to it. So, um, uh, so I, I didn't resonate with those as much as I think other people did when they were playing them kind of at the time. But yeah, like um, I I picked up the Kingdom Hearts one point five collection because I like I I've played Kingdom Hearts one and two. And I've played a little bit of like Chain of Memories, but I've not gotten into the more expansive Kingdom Hearts world. So I was like, I'm going to get 1.5 and 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 try and redo that. And just uh, like I started to play through one again, and it just like it was fun, but it wasn't what I wanted at the time. It wasn't mm-hmm. clicking with me. Um, so I ended up kind of putting that aside. Instead, doing Final Fantasy X and X two again. Ten, yeah. Um, and th- and that 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 resonated with me. Um, uh, and and. I 
did that thing where I, like I bought it on I bought the PS3 version and the Vita version. Yeah, so me I too. Do the, I did the, the exact cross, same thing. <laughs> the cross save, even even though it wasn't cross buy, so I had to buy it both places. But then I could you know throw it up on the big screen when I wanted to, or I could have it you know as I was going off to bed or something like that. So it was it was good and fun, and I had a good time with it. And then when they were like, and now it's coming to PS4, I was like, you're not getting me again. Like, <laughs> no, I I played through all of 10. I started to play through 10.2 again. Um, I'm not doing it again. But I am going to try and it's, – I mean, it's going to be crazy because of everything else that's coming out in the next few months. But I do want to get 1.5 and 2.5 on PS4 because I didn't end up getting 2.5 because by that point, I my my PS3 was already, like, gathering dust again or something. Mm. Um but I do want to when when the PS4 version of everything comes uh, comes out, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and try and give that a shot um, in part because like it is quickly becoming one of the like fan favorites of this show and like, <laughs> everybody's like I want to talk about Kingdom Hearts. I'm like okay, um, you know we're gonna run out of the Kingdom Heart game soon. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, in terms of the the favorite games kind of segment, but um, but yeah, it's it as somebody who got into that series because I love Final Fantasy and because I love Disney, um, like one and two definitely stand out. And I just never got drawn into kind of the more expanded lore um, mm-hmm. outside of it. Um, but hearing people talk about birth by sleep and, uh, and, and like dream Drop distance and loving those games, I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe they are worth me giving, you know, giving a shot instead of just scoffing and laughing when they come up with stupid names for oh, yeah, every Jesus. single game, three fifty-eight over two days or whatever. It's like those what, names what suck. <laughs> yeah, I like my my go-to gag at this point is always like, um, uh, I, I can't wait to play Kingdom Hearts three point one four one five nine HD Remix four uh, K four K edition. Um, you know, in four years. Yeah. Right. So. Um, uh, but yeah, those the so I'm looking forward to trying to squeeze in those games again amidst Horizon and Persona Five and Zelda <laughs> and, yeah. and everything and, and and Mass Effect Andromeda like everything in the next few months. It's like oh, when did when did spring become the new fall? Oof. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that 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 certainly was a, a like. Like, because PS3 is also where I finally sat down with like something like Shadows of the Colossus for a while. Oh right? yeah, definitely. And, and got to got to pour some time into that. And and um, I mean, there's also you also had like the rise of kind of the indie games and PSN indie games um, in that generation. Both, Journey, both with XBL, uh, XBLA, and and uh, and PSN. Yeah, Journey. Um, even even like Flow and Flower, um, I like I enjoyed going back to um, uh, kind of which I like. It was weird because it, I. I'm sure at some point I was that kind of gamer that scoffed and was like, "Oh, it's a downloadable game. Well, pff, it's probably dumb. It's probably not worth my time." Um, and then at some point, like, it was probably something like Scott Pilgrim, where I was like, "Oh, this is actually a lot of fun." You know, the side scroller beat him up. Um, I loved that I was able to uh, make one of my dreams come true by buying like The Simpsons um, on my PS3. Oh wow! Uh, because it was like that was. That and, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were what my friends would play at the arcade. And so I was like, when I'm rich, I'm going to buy a Simpsons arcade cabinet. And that was always, like, <laughs> a, a dream of mine. And I was like, this is close enough. <laughs> I, can, I can buy it digitally. It's on my PlayStation 3. That's good enough. I, 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 and I went through and, like, replayed that game. And, and it was still, like, that was one where I was like, this is not a great game. But I'm still having, like, a ton of nostalgia-based fun nice. with it. Yeah. Um, did you, uh, 
did you ever did you stick with like um, with Nintendo into like the Wii and the Wii U? Uh, the Wii, not so much. The Wii U, yes. And the reason why I got a Wii U over Wii is because obviously I played the Wii over at a, a bunch of friends' house and stuff, and I wanted to just get the next iteration of the hardware because at the time, again, I had just still had the 360, and I think I was moving over to the PlayStation 3 at one point during then. And I, the only reason why I wanted to get a Wii just at all was because of Smash Brothers and because of some of the Mario games. That was like really a lot of the reasons why at least a lot of the people within my circles wanted to get those consoles. Uh, again, that was like a whole nother big crazy fad at the time that everybody wanted to get a Wii and you couldn't find them for a while. Oh yeah. Which was yeah. like a big, big deal that everybody, again, lost our minds and stuff. But I ended up getting into the Wii U and admittedly, I've had two Wii U's at this point because the first one that I had, it was the, the dark uh, model, the black model that you get with the 32 gigabyte uh, hard drive and stuff or the RAM or whatever. And yep. uh, uh, what is it? At the time, you know, there was still, I was going through a transitional phase, you know, between the job that I had at the time. I used to work at Macy's and it was just like, again, things just weren't working out right and stuff and I need the extra cash for a variety of different reasons. So I got rid of my Wii U at one point. I got rid of all my games. Then later on, I realized that was like a huge mistake. You should never trade in your hardware, no matter what you do. You could trade in games here and there, but like that was a harsh lesson learned. And I eventually ended up ponying up and putting my money where my mouth was and getting it back at some point so that's how i got into gotcha. the wii u and i got it to again smash uh tatsunoko versus capcom uh super mario galaxy and all those different games that i could finally play again yeah the only the only hardware i've ever gotten rid of um that i like i, just, I don't have around here anymore is my gamecube but i only got rid of that because the wii could play the gamecube games mm. um so i was like okay i don't i don't need this extra thing anymore and i could get you know 30 bucks or something for it so um uh but now the the completionist in me does want to go to like the retro game shop down the street and be like hey uh i'll go ahead and take the purple cube thing yeah just give me one of those <laughs> you know something that's uh, a very dangerous line to walk and i've walked it before and i came off on the bad end of it and the reason why i say that is because granted again i started off with a sega console as my first console i wanted to get into the dreamcast because obviously people that i know people that we know in the industry and stuff they talk very highly about the dreamcast you know with a lot of good nostalgia lenses and such so it's like you know what i'm just gonna dive into it i'm gonna go find a dreamcast i'm gonna get sonic adventure one and two and maybe like one other two or two other games and stuff i think i when i got it i got sonic adventure one and two i think i got dead or alive two i want to say or dead or alive three at one point and I got it, I played it, I had everything. I had like two controllers, the, the memory unit and all that stuff. Played it for a good while and then it just sat there. It's collecting dust and it just sat yep. there for a long time. And it's like at some point I was like, you know what? This gotta go. This was like a really dumb decision for me because again, I didn't grow up with that console. I didn't dive into it when it was still hot. I didn't have that nostalgia lens. And it's a very dangerous line to go back to a console like that when you didn't have experience back then and then expect that you're gonna get something out of it. So it, yeah. it was one of my bigger regrets getting yeah, no, and 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 I don't like if I if I'm thinking about going and getting a GameCube, it's not that I'm going to go back and play GameCube. It's just that like the completionist in me wants to have go back to having every Nintendo system, mm -hmm. um, like on my shelves and stuff, because uh, I like I can point to my Nintendo, I can point to my Super Nintendo. I've got a my I got my N64 back, um, and the GameCube is what's missing. Then I've got my Wii and my Wii U. Um, I guess I don't have a Virtual Boy. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it it so that's that's where it is, and because, um, so like that and and a th like even though I did never had a 360, I kind of want to just get a 360. So I'm like then I then I could say I've got every Nintendo, every PlayStation, every Xbox, um, 
but yeah, I, I don't I don't know if I'll actually you know invest the money into it. Um, but it's it's definitely something I think about when I go to like the the retro gaming shop uh, or something. Like I'll see there I'll see them have an Atari um, system, and that is like I grew up and Atari was my first system, um, but my parents got rid of it before I was. Like they, we sold it at a yard sale. I remember, I remember seeing it there on the yard sale with the like the green sticker on it, basically saying we were selling it for twenty bucks or whatever. And like I have that memory, but I did not care enough to say like, hey, let's not sell this, let's keep it, because hmm. I was four or five or something like that. Um, uh, but I definitely like the the game historian in me wants just to have it mm-hmm. um even if i'm never gonna like play it or touch it um uh and uh, maybe you know maybe i would like boot it up or something who knows but yeah i don't i don't anticipate i i will dive into it but it is like one of those like oh it'd be if i had all of the money in the world i would just go ahead and buy everything even if i'm not gonna like play it ever just because i'm like that'd be a cool thing to have true be nice to kind of have a wider collection of consoles um in in part I, uh, so there was, uh, this, like, um, like the art of video games exhibit a few years ago, which started out as like a Smithsonian exhibit. And then it like toured the country and it came to the Phoenix art museum here. And I remember going to that because I was working right next door at the theater at the time. And, uh, I walked in there and I'm like, like my apartment is basically half of this museum. exhibit. <laughs> Like I have almost every system and cons and, and game that they're like showcasing and highlighting, because um, it was basically like it would be every system that they had, and then they would kind of showcase four games in that system, and there'd be like a little video kind of accompanying it, and it would be like, um, this was the action game, this was the shooter game, this was the puzzle game, this was the role playing game, um, and like standouts of each system, and they would talk about like this is why this was uh, a standout of this generation this is why you know metal gear solid was important this is why final fantasy 7 was important and it was like i have almost all of these games my apartment is a museum (laughs) um uh and so yeah that's that's kind of what i think about when i'm like oh it'd be nice to have an atari again or um or or to uh to unpack like my big old like bins of all of my old, old, old Game Boy accessories that were the like magnifying glass and the light, uh, the book light, and just kind of like have like set that up on a shelf or something. Like s- replace my little like portraits from when I went to Europe over here and just have like a Game Boy on a stand or a PSP or <laughs> something like that. Um, just be a fun little like kitschy thing to do and have. Um, but I don't. I don't see myself really investing uh, to, into it too heavily, but yeah, the, to your your original point of like don't don't sell your your hardware. Um, that is the like the I, I hear that regret often um, from from people who have done it. It's a hard lesson. Yeah, because because I mean you're gonna get you're gonna get pittance for it, and then you're gonna say, oh, I really want to play that stuff again, and then so you're gonna end up paying like three times four or five times <laughs> what you what you got when you traded it in exactly um to get it again so yeah i can i can i, I can i can't i can't directly relate but i can i can sympathize, I can sympathize. <laughs> um so what do we have from this generation that kind of stands out to you what do you what uh so what are some highlights? so ps4 xbox one wii u except yeah et cetera. so 
Oh, that's real tough. So, because again, there's a lot. There's a lot here for a variety of different reasons. And again, we're 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 still in the midst of this generation, so it's really hard to choose and really kind of hard to pick out what is considered something of this generation. That that I think is like really tough in some regard. Like obviously, you know, I've gained more on my PlayStation 4 than I do any of my other consoles, even though I do stuff on my Xbox One and my Wii U. But uh if I'm going with just PS4 just for the time being right now, uh, I would say games like uh, Metal Gear Solid 5. Or, or big games that, again even though they're multi-platform though that's a, a big game destiny it's another big game uh even though i don't have as much fun with it now you know even because of that style of genre and stuff i would say bloodborne or dark souls would, would also be other ones that, again to me have mm-hmm. made like significant impacts and stuff right now also i would say also final fantasy 15 you know granted there's a whole odyssey about that game that it's, you know, crazy. That that could be in a series of in of itself. But that that's another game that unexpectedly got its hooks in me for a very long time. Yeah. Outside of work stuff, which is very very cool. Um, again, there's a variety of other games. Obviously, Street Fighter Five, but that's like for a number of different reasons. Mortal Kombat X was another one. That's one again because the Mortal Kombat like uh, series has has a legacy with my family. You know, amongst me and my brothers and stuff. That's a series that we uh, we're always constantly going back to here and there and such. Um, and then finally, if I really had to choose one other one that was like, again, like really, really, really stuck with me that that's from this generation, I would have to say, you know, looking back at like some of my stuff around here, uh, I would have to say some of the stuff on my Wii U again, smash because it's smash brothers, you know, uh, again, this, this is the type of generation with, with smash Bros. or the, the time for that series where things have changed significantly because now it's on two platforms as opposed to just one. And there's not that one platform where you could just get that same experience you got playing Smash 64, playing Smash Melee, playing Smash Brawl here and there. Now you could either have a 3DS and bring it with you everywhere, or you could play it on, on the Wii U and play online against a variety of different people, which was unheard of for the series for at some point. And then the Amiibo, which is a whole other layer of stuff that just throws on top of it. That That's a game that, even though it's past now, that the time that I spent with it was so much fun. That's something that was so memorable for me for a good amount of time that really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, you you touched on something there, and I want to kind of circle back to it. To it, um, you talked about like Final Fantasy getting its hooks in you, um, even outside of like work and and like in the industry. So, how uh, in, in your six going on seven years in the industry, how has how has that changed your relationship with games? That's something I'd be I'm, I'm really fascinated. It's um, funny in kind of hearing because like everybody else, the, the easy thing to come out and say is that obviously now you think of games with a critical eye. Now you think of games with work because it's a means to make money and stuff. That's that's one thing about it. But what I really think is is that it's, again as you age, as you get older, and the more time you spent with a particular thing, it doesn't have to be games. It could be anything. It could be movies. I, I'm pretty sure that uh, what is it? Um, a lot of the uh, Roger Ebert, you know, probably felt the same thing that he did. You know, with films and the way that I feel about games and such is that you would be you have more of an open mind with the medium that you spend a lot of time with like with me uh back then when i was younger i would play games and i would play what i like even though i would kind of you know be open to trying other stuff i would still spend a lot more time with things that i liked now in this day and age you know years later i'm more willing to go out and play a game that i know nothing about or explore a genre that i didn't spend a lot of time with like one of my least favorite genres believe it or not even though i've played games that are like really significant in it is real-time strategy like obviously i would go out and play starcraft or starcraft 2 with buddies of mine or i would go out and play like civilization or something at some point even though i dislike the genre as a whole you know for my own Mm -hmm. personal reasons and stuff but i'm still open to actually diving into it and seeing what it gives me 
here and there. I'm not just going to go and play platforms. I'm not just going to go and play fighting games here and there and spend hours upon hours upon hours playing it. I'm still going to have a more of a diversified palette than I do now than what I did back then. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's I, I'm I'm finding um, as as I've been doing Trevor Trove for a year and a half uh, now. I'm I'm sitting here, and there are definitely games where I'm like. I probably wouldn't have played that if I didn't want to be part of the conversation. Exactly. But but it does it is opening me up to new games and new new things that I wouldn't necessarily have tried. Um, uh, uh, and 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 then there are other times where I'm like, like this this the last month and a half or so uh, in particular, it's like, oh like I I'm I'm diving into a lot of small games that I've missed or just a lot of games that you know aren't aren't gonna get me clicks or anything it's just I, like and I'm, and I'm not even caring about that it's just like oh i want to i i've i've been keeping an eye on this game for a couple years now um and it's finally out and i want to give it a shot and and see what what that experience is, is and you know if i enjoy it great um if i don't it's still so like uh the the recent one that i i uh i posted a review of just this morning um as we're recording this uh knee deep is a game that came to PC, um, came to PC like a year, a year plus ago. Um, it's like a three-part uh, kind of story adventure, choose-your-own-narrative kind of game, and uh, and the whole thing is told basically as a stage play. Um, like you are playing three characters in the show, but it's all presented um, like on a stage, and you ha- like you are kind of the audience a little bit, and characters will come off stage, the stage will spin around to set a new scene, and then the, the show continues. And uh, But you're making kind of all the, the narrative choices in it. And uh, and it's something that I saw at, like, PAX South last year, my mm. first my first PAX, and I was like, oh, that, like, that looks cool. I Like, I like the idea of seeing a show or a game that is basically, like, told as a play. Um, and so I, like, followed them online, and... and it's not anything that anybody else is like going out and covering, but I saw that it had come it, it had come to uh, to PS4 uh, a couple weeks ago, and so I was like, oh, I want it like now I can dive in and, and give that a shot. Um, and so it's 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 interesting, and I'm 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 finding that's not a thing I probably would have cared about a couple years ago. And it's not anything I if I hadn't been attending events or anything, I never would have been exposed to it. It would have mm. been one of those million games in the drop that that I just kind of brush by. Um, uh, on on the PSN, um, but because I had seen this one at a show, even I had like I hadn't even played it at the show. It was just like I it it like its color scheme popped or something, and I was like, oh, that looks cool. And so I like did a little bit of research on it. I was like, I'm gonna keep an eye on that game. Nice. And I did, and came out. I enjoyed it. I I it it has some issues for me, um, but I overall I was like, this is a really interesting thing of taking two things that I love of theater and video games and kind of finding a way to blend them into a narrative. This is where I, and and then I kind of like touch on in, in just writing and and talking about it. It's like, these are the things that I think if it wants to continue, if we want to see more games like that, these are the, these are kind of the issues that will need to be solved to, to like really refine what that game is trying to be. I think so it's, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying kind of that mix of, um, of playing something to be a part of the conversation when everybody else is doing it. But also like I played, I finally got around to playing Wolfenstein last year. Um, the new Wolfenstein games after, cause I, I played doom to be part of the conversation cause everybody was loving it. And I was like, Oh, like I grew up with doom. I want to 
Let, let's see. I wasn't going to try it, but everybody's loving it. I'm going to give it a shot. Me too. Um, and then I had a great old time with it, and I was like, okay, now I want to go back and see what they did with what, what Machine Games did with Wolfenstein, because that one just hadn't... hadn't. I, I had been out of the shooter genre for a while, and Doom kind of brought me back into it. And so, like, I played... Um, Wolfenstein, and I played all of the big fall shooters last year. I played um, Call of Duty for the first time ever. I played Titanfall 2. Uh, I played Battlefield for the first time since, like, Battlefield 1942 or something. <laughs> um, and uh, and it was it was interesting kind of being back in a genre like you were talking about that I hadn't really connected with or I hadn't really, like, had a drive to go out and play for a while because it doesn't always resonate with me, but trying it and, and kind of exploring it... Um, uh, kind of with this new lens and with this new kind of wider world uh, of exposure, um, definitely kind of fueled some some interesting um, thoughts and and interesting uh, uh, approaches to those games. Nice, yeah. Um, do you remember uh, what the first game you got to review for for like a, a publication for a site? Now you got to clarify though: is it a game that I got myself or a game that I actually received from like a publisher? I, I mean, I would go with either one. Because oh, um, if it, that's the case, the first game that I ever reviewed for, like, Real Taco Gamer back then, because I, I did stuff for my YouTube channel, and and, and that if that's the case, if I count that, then it would be Tatsunoko versus Capcom, because that, that was my very first video I ever did on YouTube and just put myself out there. But if we're just talking about, like, outlets and stuff, I want to say, because I used to go to the library where, where I live now, and they have games that you could check out, you know, for whatever platform, and you could play them like that, and that's how I would review games and try to kind of hone my craft and stuff. Yeah, it would save money, but it would also give me an opportunity to really flex and actually get into these games that people are talking about. So I want to say that I wrote a review for... Oh man, like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think back then because, you know, there's so many, like, posts and stuff... And I used to do video reviews with it at the time. So I want to say maybe one of the Batman Arkham games as far as like written, yeah. written, but, but I know there's plenty of other games that I reviewed before then. It's just, I don't remember at the time uh, or whatnot. Yeah, no, that's fair. But as far as like game that I got from like a publisher, I want to say, hmm, I think, and, and again, I'm very unsure about this because of the time frame because it was so long ago, especially when I came to the coalition. Because uh, oh, actually no correction, it was shifted to you. The first game that I ever got from that was like given to me, and I don't even think it came from the publisher. I think it came from the editor in chief at the time. Was Tokyo Jungle on PlayStation Network, and that was a game that I wrote a review for, and I really kind of campaigned and almost begged to get them to actually try to see if they could get me a copy of it so I could review it because I really want to check it out. I, I know a lot of people at the time and I heard, on, I think it was on Podcast Beyond as well, that they were talking about it a lot. And I was like, okay, I really want to know what's up with this and I really want to be part of this conversation and I really want to, you know, give my hand into actually reviewing a game. So I, I have mm -hmm. to say it's probably Tokyo Jungle. Cool. Nice. Um, how do you think you, your kind of, your craft has, has developed over the years? How, and I mean, just, Having been in in kind of uh, or pursuing games media for for six years now, it's I mean it's a very different landscape now even than it was six years ago. Um, how have you kind of grown and adapted um, over over that time? Oh man, like it absolutely like crazy. I think I've gone through a hell of an evolution since I first started, and, and you know not just coming from just strictly video at first, but like if we're talking just written stuff and we're focusing only on reviews. Uh, I want to say that I, I've been schooled a lot. And the, the thing is, you know, especially in my story, there, 
when when I was on the come up, it, it's really where I had a lot of bad examples in front of me. Because the thing about our industry, you know, and, and I say games media, games industry, you know, the video game community, the landscape and stuff, is that everybody has an opinion and they feel that their opinion is right. And that it's, it's the gospel yeah. opinion. And that's a very dangerous thing to have amongst a lot of ideas, you know, that all together because there's no conversation going on. Everybody feels like they're the Pope. You can't have like a hundred different Popes, you know. There's only one. And, and pope. Now, now we have to fit that conversation into 140 characters. Exactly. Too. You know, so it's even worse at one point. But really, you know, at the very beginning of it, I felt like, you know, I was learning from examples that I didn't know at the time were bad examples in front of me because they had their very radical, very strong opinions about game reviews, about video games in general. And it was cool to kind of get like my footing, you know, in the door as far as like understanding what does it mean to review a game and such. But they were nowhere near towards like what I would eventually down the line come to learn and come to understand about not only what they were telling me, but also about the industry as a whole. Uh, one, I'll, I'll never forget, I was actually kicked off a podcast, believe it or not, because I had a different view about a particular game series in Japan. And it was, it, I remember, I remember it vividly. It was for a podcast called Gamers 411, which was years ago and it's no longer around anymore. And one of the things was is that they felt that Monster Hunter wasn't a big enough series to have any sort of significance or impact, you know, anywhere, not just here in the United States, but also in Japan. And me knowing from having listened to podcasts beyond from having read stuff and having watched stuff and actually getting that knowledge from other sources than the examples that were in front of me, I kind of challenged it and I spoke up about it. It was one of those instances where it's like when you finally have the fortitude or the confidence to speak up about something that you know is wrong like that. And mm -hmm. even though I got kicked off the podcast, it was probably one of the better things that I got. And it was one of those lessons where like, not everybody that tells you stuff is the right is going about it the right way. Not everybody that gives you information is necessarily the right information or the only information that you could get. And that's like a running theme that I've noticed from like my very very early years reviewing games and being writing about games and such and just being part of that, you know, industry, be part of games media started to go and evolve over time. It happened at one point, you know, I want to say maybe about four or maybe five years into this. Or no, about three or four years into this, I'm sorry. Where I, eventually I started meeting other individuals that were part of the different websites and stuff. And when I went to my first uh, industry event, which was PAX East, believe it or not, that's my very first industry event that I went into as per in person as a media person. And I started meeting other people that, I, again, I've watched for so long or only heard about, saw on TV for so long. That was the first time I met Jeff Keighley. That was the first time I met Hip Hop Gamer. That was the first time I saw, uh, what was it? I think I saw a couple of the IGN people like Damon Hatterfield at some, one point and, you know, random different people that I never uh, came into contact with before. But I started to pick up little things from them or little lessons, you know, learning from them in their element, in their industry, in their, in their work that it kind of rubbed off onto me from, again, it's like monkey see, monkey do. And that's like the best way to learn a craft of anything, for that example, you know, outside of what you're constantly exposed to. And that just, again, grew over time where I started looking at some of the bigger websites, some of the other individuals that I would read a lot about over time, rather than just like, you know, people that were within my circles, within my, you know, sphere of influence and such, where I started to question a lot of stuff. That was one of the things I will give a lot of credit for to not just podcast beyond an IGN, but also to the guys that kind of funny Colin specifically, this is why I'm such a big Colin Moriarty fan is because a lot of the stuff that he talked about over the years, you know, watching and listening to stuff, it, it always enticed this feeling and enticed this little, uh, what is it, you know, edge, you know, edging me on to actually question a lot of stuff. And I felt like that was something that I didn't get 
in my earlier years from a lot of other people because I was always told like, this is how it is rather than just be like, no, explore everything about it. You know, question things, ask the questions when you feel like you don't know something or you're unsure about something. And that, that grew now up to this point now where I feel like, you know, I don't just take everything at face value, whether it's about a game, whether it's about a gaming topic or a gaming issue, drama, whatever it might be. And there, there's always like multiple facets to one specific particular type of topic or a particular type of subject that's just not just so black and white there's a lot of gray area there no absolutely yeah i that's i i think of like how long i was really only looking at ign for like my uh my analysis and 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 to be i mean to be fair it would be like i i found writers that i liked at ign and so it was like i i was interested in their kind of feedback just like um like local theater critics and stuff there are a couple of critics where i was like i'm really interested in what they think about it because that's where my I, I know that's where like my tastes tend to align whereas this other guy i'll read but i'm gonna almost always disagree with him um i i got a little bit of that basically from the from ign itself in in following as many people as i did over there but like I was never frequenting like GameSpot or Kotaku or Polygon or Joystick or any like any of those other sites really until um, until a couple years ago when I was like oh like if I want to try and get into this I do want to kind of be exposed to more voices and so like going going just finding people on Twitter and even if it's even if it's for the most part at this point like I'll I'll just see kind of their hot takes on Twitter and I won't necessarily dive into like full fledged reviews because I don't want to necessarily taint my own opinion of a game or something or if i'm going to write a review i don't want something that they're putting out there kind of coloring it necessarily um but i will like once i've got a review out maybe i'll go back and kind of like gather a few different um flavors and see kind of what the the consensus is because i've like i've never been a metacritic kind of person i'm like i don't i don't care about the number on the on on a score um I like I care about the words and and what the people are saying about the game. Um but I will occasionally just kind of like scroll down to see like hey, if this is like a 4, I'm not even going to waste my time kind of finding out the words of the game, mm. but um you want to know uh, why it's a 4. You want to know why yeah. like the 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 actual nuance or like the circumstances scenario behind it. Yeah. So um but yeah, it's it like I definitely there was definitely a turning point where like my world just suddenly opened up. Um and it was probably around the time I went to the first PlayStation experience, which was my first show that I went to. And I like I, I had a a little blog that I was like keeping on my own before Trevor Trove. I had like Trevor Trove dot blogspot or something like that, um, where I was writing about video games and I was writing about um, theater and stuff uh, like local theater. Um, and that was like I had a new job and I was like, oh. I like PlayStation. This is a new thing. It's in Vegas. I can drive up there for the weekend. I'm going to go to this PlayStation experience thing and didn't talk to like a single other person the entire weekend, (laughs) save like Greg and Colin when I like when, uh, when I went up and met them and introduced myself to them. But, um, the, yeah, the, the, the weekend itself, like going into that first keynote, like I, I felt the world open up and I saw, I guess I had been like following some other people at that point because I would see, um, like people from other outlets that I recognized or that I knew, be it from like YouTube or um, or other sites. Um, but I definitely like from then on, and especially when like Kind of Funny went off and did their own thing, um, that was certainly a turning point for like when 
I was like, okay, I can look at other things outside of IGN. And, and, you know, I'm sure part of that is largely fueled by like the, the morning show or calling Greg live at the time where they were going to different sites and introducing me to other sites that I hadn't, I didn't necessarily visit or go to or, or get other kind of tastes and stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, no, I can, I, I definitely appreciate the like learning from the wider network, um, kind of aspect that you talked on. Cause that's, absolutely what i like what i try and glean when i when i'm going to these events now and when, and when i'm talking to people is always trying to figure out um you know what works for them uh kind of what can i steal from them and and turn into my own thing you know absolutely. you know what's funny though and it's funny that you say that because i think it's also another part of it that that also had a big significant impact on me early on when i was first starting to really start writing about games and really kind of explore the industry is that once you got into like those types of things, like when again, when you first looked at Colin and Greg or even heard them on Podcast Beyond or other people, when you started to explore stuff, it almost kind of gave me a feeling or gave anybody else that would do the same thing a feeling that it's okay to look at other stuff. Because I was always given like uh, this thing by a variety of different places, a variety of different individuals, this this notion like, that, again, there's only one way to go about something. There's only one way to look at something or that you shouldn't look at this place or you shouldn't look at that place. You shouldn't read this thing here and there. And so finally, at some point, somebody came along and was like, listen, you should look at everything at one point. Like what perfect example, you know, it used to be a fan. I still think it kind of is at this point that a lot of people are very vindictive against Kotaku you know, about reading their stuff and going to their website for whatever reason here and there. Everybody has their own reasons for it. Where back then for me, it was like everybody that I knew hated Kotaku with a passion for one reason or another. And they were like, yeah, don't go visit this website. Don't go do this instead. And, you know, and eventually you listen to them for a while and maybe you go about it and do the same thing for a while. But then there's always that one point where it's like, you know what? I'm just going to go look and see for myself. And then when you look and you see for yourself, it's probably not the same as what everybody explained it as. And that's what I started to discover from a lot of different uh, individuals or a lot of different people as I started to talk to more people eventually or again start to do a lot more reading start to do a lot more exploring you know that was that little edge mm. that I needed yeah no I, like I'll hear people complain about like Polygon or something and I'm like exactly hey, well, why don't you like Polygon and I and I will I, I will push back and say well what is it about Polygon you don't like and it's like and they'll say oh I, I don't like the whole social justice warrior kind of taste I'm like well if that's if that's the view that they're looking at those games in then it might not be the view for you but like your open malice of the site um, is just kind of leaving you more closed-minded. You can take what they say and and take you know the feedback that they have and say, okay, I've I've read it, I've taken it in. It's not for me, but you don't need to just completely like blank blank it out. There was a um, at Pack South. I was like standing in line for a Chipotle, and um, and and a couple like a couple guys behind me. I think I was even wearing an IGN shirt, mm. uh, and a couple guys behind me are talking about how, like, oh, I never go to IGN anymore because they just rank everything as an eight point five, and I'm like, okay, no, they don't. Um, but, <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't pick the fight, but I'm just, I'm sitting there thinking, like, I mean, that's that's a guy that, like, nothing I could say in this moment is gonna get through to him anyway. He's already written, like, written the site off because he has this notion in his head of IGN thinking every game is, uh, is, is. Uh, what is what is an eight like a great um on their scale so you know you know what the problem with that is though and i really think it could be summed up in one sentence is that there's this very big vindictive nature against the games media and i find it more now over like the last like year or two because obviously with things like gamergate that happened this this whole thing now where it's become a fad 
you know, to kind of, it's almost like, uh, like you said, malice or slighting some of the bigger outlets for one reason or another. And, and I don't say that as someone that wants to be part of a bigger outlet and stuff. It's just, you, you're on the outside and you're on the side looking at this stuff. And like when you have people that think like that, where they're not basing their opinions or their stance on something from experience or whatnot, they're basing it off of what somebody else told them. They're basing it off yeah. what they're hearing from another spot, you know, that might may or may not be wrong or whatever. And it's just, you know, it, it's amazing to me where that's become like a fad or a hype type of thing or hype train. Uh, over time because people think it's like it's okay to be closed-minded or closed off to something rather than go and explore because at some point like again that that was like a big thing with my earlier years as i was starting to learn more about the industry and stuff where you just didn't do or you didn't go to certain places and again once i finally you know just had that moment where i just wanted to explore and actually open up my mind a little bit and actually get the answers that i thought i was looking for like that then i had a much more broader spectrum and a much more open-mindedness to you know what was out there as part of the industry it was again it wasn't so black and white and stuff and it wasn't so vindictive for one reason or another yeah and i i, I again we touched on a little bit earlier i think a lot of it does come to like social media and it's like you have 140 characters to to say your thing um, it's impossible to have conversations back and forth on social media, really, because um, you're trying to con- con- uh, trying to have those conversations basically a sentence at a time. And so people throw their opinion out there, and their opinion is right, and they're not they're not going to be receptive to. There's no discussion. Um, and yeah, and I like there, there there will be times where I will get into or, like somebody will challenge me, and I'll say, "Hey, like, do you mind if we slide this into DMs because I'm not." I can't, I can't have this conversation 140 characters at a time. It's not, it's not a good use of my time. It's not a good use of your time, and we're going to end up cross talking a lot. So, um, so like when I do kind of come across um, people who are looking to challenge me in that, and it's it's people that like I know that if we, I know I know that we can have this conversation. If it's just somebody who like slips into my mentions, doesn't follow me or anything, like I I tweeted out. Um, because uh, Kotaku had an article basically saying like um, Konami's pr- uh, profits are up 230 uh, percent year over year or something, and I was like, "This is this, like as great as it might feel to just tweet out hashtag fuck Konami. It clearly has nothing to do with their business model, or they and they don't care." Is basically like the effect of my tweet. And this guy who just kind of sits on the fuck Konami hashtag. Um, like came up in my mentions today, basically being like, "Well, I mean, their profits are up now, but they're totally gonna fall when such and such happens." I'm like, <laughs> I, I look at the guy. I'm like, "Does this person? Do I even know who this person is?" Nope. They like they're just an angry person on online who wants to say their wants to vent their piece. And it's like, whatever. Like, I I appreciate that you are passionate about this, but you're not worth my time to try and like change your mind on. And, and educate you on like the business realities of a situation, um, and, I, and it's those kinds of things. Like I've gotten, like on the rare instance where I'm, I, I will like go out of my way to, you know, like just shit talk the all of the nonsense of Gamergate. Somebody who still sits on that will, um, and I won't even like use a hashtag. They'll just like search Gamergate and they'll come pop into my mentions. I'm like, like get a life. <laughs> like I, 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 I like I envy how pathetic your life must be to to just sit on that and like go bother people that you don't know you will never meet you don't care about uh it's it, it is like it is the downside of our social media um nature I mean, it, like you can be incredibly connected and we can have conversations with developers online and stuff over over a handful of tweets where we can say you know thank you for this um and have 
like those positive interactions, but we will also have these like super shit interactions because everybody has an opinion now and everybody's opinion as you, as, as I think we both kind of touched on everybody's opinion is right. Today. And you know something, and, it's really more now this day and age, people like to deal with absolutes and it's either one extreme yeah. or to the other. And I had that, like when I did my first IGN review and I did, I gave it a score that I gave it, I gave it a 5.5 out of 10. Uh, a lot of the fan base and stuff for the particular game just did not like what I had to say. And they, they immediately, they, the, the, throwing out the things like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's clearly not an Naruto fan. You know, he's clearly not this and that and whatnot. Meanwhile, I wrote the guy for the game at the same time. Or, you know, or was very open about being a fan and getting the opportunity to do that and stuff. Like, again, people like dealing with absolutes. You either love something or you hate something. There's no in-between. There's no gray area. You got to be either black and white. And that's a very dangerous thing to be in because... Again, you can't, obviously, as, a, as an industry, we can't grow because if there's no conversation, there's no exchange of ideas, there's no melting pot like that. But at the same time, if people are so closed off to one thing or the other, you know, you're never going to get that, that mixture of stuff. You're never going to get those good conversations. You're never, you're not, never going to get that cultural diffusion, really, is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, uh, and I've had these conversations with, um, with uh, my friend Alex O'Neill, Rational Passions, um, uh, recently because he loved final fantasy 15 and i enjoyed parts of it but i overwhelmingly like disliked a lot of the game's shortcomings and uh and we had conversations kind of offline because he was he was posting a lot of stuff of how he feels like he's personally being attacked if he goes out and says that he likes final fantasy 15 when like the narrative is like chapter 13 is terrible and yeah and he likes chapter 13 or something like that and i'm like and I, I and it's it's something that now I want to I, like I always want to try and be more more cognizant of and more careful of is that I'm never if I if I dislike something I'm never attacking another person for liking it exactly um, like I mean the 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 DC movies are uh, are another like example that I went to last year like I hated Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and people like if I say that like people who are fans of those things think I am personally attacking them and I say no it like. I can hate this thing and I can think it has problems and I will defend why I think it has those problems. But if you disagree with that and you love it and you like cherish it, that's great. I am so happy for you in, in that experience. So like I would have conversations with Alex where I'm like, I love that you love this game. Like don't let, don't let me or anybody else who is shitting on this game, like taint your love of the game. Um, because that's the beauty of art is that you can have those different, um, perceptions. You can have, you know, I could go to the Mona Lisa and say, like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't, like, I think it's just a woman smiling. Why is this a big deal? Um, but other people are going to be, like, blown away by the intricacy, intricacies of, of the art. And, and I think video games, uh, it is, like, we are passionate about this, this medium. And I think sometimes that, like, that, that understanding of, like, it's okay to not like something gets lost on people it's okay it's okay for me to not like it and you to like it just fine that's great exactly. like I, I love that there is that spectrum the the most interesting games to me are those kinds of games where um where i can think it's terrible but somebody else loves it and then we can have a conversation of like well why do you love it help me understand why you love it and maybe i can see it a little bit better through your eyes and not think it's this terrible thing um uh and, and i think just because so much of what how we communicate um is in just very short doses and it isn't conversations um, i think a lot of that gets lost and that's where you get like everybody blowing up about no man's sky when 
think most people are probably fine with the game, but a very vocal portion of the community like completely blows it out of um, proportion and hijacks the narrative. Um, and and then you have everybody saying this is the biggest failure of, of I don't know how long. Um, it's like, eh, I mean, they all, I'm sure, made a ton of money, and I, I'm sure they're set for life now because of how well that game sold at launch. Mm. So, um, like, yeah, you can you can hate it, but, like, it's not a failure of a game. <laughs> there, there's not an absolute opinion on certain stuff. Again, with the, yeah. IGN just had this recently with Resident Evil 7. Like, it was a big hoopla at one point when Chloe Rag gave it a 7.7. You know, it was her opinion uh, inside a, a world of opinions where other people gave it, like, 9s and 10s and stuff. The, the thing is, is that, and what I notice as like a growing trend over the last couple of months is that people like to have the definitive opinion about something and you can't really do that. Like that, that's something that I don't think anybody's really qualified to really kind of like say about one thing or another. And it's, it's a very pompous and a very selfish thing to say about oneself. You know, I've met individuals in this industry you know, while they be, might be great in doing other things here and there, but like one of their biggest faults is that they go around saying that they're the, the they're the deciding factor or they're like the 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 penultimate kind of like opinion about certain stuff, especially about gaming. Like one of the biggest things I'll tell you, Trev, that I really hate about that I've ever heard being part of this industry or being a gamer for most of my life is that when somebody says like this is what makes you a real gamer. And like when I was younger, you know, really getting into the industry as, as I am now, uh, I would see and hear all these different people say like, oh, you're not a real gamer if you do this. You're not a real gamer if you do that. You're not a real gamer if you think this. You're not a real gamer if you haven't played that. And that used to piss me off so bad to like to, to the most extreme sense because I felt like I was trying to fill up the lease of a car. You know, just to be part of something that I enjoyed and such. And I saw so many people dealing with that. I was like, listen, you know, it's kind of like Bruce Lee's philosophy and stuff. Like there's, the, you know, you got to flow like water. It's like you got to be able to honestly express yourself and, and what you love and what you're a part of and such. And I feel like a lot of people seem to have forgotten that because when you're so caught up in like what's right and what's wrong by your standards and stuff, you don't become open-minded to what other people are like and you don't allow other people to express themselves honestly. And that's what I feel is a huge problem in our industry now, especially with a bunch of different individuals here and there. Because again, loss of exchange of ideas, everybody feeling like they're they're the they're the man or they're the the one person that everybody should go to for like the real the what's real and what's a real gamer, a real gamer talk and stuff. That I just was never a fan of that. Yeah, no, I and and the like what what I'm talking about of like it's okay that I don't like something and you do. I think I like I want to say at least like 95, 99% of us, there are some assholes I'm sure in the industry. Um, but I think like most of us have that implicit, like, this is my opinion. If you like it, it's fine. But we don't like vocalize that every time. And because people aren't seeing that they, they just see like that person gets paid to put their opinion out there on the internet, or that person has a video with their opinion on it. So, um, uh, so they're speaking on behalf of everyone. It's like, most of us are like, no, we're, we're speaking on behalf of ourselves exactly. um, and, and our singular experience of the thing. Your experience will be entirely different as in like every case of subjective, uh, you know, it's it, it, yeah, exactly. Everybody like anybody who, who goes there and uh, who goes to a site and says like, you need to just give me the facts or just give me the, the play by play. It's like, that's not, that's not a review. That's not critical thinking about a game. That's, that's giving you the, like the ESRB rating and saying, well, this game has um, violence and language in it. So there you go. Do you want to like, th now you know what's in this game, <laughs> make your decision on if you want to play it or not. Um, I mean, like with it, like one of the things that I'm, 
I will be curious to see because like uh, Bethesda, their, their new review policy. Um, I like, I am waiting and it's not like, it's not, I'm waiting and wanting this to happen, but like it will happen at one point where a bad game comes out from them and people will lose their shit um, because they pre-ordered it and they bought it day one before like other people were playing the game and, and giving their critical analysis and they're and like they're gonna blame everybody but themselves because they didn't wait for something else. Um, the 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 gamer is going to blame the angry gamer is going to um, blame the review sites for not having a review up in time. They're going to blame Bethesda for making a bad game, um, but they're not gonna blame themselves for waiting to say do other people like this game is this like is this considered a good game um uh and it's like it's gonna blow up in in a lot of people it it will lead to like another no man's sky kind of situation where um just hype gets built up too much and people um refuse to take ownership of the decision that they made to buy the game sight unseen no owning up to it Uh, no personal responsibility yeah um, and I think I think Bethesda openly coming out and saying we're not going to 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 get things. I think it is very much a like a business focused decision um, on their part because reviews might not help games, um, but they can they can very quickly and very easily hurt you know somebody buying a game. So if you can put off those until after you've already got all that pre order money, do it. Like it, video games these days now are very much in the same kind of boat as um, as movies, where it's like that opening week sales, that first month sales, just like an opening weekend at the box office, are what matter because that's what sets the tone um, for a game. And it becomes really hard if it start it limps out to really get momentum going, unless it is really something special. Um, and that's like I think we saw a lot of that last year in like reporting with. Everybody basically being like, oh, the AAA sales on this franchise and this franchise and this franchise are all down. Like, that became the narrative, and now they're having to fight and say, no, like, sales are fine. We're doing fine on this game. Um, You know, it's selling just what we wanted it to, but it's – no, it's not – it because it's a more crowded market, it didn't sell as much when it was the only thing that came out three years ago or something like that. So – but, like, everybody – like – Titanfall 2 was was a prime example where people were like, oh, that game's on sale. It must be failing. It's like, that game is on sale just like Battlefield is on sale that you're praising. Um, you're just choosing to highlight Titanfall being on sale to fit your narrative. Mm. Don't do that. <laughs> like, look at the whole look at the whole scope of things. Um, was, uh, th- like, that was that was one of the things that was, like, bugging me last year was, was whenever that got brought up of, like, oh, it's, I mean... Every other game is also on sale for the holidays, but I'm going to pick on this one because I think this other game is better. Um, uh, it's like, okay, like, <laughs> it go, goes to what you're saying. Like, my opinion is right, and it's the only one because I'm giving you this one particular piece of information um, and and kind of pushing everything else to the side. So, uh well, we kind of we kind of went off on a on some random gaming history to, to talk industry stuff for a little while. But um, uh, one last question I have for you, kind of in uh, uh, looking at your um, uh, your your history in in the industry, um, and it's it's a very selfish one, being uh, as somebody who is 
trying to, to get in and do do more. What is your advice for somebody coming into the industry? Um, be it my, my someone like me who's who is starting to get a little established, but or anybody else who's like, I want to do that. Um, what are your kind of uh, your your pointers as to like this is what you should do? This is the the Jake James Lugo philosophy. If there's one thing I could say, and I feel like everything that one would constantly think of, you know, to to advise someone that wants to get in part, you know, be part of games media, be part of just the gaming industry in one way, whether it's you know the critique side, whether it's the creative side, whether it's the business side, there's a million and one different things that are already out there that anything you could think of is possibly already taken by somebody else. But one of the things I feel like that doesn't get a lot of credit and doesn't get emphasized as much, and it really should, and I've seen some of the guys that kind of funny talk about it here and there and a couple other places here and there like at polygon and kotaku they mentioned it but nobody really puts an emphasis like an underline on it is sacrifice and i felt like you know even now i'm not my, my one of my goals obviously is to work for ign that that's where i felt like you know over the years i felt like that's where eventually i'm hopefully one day going to go and it's because i've been working towards it and in my eyes they're one of the higher points they're one of the best in the industry they're probably the best in the world for our style type of stuff you know again grand scheme of the world and other things that are out there they're probably much bigger outlets here and there but my point is is that no matter where you want to go you're going to have to sacrifice a lot and especially if you want to be good if you want to be part of like the intricacies and part of the better and more crazier and more phenomenal parts of whatever you want to be a part of you're going to have to sacrifice a lot you're going to have to sacrifice your time you're going to have to sacrifice your patience you're going to have to sacrifice your effort you're going to have to sacrifice your fun times as well as everything else here and there perfect example because this just happened today that it got announced kind of funny live three just got announced okay it's happening june 3rd or whatnot and the tickets go on sale march 1st for the third year in the row i'm probably gonna have to miss kind of funny live and the reason being is because e3 is right around the corner and you know obviously someone as a freelancer and stuff i have to save up to go out to e3 and such and that's a that's a thing that in all essence because obviously i've wanted to go out there and hang out with you guys for a long time uh you know it sucks to have to miss it but it's still also a sacrifice towards something greater. That's something that's bigger towards bigger in the grand scheme of that. It's going to have a major impact in my life. And I've always wanted to be part of that, uh, that, that, uh, that whole circle, that whole kind of like, you know, the pandemonium of E3, the, the be in the trenches with everybody working it and be part of that conversation, be part of what's happening down there. So in order to do so, I have to sacrifice a lot of other things. Earlier today, I was doing the four honor guide for IGN. I, that's literally all I was doing all day was making the collectibles page for uh, the IGN guide of for honor, because not only am I being, you know, put on, put on as a freelancer to do that, but also that's a lot of stuff that's got to get done for a lot of other people. That's the way I, at least I look at it is that I'm not only sacrificing my time to get ahead and actually get into the industry I want to be a part of, but also sacrificing my time to help do something that a lot of other people are going to get something out of and such. The example I was using before earlier was kind of funny live that again, I'm not going to get to go because I have to go to E3. You know, I can't do two both trips. That's a lot. Of, again, that's a lot of financial burn that anybody would be able to go through. You know, if anybody could, they probably would. But you got to pick and choose sometimes. And at least in my case, even though it's the third year, I'm going to miss kind of funny live. I still am at least working towards the career I want to build up for my industry or at least for my life in this industry. Uh, you know, even, you know, other things like, you know, sometimes you just got to sacrifice again, going out just with friends or you got to sacrifice going out and buying something in order to save up for an upcoming trip. You know, be, going out and buying like an extra console like the switch is coming out in a couple weeks right now i'm probably not going to get a switch at launch because granted it's like 300 plus you know whatever else you got to get with it in order to make the thing run how it's supposed to run but like you know again 
with E3 coming up and, and other stuff that I have to get ready for, again, PAX is right around the corner and I finally was able to do my stuff for PAX. You know, those are the sacrifices that one makes when you're trying to make something special out of something you're passionate about. And no matter what the sacrifice is, you're going to be willing to do it. Or at least you're going to take that step forward to, towards being willing to do it if you want to get to the point at which you want to be at. Yeah, no, that's, that's, it's a great point um, hitting on sacrifice because I, I definitely think of like the time that uh, like I, I it um, one of the most kind of um, uh, concrete examples it hit me where I basically was like okay I've I've sacrificed what I was doing in theater for video games um, and trying to cover video games was there was a show I wanted uh, that I that I really enjoyed the script on and and wanted to audition for um, last year uh, early last year and uh, and I was looking at it and I was like I signed up for an audition I was like. This, it's been a little while since I've acted. I, this will be a good chance for me to get back into it. But then I'm, I'm doing Trevor Trove and I'm writing every day and, and trying to um, uh, trying to keep that uh, going. And it was like, I, am I going to be able to do four to five hours of rehearsal and still do that and have my day job and, and make, like keep all those commitments? And at the time I had a girlfriend. And so it was like, I don't I I can't. I can't add this one more thing that I want to do on. So I like, I had to call up the, the director and say, Hey, I'm so sorry for, for, you know, for, for doing this, but I got to cancel my audition. You know, I might, I might never, never have been caught cast anyway, but it was a, I self opted out because I was like, I gotta, I gotta give that up. That's not where my passion is right now. I got to do the gaming stuff. And on the, on the gaming side of things, the fact that I went to um, every every American PAX last year and, and RTX and kind of funny live. It was like, Oh, that's a lot of money I put into traveling that I could have put into a down payment for a house or something. And, you know, be, be adult and, and mature and stuff <laughs> instead of, um, uh, traveling every, every couple months for, for all those trips. But it was very much, I, I like want to, I'm sacrificing. Um, but I, I, and I, I see it, I always see it as, and this is what I've, uh, I've said basically since, um, since I, uh, uh, paid at the Patreon level to go and be on the games cast um, for kind of funny. That's it's always been an investment um, in myself um, to see, you know, if, if I'm really passionate about this, I need to put my money where my mouth is basically and say, okay, like, can I do it? Let me go see, let me go sit on this podcast with two of these guys who are giants in the industry and see if I can hold my own. Um, and if I had crashed and burned uh, on, on that games cast, I would have been like, okay, yep, tried it, not for me, cool. But um, you did it. <laughs> but I, I, I did well enough. Um, the like the best things that I was seeing after doing that were people in the in the YouTube comments thinking I was already in the industry and one of their friends just because of my my very first podcast I ever did was that one, <laughs> and uh, and and apparently I I fit in just fine. So I was like, okay, yeah, that's that's a good sign. I want to keep keep doing this, and uh, and so it was like, okay, now I'm doing everything every day, but now I need to get get myself in front of people and, and start actually making those connections and meet developers and meet industry personalities because um, that first year I, so I was in San Francisco for kind of funny live. I was in San Francisco for a month later for the IGN house party for beyond 400 and unlock 200. And then I was back for, for PSX that um, uh, in December. And by the third trip, people from IGN were recognizing me because I'd been like by the offices each time and so I was like, okay, like keep 
to to keep that going i want to keep in front of them and so i want to go to the things that they go to so if it is like they're at a pax i'm going to try and make my way to a pax and and that very directly is what led to me getting to do freelance work for them is is going to um at pax east last year going to the ign party and i saw you there i remember that yeah sacrificing the uh the kind of funny party that night um for the ign party and sitting down and talking with goldfarb because they were looking for a new like full-time news person at the time and i was like the, i like i'm looking for an in um you know I, I i submitted a resume i'd love to, to talk to you about it and he was basically like write you know write news every day and send me your three you know, send me a few submissions um for the next like write every write news every day send me submissions after two weeks um and and we'll go from there they ended up giving the the position to jonathan dornbush who's a great like fit for them and i i don't fault that at all and then fast forward to pax west after the the one of the ign panels he he comes up and and uh, he's like oh yeah we're gonna do like a little impromptu meet and greet thing at at you know uh, a bar down the street tonight you know come on by and at that bar he's like hey i'm so sorry you know we got swamped with um uh you know with e3 and gamescom and stuff but um send me your information we'll get you set up in the system as a freelance news writer um you know after the show and i was like awesome because i hadn't like i hadn't even been pushing for that um uh it was like i it, it certainly like i had i had talked to a couple people like hey i'd love to you know come and do a preview or something if if there are those opportunities um uh and and so when he when he was like yeah like go ahead and uh and we'll get you set up like that was like a, a lot of those sacrifices i had made that was like the culmination of like this is what i've been working towards um, exactly. there's still there's still a long way to go and i'm going to keep making sacrifices to try and get to where i want to get to um and something like like i i uh i wanted to try and do rtx sydney and um and i like i had the money for it and 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 whatnot but i was like vacation time is really what was killing me is like i could have taken the vacation time for rtx sydney and gone down there and just and been like world traveler and it would have been really cool and and to get to go to australia um, and ultimately I was like, but if I do that, I probably will have to severely cut down the time I met kind of funny live or, um, or E3, if I want to try and do E3 this year. Um, and so I was like, uh, all right, I'm not going to do a week in Australia. Like I wanted to originally. Oh, well, um, you live and you learn and maybe I'll still make it there someday. Um, and, and yeah, kind of funny live, uh, three gets announced today. Um, I'd already kind of had a, a good idea that that was where the dates were going to fall. And I was like, Oh, it's going to suck because it's basically going to be that. Um, and then like a week later is E3. And then a couple weeks after that is probably going to be beyond 500 based on the timeline of, of events. Um, but I'm fortunate enough in that I live in Arizona and it's, you know, a hundred dollar flight to get to and from San Francisco or something. So it's not, it's not coming from the other side of the country like you are. Yeah. Um, or I can and I can like I can drive and and crash with a friend in LA for E3 if if I end up going to that. So um so it's it it is like I totally get that you are having to make that sacrifice and it sucks um uh, cuz uh, obviously I'd love to see it at at all of these things. Um, yeah, exactly. That's the thing like and it's a hard pill to swallow. That's yeah. that's what separates the adults from the children. 
on, on anything, especially in our industry, is when, when you could take that, you know, that, that sacrifice, when you could swallow that pill, when you could come to that understanding, come to that, that acceptance, like either you're not going to go someplace or, you know, you have to kind of like, you know, withdraw from this place in order to go do something else like that. That feeling of FOMO, because I know the guys were talking about FOMO not too long ago. That's a real thing. And oh, yeah. especially for all of us, like, again, we, uh, between us and everybody else that we see, like at PAX or at PSX that just passed not too long ago, that's a real thing. And that 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 really separates from the, the men from the boys or the or the women from the girls, because those those are the types of things that you come to, to acceptance for in order to go towards something greater or go to something even better down the line or even towards something else that might be just as good. You know, you're you're investing in yourself and sometimes you got to make the sacrifices in order to actually make something even better happen down afterwards. Yeah. Well, excellent. Um, I think that is a, a great and thorough rundown of your gaming history, and I'm I'm so glad because it's it's not often that I get to have somebody on here that does ha- that has kind of been doing the industry stuff for a while. Um, so I love your perspective on that in particular, and getting to kind of because we've I mean we've talked about it a little bit at at PAX East last year, but um, but getting to hear kind of a more fleshed out version of your story um, uh, certainly something I've been eager to to kind of uh, cool. uh, sit down with you and, and chat about for a while now. Um, so so thank you for for running through that. Anytime. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll dive into topic two. Your favorite game? Hit me. Mm. Street Fighter. Let's talk about Street, Street Fighter. Fighter. Let's okay, because 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 uh, granted, let's do with an asterisk here because we we talked about this before about Kingdom Hearts. I was like, you know what? No, you had a little bit too much Kingdom Hearts. Let, let's <laughs> let's let's hit them hard. Let's hit yes. them in the face hard. So Street Fighter. That that's like you know one of my favorite series again amongst others and such. Uh, the 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 time frame usually for me where I really gravitate towards is Super Street Fighter Two Turbo, which is again HD remix for people that are just you know got into it more recently. And Third Strike, and then obviously Capcom versus SNK Two. Those are like really my three my triathlon or my triforce of like the games that really culminate the the series for me. Yeah. So what is about uh, Street Fighter that that hit you that got that got you hooked from a young age? We talked a little bit about it in your gaming history that Street Fighter Two was one of those early games you played on Genesis and and on uh, on Super Nintendo when you would visit friends and stuff. Um, it's certainly like Street Fighter Two is certainly the standout I remember playing um, uh, growing up and and like having uh, all of the move sets memorized and and pouring tons and tons of time into to my super nintendo so what was it that that drew you in and kept you uh it was really the funny thing is when i first got into street fighter i didn't like it initially like that that's the thing when i when you're younger and you're trying to do the fireball motion and stuff it's a little bit tougher and it gets a little bit annoying as opposed to like Mortal Kombat, which is just directional inputs oh yeah i mean admittedly my favorite part was just always beating up the cars (laughs) Or, or, and that too, uh, the personality. Mashing, mashing barrels and stuff. Yeah, it's the part. It's really the thing besides, like you know, the fighting and the competition, the competitive nature against other people, and even the computer that that really hooks you in and stuff. It's really the personality of Street Fighter. I felt like the reason why Mortal Kombat and and uh, Street Fighter really stood out amongst a lot of people is because there's so much personality in the fighters, in the environments, in the music. I think it's really the music that does it for Street Fighter for a lot of people because you remember those iconic songs. Fun fact. Yoko Shinomura, the woman who did the song for the the music for Kingdom Hearts, did the songs and the music for Street Fighter Two back in the day. Like it all comes full circle. But nice. really, that's what really makes that personality stand out. It's the music, it's the aesthetic, it's the the different unique looks for the fighters and stuff that really kind of get people gravitating towards Street Fighter as a franchise. 
Excellent. So what are some of your, your standout fighters? Like, who would you go to? Who do you gravitate towards in some of those earlier games? Oh, for Street Fighter 2, again, I played a lot of the cast. I mean, it's been many years, you know, that I played so pretty much the entire roster. But, like, if I had to choose, like, top three, obviously Ryu. It's it's basic. You know, he's he's pretty much the, the Capcom's finest, I call him. He's, like, the mascot of that series. But also E-Honda, you know, the hand slap. Everybody played with the hand slap. Everybody oh, yeah. E-Honda e and Chun-Li were the, like, I can just yeah. button mash? Okay, I'm just going to do e those. Exactly. And, and I mean, you know, the funny thing is, is, like, for a long time, I didn't really get into charge characters. So E-Honda was always kind of like a funny one where again you can mash like punches and do the hand slap but like even besides him if i really had to be you know to, to choose one it would also be fei long because fei long because of being a bruce lee fan you know you associate well what is it that character with him and such and it was just always a cool notion like that but as far as like actually playing is concerned i would have to say balrog you know a boxer you know again again another charge character but the fact that you're just throwing punches you're not throwing fireballs and stuff and he has like all this stuff where he hits you hard and such was pretty damn cool for me and now again that's just in the early days and now at this point i play with all the characters you know for street fighter 2 third strike i would have to say akuma obviously a big one ken you know obviously people know about the beast daigo and the whole uh, evil moment 27 which is like the big parry that he does you know he parries the entire super of chung lee super so that's that's pretty insane. It's moments like that that make that game really cool, and then obviously the music and such. But also, uh, besides him, besides Akuma and Ken, I would have to also say maybe for a third strike character, uh, was it Hugo? Because he was like the Zangief of that game. He's a big giant grappler. He was originally from Final Fight, so it was a lot of crossover, cross-pollination between the Capcom franchises. That was also pretty damn cool. But then when you get into like CVS, which is Capcom versus SSK2, you know, you got both Street Fighter and King of Fighters characters. So it's like, mind blown at that point for a fan of like you know 2d fighters so i would have to kind of gravitate towards like obviously kyo from king of fighters uh joe hiragashi which is kind of like a ryu wannabe that's like a muay thai fighter at that point and then also obviously you got your ken and your ryu and such on the street fighter side but also i would throw in there ryo from king of fighters as well again he he was kind of like a a parody on Ryu and Ken from the Street Fighter series, but for the KOF saga. But the way that they control in CVS 2 is always kind of like fascinating to me. It was always a fun game to play. Excellent. Uh, and so you, uh, it, over over time, you've gotten much more um, uh, kind of invested in the the fighting game scene. Um, and it's it's definitely one of those things that um, that has eluded me. It, even I mean, even the fighting game genre uh, mm -hmm. itself. Like I played. Um, Street Fighter 2 and I played like those early Mortal Kombat games and then at some point I don't know if it was just because like I didn't have those people to play I didn't have anybody to play against um, or because we shifted to Smash or something like that with my uh, among my circle of friends those games just kind of fell off the the radar for me I tried getting back into to Street Fighter with like uh, Street Fighter 4 I think mm -hmm. um, like I don't even remember if it was uh, I guess it was yeah, like it was. I picked it up like when I got my PS3 because I was like Street Fighter. Oh, I like I, I remember that series. So I tried it. I probably put like half an hour in. Was like this. These games got way more com complicated. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, and so like I I put it down and and never really went back to it. Um, and like I was like I don't know most of these characters anymore. I like I'm so I I'm very lost. So what is it um, about fighters? Um, and, and Street Fighter in particular that um, kind of kept you coming back so that you didn't have like um, that um, that kind of gap 
uh, of knowledge because uh, I like I've, I've come across the same thing in like sports games where I'll try and go back to a sports game and it's like oh these games got way more complicated now this this must be what it feels like if somebody played like Super Mario Brothers and tries to jump into Call of Duty um, and <laughs> and that's it uh, it's it's it definitely feels overwhelming kind of um, when you missed out all of the iterative stuff so um, uh, so assuming you did stick through kind of uh the the genre all throughout what was it that kind of kept you um uh with it and and kept you coming back i think you hit the nail on the head i think it's the environment it's your friends it's it's the people that you play those games with and it's funny you mentioned smash brothers because a lot of people went through that exact same thing because with smash brothers as opposed to just two people you could have four which means you could have a party. You could have like six or seven friends over and everybody could rotate on it and you could get bring snacks and stuff and you could bring dip and everything. Yeah. But the point is, you know, it's the environment. It's the type of people that you play those games with. You cannot play a game like Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat or Soul Calibur or Tekken and stuff alone. Granted, we do have the internet now these days and we're able to play our games online but it's nowhere near the same as having other people around you within the vicinity playing local play or playing like rotation round robin and stuff it's nowhere near the same the really those games were made because of the competitive nature and anybody that that uh, will tell you that has been part of that arcade scene that has been part of that tournament scene whether they're going to evo whether they're going to wednesday night fights whether they're going to the battlegrounds you know going to neutral grounds over in new york city and all these different places it's all about being around those people and being around that environment that is why they say that the fighting game community is so uh homegrown and like they're always trying to stay true and they're trying to stay smash mouth here and there and there's a lot of other reasons that maybe that's a problem too but really the reason why those games have endured is because of those communities because of those people getting together and playing those games games like uh street fighter 2 turbo or super street fighter 2 turbo uh that are like 20 30 plus year old games have endured and are still relevant because of those people that are hardcore because of those scenes and stuff it's very difficult to get into fighting games when you're only playing alone you can't you can't do it it's almost nigh impossible it's very impossible to get into something like Marvel vs. Capcom 2, which is like a crazy game in of itself, and play it alone and expect that you're going to get the most out of it, because you're not. Because you're not going to have those other people. You're not going to have those hype moments, those clutch moments against other players. And I'm not talking about just playing for money. I'm not just talking about playing for uh, top 16 in tournaments and stuff. I'm talking about for that, those crazy moments where you feel like, oh, something just ridiculous just happened. It's like watching a football game. It's like, imagine having the Super Bowl every single day. Like, how crazy and how ridiculous that could get, and how crazy the fandom and how crazy the players can get in in those moments like that imagine that that same type of level of hype but applied to a fighting game when you're playing all the time that's what really makes the spark of those games and that charm for street fighter and again i could say the same thing about mortal kombat street fighter again besides the personality and stuff it's really that scene about being around those people that have the same type of affinity for those characters now on the flip side of that though the thing that Street Fighter has an advantage over things like Mortal Kombat and even Tekken to an extent is the other forms of media. And the reason why I consider myself a hardcore Street Fighter fan is not because I go to tournaments a lot, not because I compete like that. Even though I have been to places like Evo and stuff, it's because I follow the stuff like the anime, the Street Fighter 2 V anime series that ran for a while. Uh, the Street Fighter 2, the animated movie that Tim and Nick, not too long ago, they talked about in one of their videos and stuff. Uh, the Street Fighter Alpha, Alpha and Alpha Generations movies, the manga, the Udon comic you know all these different things that are outside of the games and the art books from capcom you know these are all fascinating things they get really deep into the lore the narrative the storytelling the characters the aesthetic the look and the world of and the universe of street fighter that's what to me was so appealing to me about that about that series 
Of course, we can't forget the Jean-Claude Van Damme film. Yeah, well. the, Raul Julia. <laughs> Raul, Raul Julia. Julia. Raul Julia is the only dude in, in the history of any like iteration of live-action Street Fighter that had the balls to put on the actual bison suit. So the man is immoralized just from that in and of itself. <laughs> he is like the the bright, shining moment of that turn. <laughs> and then, and then uh, we got Legend of Chun-Li, and it's like, ah, you messed yeah. it up. <laughs> and and what like Chris Klein was in that movie or something like that? I remember I remember He's a seeing Scottish Bison. He's like what? Like <laughs> I remember seeing that like um, them rebooting that and like following it along like on IGN or something like that and being like, oh my god, why? Like this does not look good at all. And admittedly, like I had like I do have a a fond place in my heart for that first Street Fighter movie for the terrible Mortal Kombat movies um, because of the place and time that like. Mm-hmm. I would just watch those on repeat um, uh, on, like, VHS and stuff uh, growing up because, like, that was, like, it, for the in the same vein that I loved, like, wrestling growing up was because, I like, I saw that and I saw the, the, the dexterity and the athleticism of, like, wanting to be, uh, like, a fighter or a wrestler from those and just, like, loving the choreography of those films for all of the other crap that's going on in it. Exactly. Um, uh, and and the absurdity of John Claude Van Damme being all American guile and and all that stuff it was it was like it still stood out and like holds a near and dear place um, in my in my childhood even if I had already moved on from the games at that point it was still like uh, it you know say, like Super Mario Brothers the movie too like I they are definitively bad I can totally Horrible. see that but I still like I will watch them every now and then just be like yeah like. This is definitely bad, but it still brings, like, a smile to my face from, like, the rest of the world at least giving, like, this medium that I love a shot to say, hey, like, we want to try and legitimize it by making a movie of it, um, regardless of how good or bad it's going to be. Um, and, and Street Fighter is certainly one of those where it's like, oh, yeah, like, Raul Julia. It, it, is, it is so sad that that is, like, one of Raul Julia's final, like, I think um, that is his last performance. movie. Yeah, I think that was his last because it was, like, that and Adam's family were, were what I knew him from, basically. And, and, uh, and yeah, it was, like, that, that is, is his, like, swan song. It's like, <laughs> like, it's a great performance. And he puts, he, like, he definitely goes for it and, and, and makes it as cheesy as like he chews all the scenery in that movie um but it's like ugh, it's it sucks that like that's the thing that's the last thing he did um uh and and all the all like like that's the movie that killed him no <laughs> wow. um uh um uh, and and yet like John Claude Van Damme's career continues on for at least a couple more years until like they stopped letting him do things too. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, but no, I, I and I've never gotten into any of the the kind of the other um, uh, stuff outside the uh, the series. So, um, uh, but I am like aware of kind of the the richer world, the richer lore outside of um, outside of the games in particular. But even like the games in particular have have grown and added stories above and beyond what they were like in super street fighter two kind of mode where it was like, okay, like you fight through everybody and then you maybe get like one scene of dialogue or something that says like, Oh yes. Like Chun-Li saying now I can like go back to being a normal girl or something. My father is avenged or whatever her story was. 
Um, I always saw like the Mortal Kombat series as having a little bit more fun with with that, and, definitely, and, and them having like a, a grander story. But then I did like when I did come back to Street Fighter Four and saw that like Guile has like a friend like with Charlie that he's like Charlie out, Nash, yeah, Char- yeah, that he's out avenging. I was like, oh, that's like way more story than I ever remember from from these these games. So uh, I can appreciate that they they have kind of built out this lore, um, even if it didn't. If it, even if it all happened without me, um, and the the series kind of moved on, um, so what are what are some uh, in in like following the scene, um, what like what would you say makes for um, good players versus bad players uh, in in like the competitive scene? If you're talking about like competitive like tournament play and stuff, it's usually the people that put in a lot of the time learning characters and learning matchups. Not just learning the characters that they're playing, but learning what the other characters are going to do against them and how to counter that or how to avoid that or how to adapt and how to change play styles. Those are what usually change... Uh, was it kind of like, you know, disparage the good players from the bad players? Like, everybody hears stuff about Daigo. Okay, obviously Daigo, huge, phenomenal player, won many tournaments, many Evos, has done a ton of stuff. If you go and you look at Daigo's track record over, like, an extended period of time, even though he's still a phenomenal tournament player, Daigo's not the most perfect player out there, even though he's almost evangelized to some extent because of, like, the parry and, like, all these other stuff. Capcom gets a little, has a little bit of fun with that sometimes, a little bit too much fun. But there's, you know, there's a variety of more players that are out there, especially with games like Street Fighter 4, Street Fighter 5 now. Uh, arguably, very, very soon, we're going to get Ultra Street Fighter 2 Turbo uh, at yeah. one point on the Nintendo Switch. That's going to bring a whole new scene and a whole new pool of players into the mix, into the competitive scene and stuff. And you're going to see a lot of different avenues, a lot of different gray areas of different types of players that are both good and bad, depending on what they do and how they approach not only the tournament scene and the tournament environment, but how they approach different st- uh, stuff with their play style, depending on the characters that they're using as well as also who they're going up against mm-hmm. so it very much is like um uh, like i think of it now as like um chess and it is knowing what your opponent's going to do knowing trying to trying to be inside your opponent's head 10 steps ahead um so that you know i need to be this far away from this so i can parry this move or so i can try and go for this low kick or whatever um well, in yeah, fighting it's... games, fighting games is called frame data. That frame yeah. data, the way the way that it works is that you know every move has a certain amount of starter frames, active frames, and cooldown frames. And within those frames, however many that there are with your character, is when you could actually be hit when you're hitting somebody, when you're kind of like you know following through, and you could actually can't do anything else. That's what a lot of that stuff you know comes into play. It's a lot of math and a lot of like knowing which moves are what depending on the character. At the same time, knowing and it's funny how you compare it to chess because I see that comparison a lot and a lot of people use that especially towards top level play but you gotta understand those guys that are top level play that are getting to those points and stuff they already know the ins and outs and the frame data and all these other nuances about their characters so the basic groundwork like the basic training of like going to the army is like already done and over with and that's from an extended period of time like playing the game playing those characters playing against other people over and over again before you get up to that high point where now it's a game of chess like okay what are you gonna bring to the table besides what I'm gonna bring to the table yeah so what would what would the analog be then or what like do you have a comparison for what the kind of the lower like the 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 not not the not the tournament competitive scene but like online play or or something you know ranked ranked play just in the game itself what um is is there kind of an analog there Uh, especially if you know uh you don't know your competitor um you you maybe just know 
the fighter that you're going up against um is there is there like good strategies bad strategies to kind of uh try and tackle that if you don't know who you're playing against well here's the thing i think that a lot of the stuff that you could say about you know local play real play when you're actually going to tournaments could actually still be applied to playing online online play gets a bad rap and the reason why it does is because online connections are horrible especially here in the united states compared to like someplace in japan which is a much smaller country they have much smaller distances that the the lines can travel through so they get better connections and stuff that's why a lot of the people that go to tournaments and stuff say that online play is not the best way to learn a competitive game especially if you want to be in that tournament scene you have to go to tournaments you have to be out there you have to play people in local play where again the connections and the reaction times are a little bit more immediate and they're a lot mm. more fluid and smooth compared to what you're going to experience online because internet connections they fluctuate you know online uh via wi-fi is not the same as online via ethernet cable there's a lot of different factors that come into play but if you're just going to be playing online and you just want you know you care about more about kicking butt against other people rather than the the vanity of like actually winning tournaments and stuff it's more about okay whatever character you're going to go up against they're going to be doing their own different type of stuff and you have to be ready for whatever is going to come at you at least in my opinion from my experience playing street fighter 5 over and over again and running into most of the same character over and over again like here and there or most of the same type of like characters people are playing online just for the points and stuff you know you have to be ready for whatever tools they're going to throw at you because there is going to be a lot of people that are very flow chart which means that they're going to be very repetitive and doing the same stuff over and over again that you see in other people and then you're going to eventually at some point run to that person that's going to be a little bit more adaptable that's going to be a little bit more unpredictable and stuff okay excellent um in terms of i know um like uh, Street Fighter Five was the first one where I've been like really uh, was the first Street Fighter release where I was really paying attention to the industry. And I remember it launched, um, uh, and and a lot of people were were underwhelmed by um, by what was there when the game came out. Um, has that has that kind of carried? They've they've added to it since, um, and I assume the game's in a much better place at this point. Or did it just lose a lot of people and and? Like with a Smash game, they're still just kind of hanging on to Street Fighter 4 or something. Well, here's the funny thing. I was actually talking about this with my friend Mike Martin, who's who's over at Yahoo oh, yeah. Esports. Yeah. We were, Bizarre we were doing, Mike. We, yeah. we, had a, yeah, we had a whole conversation about this, about Street Fighter 5. And Street Fighter 5 is a tale of like a lot of highs and lows, a lot of ebbs and flows. And it's like you ask anybody, like 100 different people, you're going to get 100 different answers. And at the beginning, Street Fighter 5 was a game that was straight up disappointing for a lot of different reasons. Capcom, like Mike told me, they were trying to market the game or trying to make a game that catered towards esports because that's becoming a growing thing now. It's not just the competitive scene like Evo and stuff. It's more like trying to be on the same level as like a, like a StarCraft or like a Dota or like a League of Legends type of thing where it grows to exponential lengths and such where anybody could get into it and anybody could play it, but it's very hard to master and such. With Street Fighter V, that game at launch it was very meager it didn't it didn't even have an arcade mode and it still doesn't you know to some extent it had a very shallow story mode which is again it was just like an afterthought and the reason why that was the case is because capcom wanted to get it out in time for the capcom pro tour which right. is like right before evo which is part of the circuit where you could go and you could play that game you could qualify for it and then you could go to evo to go compete in that game like that so over time we've gotten the story mode which i still think is not the best thing the best story mode in a fighting game right now belongs to Mortal Kombat X or belongs to Injustice or Mortal Kombat 9 to an extent you know Nether Realm Studios for all extensive purposes yeah but with Street Fighter 5 like I felt like you know Street Fighter as a series and Capcom as as a game maker their their strong point has never been their narrative 
with with a lot of their characters, a lot of their fighting games and stuff. You could say that about stuff like Power Stone. You could argue, argue the same thing with rival schools. You know, other Capcom fighters that are out there, Darkstalkers to an extent. Even the mashup and the versus games, they've never been high up strong on story. So this was like their first dive into it with Street Fighter V, and they kind of did it a little bit with Street Fighter IV, but even then, it was really haphazard, and it really was nowhere near the same level as Mortal Kombat 9 at the time, or even Tekken, for that matter. And I feel like Tekken has got a much more better handling on it. Same thing with Soul Calibur. But with Street Fighter V, a lot, the reason why people were really pissed off at Capcom uh, for the uh, the release of it and the way they handled it was because they felt like they 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 had invested a lot of time and they felt like they got a lot with Street Fighter 4. Even back in vanilla Street Fighter, the original release of that game on 360 and PS3, uh, leading through Super Street Fighter 4, uh, Super Street Fighter 4 AE, AE 2012, and then Ultra Street Fighter 4, you felt like you were getting so much content right from the very get-go and you didn't get that with Street Fighter 5. There was a lot of people that weren't really into the fighting game scene that dived in with Street Fighter four and they they had an expectation they had a, a benchmark with the type of stuff and the amount of content the amount of value they were getting from those games and even in all the iterations which has always been a capcom thing to do with all their fighting games you know add more content yeah. add update patch stuff change up the mechanics and the nuances of certain characters to change up the competitive environment and such with street fighter 5 you, you you're not getting those iterations number one but also you didn't feel like you had you didn't have a good benchmark or good starting point with the amount of content that you were giving to the common person it felt like for a lot of people myself included they were catering just to that competitive guy that goes to Evo and then shooing everybody else off to the side. And a lot of people really took that, you know, in a bad way and I don't blame them. Yeah. That's I remember I remember um it cuz it leaked like right before the first PSX, but it was basically announced at the first PSX that it was going to be a, a exclusive. PlayStation exclusive. And I remember thinking at the time I was like, okay, but like Capcom does this with like every game, so it'll be okay. Street Fighter Five will be a PlayStation exclusive, but then Super Street Fighter Five will be on like everything, and Ultra Street Fighter Five will eventually be on everything or something. And the fact that they didn't, that there hasn't been any new iteration, it has just been like season passes and stuff added added to that. Um, it definitely seems like a new a new approach to the the series um, from like everything that I've had growing up, like. I mean, yeah, there are, and they're still like with the Switch, they're coming out with yet another version of Street Fighter Two, um, and the it'll definitive be version. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, um, like in in the in the competitive scene, how uh, Street Fighter Two, the this new version, um, uh, stacks up against Street Fighter Five, um, and and kind of where. Um, like even even for me as an outsider who doesn't have any kind of investment, that is something. As soon as I saw that for Switch, I was like, "Oh, I'm, I will be really curious to see if they right a lot of the wrongs that happened with Street Fighter Five um, because they already have that like so much of that game like in their DNA. Um, they like it. They can't screw it up at this point, right? That's they've had it for twenty years or whatever. Well, here's the here's um, a funny point that you mentioned that the the there was other problems with Street Fighter Five that rub people the wrong way. Mechanical problems that like Street Fighter Five, and it's known at this point has the most input delay than any other fighting game that's ever been released in history. And the reason why is because normally, not counting online play, when you're just playing locally, you know, with a friend, local co-op or local versus and stuff, there's about a three to four frame delay between when you actually 
actually hit a button and what happens on screen. It's very instantaneous. It's milliseconds. It's almost yeah. like you feel like it's instantaneous, but it's really not. With Street Fighter V, it, when it first started and it first launched, it was an eight-frame delay. There's a big difference. And yeah. you don't see it, but you feel it when you're actually playing. And now, since be the beginning of since the launch, they actually minimized it down to, I think it's about six frames, give or take, here and there. Again, there's a lot of you know different reasons and details for that. But it still has the most input delay out of any other fighting game that's out there. And that was what really, not only just in the competitive scene, but hearing that and being someone casual and you hear something like that offhand, not knowing the nuances and the details and the other surrounding scenario about that, that could be a really bad thing for perception. And I turned off a lot of people to Street Fighter Five. Yeah. No, I, um, I, it's, that's why I think, like, I, I feel like which one... Which one is the Smash that everybody like stuck with? That was Smash uh, Melee. Smash that was Melee, Melee right? Mm -hmm. And then Brawl came afterwards, and people were like, "We don't." And like everybody this. flipped like, out. And we're, we're going back to we're going back to Melee, and that's like that's what I see happening with with this. Would be like, okay, they don't like people didn't people did like Street Fighter Five didn't resonate, so they're trying again now, um, uh, a year later, uh, and 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 we're gonna go back to old school and and give you. Um, you know the Super Street Fighter 2 Ultra HD blah 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 like the Kingdom Hearts level of Street Fighter naming convention now um, uh, and that's I, I I will be curious to see kind of um, how that shakes out in the competitive and in, in particular the fact that that one's on Switch um, that's coming like, out of their platforms hands down it, easily. yeah I, I, I gotta assume it is uh, and it's basically like uh, like it's that one because Street Fighter is locked to the PlayStation, so they're like, okay, well, it's Capcom wants to put something on on the new Nintendo console. Here's a here's a, a, a another port with an evil Ryu and an evil Ken on on uh, uh, of of a twenty year old game. Cool, um, and and I think there will be like a. I think it will draw people back in. I mean, it like it's the it is the one that has interested me the most, um, uh, just because like there is the nostalgia vibe to it. I don't know that I would, I will invest in it. Um, uh, even when I get a switch eventually, um, because it's just not typically my scene, but, um, I will be curious to see kind of, um, if like, if you have people that are playing, um, playing that with pro co pro controller versus the, the joy con versus like joy con and joy grip or whatever, and, or versus the handheld mode of it. Um, I'll be curious to see kind of what, what shape that, that scene takes um uh because it like it it seems to hit all of nintendo's buttons of making a game simpler again um which is i think something they've been doing since the wii of trying to minimize inputs and and really make it something that is more approachable for a wider more quote-unquote casual audience of uh of gamer that that might be overwhelmed by all of the frame analysis that is going into something like Street Fighter V, um, this game can potentially blend like the best of both worlds there. I think um, so. Yeah, I'm interested to see where where that where that takes the series and where they go from there. Um, do you think Street Fighter V has uh, still has like life to it in in the competitive scene, or like when Injustice comes out, that's gonna maybe knock it out or something? 
Here, here's the thing. The funny thing about Street Fighter V is that I feel like the people that were casual that, that jumped on in the beginning were burnt really badly, and they're probably never going to come back. Those are the same people that dived into Street Fighter IV when it first came out, and they stuck with it for a very long time. Remember, Street Fighter IV was the reason why everybody had a big resurgence for fighting games. That yeah. that was just that was a thing, a very big and loud thing that happens. This is why you got all these crazy stuff that was happening at EVO. You had Wednesday Night Fights that started popping up and other different things that were happening with fighting games and why other people started to check out other fighting games you know right alongside of it tekken mortal kombat the list goes on marvel versus capcom again huge deal that that's probably one of the reasons why marvel versus capcom 3 started becoming a thing and it got created at one point uh mm-hmm. the problem with street fighter 5 is that because all the casual people or the people that really are the reason why your product exists is because they buy the game and stuff even if they don't go out and compete and stuff the reason why I think it's a bad thing and it's not going to have as much kind of like momentum compared to what a lot of people would hope it'd be is because those people aren't coming back. So when you get games like Injustice, which is about DC superheroes fighting each other in a fighting game, which is like the Justice League game that was back on Sega Genesis, same idea, same premise, it's just with superheroes. Everybody loves superheroes and comic heroes, especially now this day and age and stuff. I feel like that's going to be a game that people are going to be more excited about to see, especially on its second iteration now, off of coming from a first game from NetherRealms, as well as also a very very successful comic series that people mm-hmm. could get into. There's a lot more reasons to get excited about Injustice than there is to get excited about Street Fighter V. I feel like there's more negatives and more other kind of like bad perception type of things that are about Street Fighter V than any other fighting game that's out there. Injustice, Mortal Kombat, Tekken 7's coming up right now and people are getting excited because there's a Street Fighter character in it, Akuma. That again, there are reasons to get excited about these other games, especially even now that Injustice had a beta. People were still getting reveals. People are really happy about that. I don't think people are really happy about Street Fighter V at this point. Yeah, it's it's effectively at this point a diehard. And how much are they gonna? How much longer are they going to support it for their their diehards to to keep coming out with new characters and rebalancing and and whatnot um, when they can maybe try something new or. Um, I mean, yeah, like even even like Marvel versus Capcom three, um, like when when that like debuted at uh, formally debuted again at PSX because because anytime you mix Capcom and PSX, apparently you're gonna get leaks. A lot um, of leaks because <laughs> that was again it was the same. It, like I I was having flashbacks when uh, when uh, Marvel versus Capcom three was leaking in the in the week ahead of uh, of. PSX was like this was this is how it all started for me <laughs> was like seeing the the leaks of Street Fighter Five right before my first PSX so I was like oh nostalgia um, uh, but yeah I think like I, I think you touch uh, uh, you touch on on a very salient point there of like superheroes that is a much wider mainstream thing now um, than it was back when I mean even you know, the last Marvel vs. Capcom or the first Injustice were out, like, we are inundated with superhero movies and, and culture and stuff, and so, um, like, I played the first Injustice uh, when it came to, to, like, a PS Plus or something and had a great time with it, and and that's probably the fighting game I've put the most time to in the last decade, mm-hmm. um, and I played through, like, a whole bunch of different fighters, and I was having a good time, like, enjoying that solely against myself, like, or, or, or against AI. I, like, I never went online with it, but I was, like, I was having fun fighting as these characters that that i kind of know a little bit about and the yeah the the storyline behind it that that we touched on with nether realms there is is uh is kind of a smarter choice um 
uh, and then Marvel vs. Capcom kind of tying into maybe the Marvel, the MCU a little bit, uh, at least in terms of like the character selection, uh, I think will appeal to the audience that's going out and seeing each and every one of those movies, even if they haven't played a, a, a Marvel vs. Capcom game before. Mm. Um, they might pick that up on a on a sale or on a whim or something. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, in so in in your mind, uh, Street Fighter kind of is, or especially like the the classic, the two into three era that that are your kind of favorites. Uh, Street Fighter is kind of the king. Um, uh, where do you think they fall now in in terms of of the overall? Like, are do they st- are they still up there? Do they still have the potential to be up there as an overall um, fighting game? Uh, I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit, I guess, with with Street Fighter Four being the reason that like there was a resurgence. But um, in terms of like, what are the, some of the other names I know out there, like Guilty Gear and and King of Fighters and stuff? Um, is there um, is there a challenger to the throne, or is it still Street Fighter? And, I I think there's and many challengers to the throne. That, that exactly like what you said, and and like I mentioned earlier, there's there's a lot of relevancy not only with a lot of the other games that have been made, especially by Nether Realms. Again, I keep going back to Nether Realms because they're the ones that have done so many good things lately over the last couple of years. It, it's just a fact. I mean, yeah. ask anybody that played Mortal Kombat X. There's there's a lot of things that are awesome about that game, even if you're not competitive. What, like, was it like eight and everybody like wrote them off and they're like they're done. Like they've they've blown this they like they have nothing new to to offer it was armageddon was armageddon 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 was the one that they got uh, really upset about it they were like okay more uh, at the time i don't even think they were called another runs i think it was still under activision or midway midway is what it was okay because those were the guys that released and published all the mortal kombat games yeah Uh, yeah i remember like i remember that being the narrative like mortal kombat has 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 run out of ideas they're dead they're they're dead in the water there's nothing coming back and then was it like I feel like it was nine and ten that uh, ten especially nine. where uh, where everybody was like oh they like they're back like it was Ed nine Boone knows what he's doing again it, and the reason why it was nine is because that story mode by by Nether mm-hmm. Nether Realms knows and they're masters of making a story mode for a fighting game they just they just know how to do it and the funny thing is they've always done that with all their fighting games they build up universes they build up narratives and plots for all most of the past Mortal Kombat games you can go all the way back to Mortal Kombat four. Mortal Kombat Gold, and you could see like you know the beginnings of stuff like that, all the way back to Mythology Sub Zero, all these side games, you know the mm-hmm. the Jacks uh, Special Ops MK or the Shaolin Monks games, you know stuff like that. Uh, I feel like for them, they're really the kings when it comes to narratives and fighting games, and they just know how to give value with their fighting games. The reason why though. I say that there's multiple challenges and there's multiple options for fighting game fans now these days, aside just from going to Street Fighters, because not only do I feel like Capcom has done a lot of harm to themselves with a variety of different reasons for their games and their brands, everybody has a very bad taste in their mouth with Capcom as of late, especially especially if you're a Mega Man fan. I mean, enough said. But... Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of other fighting game options that have been doing some phenomenal stuff. You mentioned Guilty Gear. Guilty Gear Zerd is uh, and Zerd Revelator, awesome anime fighter, which you look at it, it looks like anime cutscenes. Like somebody actually drew anime, but those are 3D models. And I couldn't believe it the first time I saw it at E3. It was insane, you know, just seeing that stuff in motion. King of Fighters, even though King of Fighters isn't the most visually pleasing game, mechanically it's a very classically inspired but awesome to play game that feels very good. Ask anybody that's a fighting game enthusiast if they play King of Fighters 14 recently, and they're like, yeah, that game is awesome. 
right now. Uh, mm-hmm. There's other games too. You got Skullgirls, which is an indie fighting game that's been lurking around here and there. It's getting a new iteration very soon. I think also on PlayStation Vita. I think it's called Skullgirls Encore, if I'm not mistaken. There's, yeah, I think I've seen that. Yeah, and then you know, there's a variety of other games that are out there that are fighters that people can get into. Tekken. Uh, you could get into virtual. I have a strong feeling virtual fighter is going to make a big comeback at some point because there was a trademark taken out by Sega for virtual fighter. Uh, but those those are some of the most mechanically complex and yet beautiful looking fighting games ever. Any of the virtual fighter games, especially virtual fighter five, it was insane. You know, there, there's a there's a lot out there that there's uh, options for people that if they're very displeased with Street Fighter with the way that it was handled with Street Fighter V or anything like that. Again, you got Marvel vs. Capcom coming up very soon, Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite, which is going to be a whole nother rebirth of that MVC or versus game franchise. And I really strongly believe at one point we're probably going to see uh, Capcom versus SNK again at some point. But point is, there's options there. There's a lot of different ways and a lot of different things that you could go to to get your fighting game fixed. And it just doesn't come from Capcom, which is awesome. Yeah. Do you think uh, uh, last last dumb little question? Do you think Pockin Tournament gets finds new life on Switch? Here's the problem, okay? Because people have talked to me, and you know, because I play a lot of Pokemon Tournament, and, and yeah. it's you know I've been with that game since before the beginning, and I, I I've probably played that game longer than anybody else has because I had it early before release and stuff for review. Uh, the problem is, is like Pokemon is a game and a community. I feel like it's a little bit in denial because to me, having a lot of experience with a lot of other fighting games and games of similar nature and stuff, Pokemon to me is a broken game. It's mechanically, there's, there's a lot of problems with that game that I feel like are just not being adjusted or addressed. And, and the funny thing is, and you mentioned the Nintendo switch, I always kept thinking like maybe they would port that game over to the switch to kind of expand upon the switches library of games and titles available within its launch year but like not, not only did it not get announced at the switch event and it's like nowhere to be found but also there's a bunch of dlc and content that's available in the arcades and it's like no release date for the consoles not even for the wii u version and you know it's funny too because bandai namco has a has a tendency to like do that type of stuff later like a year later because tekken 7 has been out in arcades for a very long time and it's only now very soon we're going to get it on consoles on playstation 4 or xbox one and stuff but I feel like with Poké Tournament, even though it's going to get representation at the Pokemon World Championships, it's it almost had representation at Evo this year and stuff. That's a <laughs> I, game. Yeah, I wondered. I wonder if that was going to win the uh, the voter. It came close. Uh, choice, it came yeah. very close. But Marvel, the reason why Marvel won is because there's a legacy behind Marvel, and there's a lot of Marvel players out there, and they, they're mm-hmm. ride or die Marvel versus Capcom. That's just how it is. But with Poké Tournament, I feel like it, it, it. Even though there's a crowd, there's a community out there. There is support clearly. But that's a game where I feel like it needs a lot more time to be baked in the oven a little bit. It needs to be kind of fine-tuned. It needs to be catered to by Nintendo and also Bandai Namco, which I feel like was not there for all the time that I played it. I, I even And the funny thing is, you know, and, and I got a little bit, you know, upset about it with Pokemon sort of being, you know, with its thing with Evo and the community trying to rally to get it in Evo and stuff. I felt like there was a lot of Fairweather fandom because when someone like me or other people that I know that were streaming the game for like every day for like months on end, the support wasn't there. But all of a sudden when there's money involved and when Evo's involved, then all of a sudden the support came there. It's like, where was the support from Nintendo and Bandai? Where was the support from all these other hardcore crowd and stuff? So I feel like that's a thing that doesn't last as long as it should maybe at some point if there was more support behind it. Yeah. Okay. Any uh, any final thoughts on Street Fighter before we dive into the next topic? If you're not into competitiveness, if you're not into the tournament scene and stuff, 
you could definitely get something out of the other like multimedia stuff of Street Fighter. Like again, I highly recommend watching the Street Fighter 2 animated movie, one of the best animated movies out there for a video game. Uh the Street Fighter 2 anime, the series that just it's called Street Fighter 2 V or Street Fighter 2 Victory. That is pretty damn cool. There I actually ran into a professor years ago that a uh, professor of animation where he usually cited that uh, specific anime series as like part of his curriculum and such for games that are not only or or anime that's not coming out of uh was it Japan, but also in relation to other forms of media and stuff. How the Japanese took a simple concept compared to like the American Western audiences where you look at the Street Fighter cartoon that we got here in America and the Street Fighter anime and you can see the dichotomy like how the the franchise was handled by two different parties there's also the street fighter uh live action stuff that's on machinima which i thought was probably one oh, yeah. of the better handled stuff you know the street fighter 2 uh assassin's fist which is the best one of the best live action iterations of that but they kind of went downhill when they went over to go 90 but that's a whole nother discussion but that those are like stuff that i feel like people could really enjoy if you're curious about street fighter it's not just the games it's a whole plethora of stuff that you could get into excellent well, thank you so much uh, for for diving into Street Fighter and and the fighting game community as a whole because it is definitely one of my um, uh, one of my uh, shortcomings in terms of like knowing knowing the scene. It's I know an, I know enough to know that there is a scene, mm. and and I I am I'm, I'm finally at a point where I recognize things like Evo and know that we're talking about a fighting game tournament and stuff like that. And uh, um, but it's it's definitely not something that has ever. Uh, really, it's it just hasn't grabbed me. So um, I appreciate kind of the the learning experience uh, and and your um, your certainly vast knowledge on uh, on the scene as a whole. Um, so uh, let's dive into and and this is going to be another one that I'm sure I'm going to be very <laughs> <the> fun uh, one, <laughs> very well educated on. You're getting to know you topic, uh, kung fu movies. Yes, I, I'm a I'm a big kung fu movie buff especially classic kung fu movies now when somebody says kung fu movies or action movies and stuff they're usually talking about something modern or they're talking about bruce lee which is the more mainstream answer to i mean of i think of like three ninjas that's uh, not that was... no 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 that, that's a bootleg that's a bootleg wannabe kung fu movie okay surf it's ninjas? Classic. how about surf ninjas same thing come on beverly son. hills like, ninja it's fun. <laughs> those are fun movies i'll give you that those are fun comedy slash action movies. Those are cool, but those aren't really kung fu movies like 1960s slash 1970s movies. That was the golden era for a lot of kung fu classics that were like cheesy and stuff. All right, so hit me with some. Hit, what makes what is what what about kung fu movies resonates with you? What like where, where did this start? Where um, like did you did you get into it at a young age? Was it like something that like somebody introduced to you and you were like this this is this is for me. Uh, for me, I wasn't into it in a young age. I almost thought it was non-existent. Besides Bruce Lee, later on in life, like towards my, my middle and high school years, uh, kung fu movies, like real kung fu movies, weren't really like a thing for me. I just not something I ever explored. It wasn't until I got later into adulthood, like maybe like more than a couple years ago, where I really started to explore it and really kind of like dive deep into it, that I really started to appreciate them and just have fun with them. Because kung fu movies, by cinema standards, they're not the best movies out there. They're they're kind of bad to some extent and the reason being is because they're very simple in nature especially they were a product of the time 
especially in the 1970s where that was a fad amongst a lot of people like the late 60s to early, to like mid uh, 70s into the late 70s right before when the 80s started to kick off was when you know people were really into kung fu movies and they were proud and they were expressive about it and such then you start getting to action movies in the 80s which is where you start to get Arnold's when you start to get Predator you start to get uh what is it um Jean-Claude Van Damme Chuck Norris you know, on a variety of other different, you know, crazy action movie actors, Sylvester Stallone and stuff. But really, before all that stuff, there was a lot of the Hong Kong movie flicks that you would see at the cinema, the drive through cinema that people would get into and stuff. So that's where I really kind of deep dived into and it really got a kick out of enjoying them. So what, what was it that what was it that drew you to it? What like what was the spark? It was curiosity because obviously there was a point in my life where I wanted to go back and watch all the Bruce Lee movies and why and I'm not talking about just Enter the Dragon I'm not talking about just the Green Hornet I'm not even talking about uh, Matlock or, or anything like that stuff that he did back in the day I'm talking about going back to like the Big Boss the was it Fist of Fury you know and and I'll tell everybody the other names and stuff because the naming conventions for Kung Fu movies is ridiculous uh, also uh, Way of the Dragon like some of his earlier films before he came and did his last movie which was Enter the Dragon before he died and stuff once i watched those movies and i watched documentaries about bruce lee like you know how bruce lee changed the world which is like a big uh history channel documentary which is awesome everybody should watch that at some point but they talk about why bruce lee was significant because before him or before when he really started to gain traction and stuff Hong Kong movies or Kung Fu movies that were coming here out west were really doing a lot of hokey stuff. They were very fantastical. They were very they weren't based on realism. Bruce Lee was always about realism and stuff. And that was where there was a big changing point in the action movie genre, especially coming here from China or Hong Kong over here to the United States. Excellent. Um so outside of so so you you kind of go through the Bruce Lee filmography. Where does that lead you from there? Where do you do you do you find other stuff from that era? Do you find contemporary kung fu um, that that kind of lives on in that spirit? Because well, I, I I go through yeah. multiple spots basically, like in that in that regard. Like the first thing I would say that I really led me to, especially because of the the people that were involved in like some of his other movies and stuff, is the Shaw Brothers. The Shaw Brothers films. Shaw Brothers films are like a collection of different kung fu movies that were of like the nineteen seventies, like early nineteen seventies, or or again, depending on which one you're talking about, mid to late. Uh, where they're very cheesy, they're they're almost Hong Kong fooey esque, and that's a, that's a very like bad thing to say, you know, about like the the action movie genre, especially martial arts uh, movie genre and stuff. Uh, compared to what we got now like what we got now is handled with a lot more seriousness very heavily influenced by Bruce Lee, heavily influenced also by movies like The Matrix, you know, and different stuff like that. But back then, it was a lot more play. It was a gimmick. It was a little bit more of a fad. It was like they talk, you know, when you watch a movie and you talk to somebody from that era, it's like all about the style. You know, the the Wu-Tang Clan clan is a perfect example. They, uh, the Wu-Tang Clan actually sampled a lot of classic, uh, kung fu movies for some of their tracks you know this is where they get the wu-tang name from it's from some of those movies the wu-tang style and whatnot it, it's very cheesy movies that just like the plot and the narrative and the continuity is like all over the place they're almost garbage by that extent but it wasn't even about that it was about like the crazy personality you know the fighting the cheesy fighting which like it just looked cool for the first time that you saw it even though it was nowhere near realistic it was completely fantastical it was completely off the wall unrealistic mm-hmm um, I'm trying to think the I feel like I've seen video of um, oh his, his name's escaping me the guy uh, the blind non-Jedi guy from Zatoichi Zatoichi yeah um, 
I've I've seen like video of his stuff, right? Would that be mm-hmm. uh, some like that? That seems to be kind of a, a modern what what I would have in my mind as modern kung fu, where it's it's there is kind of an over the top quality for of him like taking on a room of a hundred people coming at him or something like that, um, mm-hmm. and and doing it very effortlessly and just kind of like swatting them away. Um, or or to- like playing with them uh, almost in in uh, in in moments in in those fights is that does that still is that kung fu or is that some some offshoot is that something else that that's kind of something else because you're you're referring to Shinwei Imwe from like yeah. Rogue One okay which is like the blind like force user guy but right. that's inspired by Zatoichi which is Zatoichi is the blind swordsman. Uh, and that's more Japanese stuff that gets into samurai movies where you start get talking about, you know, Seven Samurai or any of the other, uh, was it, uh, the, the Hidden Fortress type of stuff, which is insp- also heavily inspired Star Wars. But, mm-hmm. like, more of the kung fu movie stuff is different. Yeah, and, and I, I, I'm in particular thinking, like, I've got a visual in my head of just that actor doing a, a big grandiose fight scene. Um, mm-hmm. And I just don't know, like, I didn't remember the his name and I don't have any context for the... Uh, it's it's probably just something I've seen like in a Twitter video or something like that of like mm. a two minute sequence that like when I think and and like I'm sure a lot of it comes from that I don't have a concrete idea of what kung fu is like I I can identify Bruce Lee um, but outside of that like kung fu versus martial arts versus um, uh, I mean even the the combat of something like the Matrix um, I don't know what distinguishes kung fu from other stuff um so can you can is there can you help me with that what like um help me kind of define kung fu and 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 its form well that's the thing like sometimes it's a little bit hard because some movies blend into multiple avenues like for a perfect example the raid Okay, which is a big modern day, I guess you could call it a kung fu action flick. Okay, mm. because it's got elements of like crazy martial arts that's in it, as well as also like gun plays, of knife play, sword play, and all these different things. A lot of people get caught up on like what are the type of things that people are doing physically that and then the fighting and stuff. But also you have to think about the narrative stuff. You also have to think about the philosophical stuff, the type of topics that they touch on here and there. Perfect example that I would say is like a true kung fu flick from back in the day from like the 1970s is The Five Deadly Venoms, which is a Shaw Brothers movie. Five Deadly Venoms is really about a, a, a guy that is tasked by his master to go check up on his five pupils and kill any of the ones that uh, have used his teachings for, for bad. For, for like to harm people and stuff. That's really what that whole movie's about. Now, again, it gets all over the place and there's other things that go along with it, but that's what it is essentially at, at heart. It's about a, a, a pupil uh, filling out the last wish, wishes of his dying master, like that. And with, and as compared to like more modern day movies, they'll get caught up on other things, like again, uh, doing, again, the raid, doing a particular type of raid on different stuff, or something like, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is, is one of those more fantastical ones, it was one of the more modern day kung fu movies, which is more fantastical and stuff, because there's a lot of wire work in that, and that's what really heavily inspired the wire work that, like, what you see in, like, stuff like The Matrix, and, like, more movies that came afterwards and stuff, so it's very hard 
depending on which movie you're looking at to define it as one particular type of like you know action movie which is really martial arts and kung fu movies they're all under the same umbrella as action which you could put under the same umbrella as like you know 80s action movies like american action movies or or anything of the sort like the fast and the furious another action movie you could put all those under the same umbrella but with mm-hmm. kung fu movies i feel like for me what makes them stand out is besides like the the different type of combat the melee combat and everything else it's usually with stuff that not involving guns you know, and the reason why I say it is because that's a very Bruce Lee thing where he makes it a point like there's no guns in his movies because if there was a gun involved, the conflict would be over in like two seconds. It'd be a wrap. Yeah. Like it's, that. He it's makes that it a moment point. from it's that moment from Raiders of the Lost Ark. The guy's doing the sword fighting and then and he just shoots him. Exactly. And that like that's a thing. But even in, in Bruce Lee's movies, like he makes it a point. It's like uh, immediately when the guy's trying to pull out a gun, you know, his boss is like, "Here, no guns," because he's going to attract attention. And obviously, the conflict would be over. There'd be cops all over the place. And other things too. It's like if you shoot somebody, it's over. At the end of uh, Fist of Fury, he die. Uh, Bruce Lee's character dies because he dies by a firing squad. He but he accepts it, and there's like a whole other philosophical thing behind it. But really a lot of the kung fu movies i gravitate towards which i consider kung fu in my eyes or like martial arts movies in my eyes are the ones that are like before all that which take place in like the feudal uh was it uh times or like the ancient times of like uh china slash hong kong and like that environment and such five deadly venoms is like that uh five elemental ninjas is like that uh 36 chambers of shaolin which are again all these movies are under that same shaw brothers umbrella uh here and there that follow similar themes or follow similar approaches in what the type of story that they tell. Okay. Cause yeah, like I, as, as we're talking, I'm, I'm going back and thinking like, Oh, I watched like a lot of Jackie Chan stuff. I would never say one. like Jackie Chan is, or I, I wouldn't think of Jackie Chan as, um, as like Kung Fu, but I do like, I, I certainly, you know, obviously he's like a, a martial artist, all-star kind of, and he did a good job of kind of broadening it to, the American audience through comedy and through, um, I think his own physicality in like that. It was like always him doing it and he was breaking himself and, and like those stories kind of helped fuel the movies. But, um, would those be uh, kind of in the Kung Fu spirit? Yeah. Here's the thing. And and it's funny that you mentioned Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan, even himself considers a lot of his movies, Kung Fu comedies. Like he, there was in the documentary that I mentioned how Bruce Lee changed the world. They actually talked to him and they asked him about Bruce Lee and stuff and how he compared if, you know, a lot of people in the industry wanted to him to be the next Bruce Lee and stuff. He's like, listen, the way that I compare myself between me and him was that he's like Bruce Lee. He's the best. He's the man. Like, he's that dude that you want to be and stuff. Me, I'm the underdog. I want to be the person that, like, you know, when I throw a punch, I hurt my hand. And it's funny. Even though I'm doing something that's, like, you know, traditional, like, kung fu movies here and there. This is what really opened up the whole Bruce Ploitation movement that was part of the kung fu movie scene. Again, it gets very complicated, so I'll try to paraphrase it and streamline it as much as best I can. With Jackie Chan, all of his movies are kung fu comedy films, or at least most of them are, because he's still doing kung fu. He's still doing all the stuff that was good at the time, but he makes it funny. That's that's what makes his movies so much fun to watch, because it's not just the typical stuff that you saw with a lot of other people, like Chao Yun-Fat, like Sammo Hung, and all these other actors that are trying to emulate the spirit and the same nature that they saw in Bruce Lee films. Like that were here and there because that was popular at the time. You gotta understand when Bruce Lee died, it was such a shock to the genre that everybody was trying to find and scramble to find the next star and stuff. So they were trying to emulate him so bad, and they, you know, they were even calling actors Bruce when they weren't even called Bruce, or calling them Bruce Lee to fool people into thinking is actually Bruce Lee when it's not. That's when the whole Bruce exploitation movement came in. But with Jackie Chan, he stood out from the crowd from being completely different, from being the complete opposite 
of Bruce Lee. So that's why they're called Kung Fu comedies. Okay. That's cool. Um, uh, in terms of modern day, um, is there uh, like is there a modern day movement for trying to capture that magic of the the like the seventies that you're sixties and seventies? Um, now that we like, I I think in terms of like um, you know theater movements and stuff where it's like everything is postmodern now, where it's like everything is is willing to like it's commenting on what came before it. Is there kind of a postmodern kung fu um, where it's it's seeing what kung fu was and saying, okay, well here's here's the new take on it. Um, uh, is is that what we see in stuff like the raid, um, or is there is there something that tries to be more um, uh, uh, hold more? Uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Um, uh, like give more um, honor to kind of what came before. Trying no. to live on in that spirit. No. And the reason why is because I feel like there's been a lot more of a bleeding effect between what people would consider traditional action movies or like Americanized action movies, along with whatever the action movies were back in the Hong Kong cinema, back in, in China and stuff. And the reason being is because everybody's trying to one-up everybody with how crazy you could do different things. Like, even though they're great movies, you know, let's, let's be real. The Raid and The Raid 2 are pretty awesome movies and they're fun. I think The Raid 1 is a little bit better. But... Like, you got movies like that. You got movies like The Protector. You got Ong Bak, the first Ong Bak movie. And then you got Ong Bak 2 and 3, which were trash. And then you got all these other movies here and there, like uh, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or, or even the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon uh, Netflix original and such. What these movies all have in common, being part of these this more like modern era of cinema, is that they're trying to see how much more crazy can you go with the action and still be believable. Because in a world that's post-Bruce Lee... Everybody at that point in time was trying to be realistic. That's what they were trying to be at some point. There was a small era in time after Bruce Lee's death where everything reverted back to that fantastical, you know, type of like elements of the fighting and to the to the action and the storytelling and stuff. But they they also tried and failed miserably many times over to recapture that element of realism that Bruce Lee was trying to push so much. He was ahead of his time, really, compared to it. And people didn't really catch on to it until much later on. With people now, or certain actors now, you got these days, you got guys like Donnie Yen, who I think are phenomenal. Uh, Tony Ja, again, from the Unbox series and the, the Protector and stuff. And they've done movies together here and there, and you could, you could see this clearly as day. It's like they're really kind of like coming into their own, like being part of like these different types of movies that are action movies still of their day that are more much more modern action movies, but are still kind of like, you know, trying to be somewhat realistic, trying to be authentic is really what I feel like what everybody's been trying to strive for for a long time. They're not really trying to pay homage to what came before. I think everybody, the only real homage that anybody pays homage to is really to Bruce Lee. And there's like, whether it's a reference, whether it's a nod, whether it's like emulating him, trying to be like him. Uh, Donnie Yen did a whole movie called, uh, what is it? Uh, the Return of Chen Zen. Uh, it's called, I think it was called Black, not Black Mask. Um, Oh, damn, I can't remember. But it, it, the, the subtitle of it is called The Return of Chen Zen, which is literally a continuation of one of Bruce Lee's movies. And he's playing the exact same character and he emulates an exact same fight that he had in Fist of Fury, almost to like a T. 
which is funny. It, that, that's like a huge homage to him. And it's just like, he's trying to be Bruce Lee in that movie, basically. So you mm-hmm. find stuff like that. But when it comes to like some of the older classic stuff, like the Shaw Brothers stuff, or any of the other, like, you know, more obscure Kung Fu movies, like, like Wing Chun, there's a movie called Wing Chun, which stars a female, I forgot the actress's name at the time. But uh, again, you're not seeing a lot of female, like uh, action movie actresses trying to emulate what she was doing and stuff. They're trying to be like, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, not Wendy Wu, um, uh, damn, I'm trying to remember this girl's name. Uh, she was in, she was in a Crouch Tiger and Dragon. She was one of the younger uh, fighters and stuff. Michelle Yeoh. Michelle, I think it's so. I think it's her yeah. where she stole the sword and stuff. I can't. If, think if, of if that's head. right, that I pulled that name out of just I don't knowing, know. knowing really movie no names idea. apparently. A lot, of, a lot of these names either I can't pronounce or I can't remember because they're all over the place. But I can recognize them by face. Or even look, look at the actress from Pacific Rim, who the Asian actress there that played uh, the girl down there. She's not trying to emulate some of those other actresses what they did back in the day and whatnot because there's a whole new movement, a whole new approach to female characters being on film and stuff towards action movies. There's a whole different nuance to it for this audience and for this day and age. Mm-hmm. So is, is there a reason you think that that nobody's been able to recapture the that realism from from Bruce Lee's era, even even if it's not like it's never going to make it mainstream. But people like it seems like in this day and age where you can get anybody doing kind of anything, it seems like we would have like YouTube series or somebody that would have found a way to kind of crack that nut and say, I'm going to do this. It's not going to make money. It's not going to make me bank, but I'm going to create this thing in the spirit of um those those bruce lee kung fu movies or the shaw brothers kung fu movies and 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 make it happen for a modern day take the the essence of it and and bring it to the 21st century uh, is there a reason you think we haven't seen something like that because I don't think anybody really wants to. Or And here's the funny thing. When you're talking about emulating the realism, what made Bruce Lee so special in his movies is that you could see the action. He was actually doing the stuff, and you could see it in real time. And like one of the biggest problems with a lot of movies, especially action movies now this day and age, and if you want a perfect example, go look at the new Risen Evil movie that, that suffers from this greatly. There's so many cuts. I mean, I will, I will not. But <laughs> Yeah, don't go yeah, watch yeah, it. No, like, I, 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 knew, I knew exactly where you're going with like everything wait, gets cut and edited to, to Exactly. And, like wait for it comes on Netflix at least. But like, you know, things are cut in such a way where they're quick cuts and there's quick action that's happening where it tries to mask a lot of what's going on. And that even though it looks good on film in some regard to some extent, maybe not the Resident Evil stuff, but like in other films and such, and you can even argue with movies like The Raid, Crouchy Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Iron Monkey, uh, or any of these other movies that are out that have come now out more in the modern day. Their problem is, is that it's not the actors that are really doing that action, even though they might do their own stunts, even though they might do something in real time right then and there. It's not the same as seeing Bruce Lee actually like kick a dude in real time for like a minute or so and the guy goes flying or like he's actually jumping or he's using those nunchucks for that however much time there in real fashion because he actually did that in real time. There was hardly any cuts like that, you know. You could, he was more of a motion type of like visual artist and what he did. He wanted you to see what he was doing to express himself with his body and his motion. Like that, he talks about this extensively in a lot of his books and a lot of his interviews. Whenever you watch one of them in, in English, it was really like what he really gets caught up on. But as opposed to now, more this day and age, where people that are inspired by him, that take example from him and stuff, really haven't caught on to that. Like if you go back now and you watch like a movie, let's say. 
trying to I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, like randomly. I'm trying to think of like what was the most recent action movie that came out that that had fighting besides Resident Evil and such. That that like really had like a lot of action scenes or fighting scenes and stuff, but really again had a lot of cuts, had a lot of uh was it stuff where you're using stunt doubles and stuff like that. It doesn't have that mm-hmm. same emotion, doesn't have that same feeling that you would get when watching one of those films back in the day. Yeah, what so so an example I'm just thinking of as as we talk about it is uh, where I where I would say I think there is an audience for it um, potentially in some form or other is like the Daredevil um, Netflix show. Mm. Like every season so far in the two seasons they've had, um, one of the most talked about sequences tends to be that like one long fight scene cut. So in mm. the first season, it's that long fight in the hall, the the uncut fight scene in the hall. The second season, it's the one kind of down the stairwell where, mm. yeah, there's probably a little bit of masking cuts in there, but it's 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 put out there as like one extended scene um, and and kind of I think gets universally praised for like um, for the physicality and the the brutality of the character in in those moments and just the choreography of the entire sequence um, that isn't being uh cut to death uh so I, I like that's that's something that that says to me at least that there's hope for that kind of um uh uh, uh choreography and 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 fight work in um in a modern setting exactly like uh again and the reason why that a lot of people praise is because you could see all that you could see all of that naturally and and flow smoothly like that that's what makes that daredevil series so much fun because like a lot of the action even though again there's a lot of narrative building a lot of world building related to the mcu and stuff it's moments like that that make it so worth it to go through everything else and it's so much fun to see that and they've done it twice now and i'm pretty sure they're going to do it in the third season which is going to be awesome when we finally watch it i mean i would like to see that kind of transfer over to some of the other series like i don't think you get it as much in jessica jones or luke cage and and eventually at some point i'll be able to talk about other series as well but like you know i don't see that in a lot of other mediums or a lot of other like superhero shows or a lot of, a lot of other action shows that that pride themselves on either action or fighting and stuff like that yeah i mean um i don't know if you're like alluding to iron fist or anything if you like if you're under embargo and ha- have seen it or anything but um but that's another one like that's the most direct that's the closest like, you'll probably get to it yeah that's, like that's iron fist i'm, I'm curious expect. to see if we'll see something like that in iron fist and or we'll see that that kind of spirit because like from the snippets i've seen of iron fist trailers and stuff i look at that and i'm like oh like i see him with his power punch or whatever and i immediately think of bruce lee doing like the one finger punch or whatever and Mm -hmm. and uh and 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 knocking somebody out um uh so yeah that's i i will be like i'll be curious to see if we get kind of more of that and and i think um, the MCU movies in particular, especially like with something most recently, like with Dr. Strange, where we do see a little bit more of that Eastern kind of combat style in there while still, yes, cut to hell. Um, I think still has, um, uh, is like I, as a, as a, as a theater person, as somebody who like took stage combat, um, classes and has choreographed fights and stuff on stage. Um, I, I love, the choreography, even if it is cut to hell, because I know that it's mostly cut to hell just so they could get like the best angle. But a lot of time it is like they probably did the like an extended sequence all in one cut or all in one one take um, or had to get it to that point a lot of the time 
just so that they have the options to cut from. Um, so I'm I'm always a fan of seeing that kind of stuff, um, even if yeah, even if it is like torn to shreds. Um, but yeah. I think I you think know you, something like yeah. yeah, I just I just thought of something because the the Batman movies more recently mm-hmm. are are good examples. Of this not the first Batman Begins because Batman Begins I feel like has suffered from that problem big time. And like they cut, did that I feel like purposely because Batman he's supposed to be so quick you can't see him coming around and stuff. But the second Batman movie, uh, The Dark Knight did that very well like a lot of sequences like that are pretty damn handled uh, awesomely and the same thing also with the dark knight rises to an extent not as good as the second one but like you'll have instances like that that make it work because again you could see it and such uh, another good example going back to the mcu captain america the winter soldier and yeah. that's a that's an example of a movie and again i saw like five times or six times in theaters and because it, it was so good where like there's cuts in the fight sequences but there's those extended periods during those same like crazy fight sequences where you could see stuff going on where like when captain america throws his shield and it bounces off a couple things hits a few dudes and it comes back to him and then it or it cuts like right before it cuts back comes back to him but you see that shield going around and smacking people in the face or him doing some crazy flip and stuff so there's a line i feel like where you could still use cuts in your sequences and your action and your fights and stuff but like when it becomes overbearing, when it comes overused, that's the fine line that people walk through. Like Daredevil got it right, Captain America: Winter Soldier got it right, Dark Knight got it right, uh, Resident Evil got it clearly wrong because there's a cut between like the same action from like a second of time that passes in the narrative for there's like five or six different cuts from like the same or it gets repeated and stuff. It's like okay, you have to show people what's happening. Like you could show it even for a brief second, but that still needs to be something where it could process to them when they're watching yeah. the movie. Yeah. Um, excellent. So what, what would you look for in, uh, if, if there were to be like a modern day resurgence of Kung Fu, what, what would you look for in that? Good story. I think that comes with the basis of every movie hands on. It doesn't matter what genre, uh, good action as far as like what, what's going down, like who's fighting who or why they're fighting, which again, another characteristic from Bruce Lee movies that people don't give credit for that he talks about in some documentaries why the people are fighting he makes it a point to make it it, the audience knows listen this is why this person's fighting this is why this person's like you know going after such and such it's not Mm -hmm. useless violence that's a big problem now with modern day cinema cinema and uh modern day action movies the the violence is mindless there's no real reason to get behind it yeah and and one of the things that that gets me and like um it's it's something i've like it's it's a different um, kind of take on it but like uh i growing up i loved um like the the lightsaber duel from phantom menace at the end yeah. um and its choreography and then as i as i started taking like choreography and 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 like choreographing my own uh stage fights and stuff i was like okay th- they like they are just dancing to dance in a lot of that in a lot of that sequence and and so one of the things I was always hyper aware of is like every moment in the fight, um, like one of the characters is basically going for a death blow. If, if I'm, if I'm choreographing a fight between Romeo and Tybalt in, uh, um, in Romeo and Juliet, like they're fighting to the death. So every move that they have is like one of them is trying to kill the other one. And the, like, if they are lucky, they're defending it. So it was always, I was always hyper aware of, okay, like, if I'm making this move, it's not just so that the you know another sword can come up here. It's because I want to cut this person's head off, and it was it was trying to kind of enforce that in the actors, which I don't, th- which I think does get lost a lot in in kind of modern fight choreography. Is it is 
they create something that makes like for an interesting picture but if you think about it it's like why why were you trying to attack that that like that wouldn't have helped you at all if you were trying to go for their their like leg in this moment or something when they clearly had the upper hand and and so like that will get me at times where i but but i think like the cuts and the overcutting kind of masks that and you like it happens so quickly that you don't think about it and they trick audiences into into realizing that so um yeah that's that's something that i've i've thought about kind of more over the years is um making the fights matter so not not only this is why this person is why these two people are fighting but this is why they're fighting this way exactly yeah any uh any other last things you'd want to see in uh in a modern day kung fu uh a modern day kung fu movie uh just fun nods like you know fun little fan service i think is always cool because again you get a lot of that in a lot of the superhero movies now these days i think it'd be interesting to do that for a genre of movie and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be kung fu movies it could be in any other style of movie and stuff and i think comedy is usually the one that that gets that right sometimes not just on the commentary for like what's going on at the time but also for even its own genre like perfect example uh Shaun of the dead is like that uh what is it um uh damn some some of the some all that's all part of that same trilogy of movies like oh, you know which one uh, yeah Shaun of the Dead Hot Fuzz, Hot Fuzz and yeah, exactly. uh, World's End and World's End yeah they those movies get it and they do little stuff like that exactly what I'm talking about but it would be interesting to see not so much a comedy take but also a more nuanced like serious take of the genre that gives friendly nods like that and it does, and I don't mean just nods to Bruce Lee and stuff I mean nods to other things mm-hmm. excellent uh well let's go ahead and thank you for again. Um, there's been a big old fighting podcast this time around. We're, we're fighting too much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but no, like I, 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 I have a newfound appreciation of Kung Fu and, and Kung Fu that I didn't think was Kung Fu, um, mm. uh, that I can kind of go back and, and, and again, like e- even through the conversation, thinking about Daredevil through that lens or, or, or something like that, um, Here's uh, a cool puts, thing. It, puts it in a new light. Yeah. Here's a cool thing. Do you want a couple good recommendations of movies you should check sure. out? Okay, yeah. I'll give like five recommendations for like anybody that wants to get into the genre. It's be you can watch them through any lens. You don't need predetermined stuff with it. Uh, five Deadly Venoms. That's yep, one. Got that one. Okay, Thirty Six Chambers of Shaolin. Okay, um, what is it? Wheels on Meals. Okay, Jackie Chan for you. Or yeah, Meals on Wheels like that. Um, uh, was it Drunken Fist? Or Drunken Master, sorry. You're, you're Drunken Master, yeah. Drunken Master. I, I've, I've seen Drunken Master. It's a fun one. Now, not yeah. the not the more modern one, but the older one with the older dude like that. Because oh, okay. there's two Drunken Master movies, believe it or not, that are kind of like the same title. There's, I think there's Drunken Fizz or Drunken Master like that. And then the other one's kind of like the inverse of it. And then finally, uh, Bruce Lee film, Way of the Dragon. Way of the Dragon perfectly encompasses like... Well, exactly that. Why Bruce Lee was so good, besides Enter the Dragon itself. That's the one where he fights Chuck Norris in the Coliseum. So that's a kung fu classic amongst people. But those are five movies that are more classic films that you guys could get a real kick out of. Excellent. Thank you uh, for all of that. Uh, let's go ahead and close out the show with uh, mm-hmm. topic four trove topics. Nice. Um, is where people can be part of the show by tweeting uh, using the hashtag Trove Talk. Uh, wait, no, that was the hashtag you put out, and I was like, oh, that's the wrong hashtag. Uh, ah. Trove Trove Topics, um, or <laughs> most likely just like follow me uh, or follow the show at uh, so me at Snarky Starky or the show at Trove Talk. And each and every week, I put out a call and say, hey, this is who's coming on the show. We're gonna sit down. What questions do you have? 
Um, so we got a we got a handful of questions here. Uh, first up, we have Brandon Gan at GamesGan, uh, who uh, says Microsoft just announced their E3 presentation plans. What do you want to see during their their show? So uh, as we are recording this, uh, Microsoft announced that they're moving their panel their press conference uh, at E3 to the Sunday at I want to say two o'clock. Uh, Pacific yeah, two p.m. Time. Um, so it's not going to be, um, what it has been for as long as I can remember at this point, um, them in the morning and then Sony at night, it's, it's going to give them their own breathing room, their own day. They'll probably, you know, maybe they'll be on, they'll share a day with Bethesda or EA or something again, but, um, but it won't be Microsoft. And then a few hours later we see what Sony has. Um, uh, so what do you, um, what are your, what, so what do you want to see from, from Microsoft? And then, uh, I'm curious, uh, uh, your thoughts on E3 opening up to the public in general, um, but mm. Microsoft. Uh, what do we want to see from Microsoft first? Uh, I want to see info on games that we haven't heard from since last year, since I was at E3 last year. Uh, Crackdown Three, big one. That yep. that that's one that, and a lot of people have a lot of worrying questions about that. Whenever since Scalebound got canceled, that's another game we haven't heard about in a long time, and that's a, some very big questions they got to answer. If not, show us something. Uh, another one is Phantom Dust. Apparently, Phantom Dust is still a thing. I, I, yeah, I, and, I, I and, remember and that like being that's... canceled, and now he came back and was like, "Oh no, it's going to be out like." this year or something like like, something's (laughs) up something's up with phantom dust and i don't think it's all that great unless they show it at e3 this year because funny enough they showed it at one year when i went to e3 and it was like yo that sounds awesome but you know we haven't heard anything from that and then that game got kind of like you know canned at one point uh i also want to see some other games or other franchises that maybe we haven't heard from in a while that maybe uh what is it uh microsoft could actually utilize i want to see a new banjo kazooie i don't know why rare hasn't really done one in a while i feel like that's something that if microsoft wanted another exclusive title to associate with xbox they need uh, like a good mascot like that like what some of the other brands have that could be their thing since they have rare i yeah. mean there's there's other franchises I, mean, I feel like you could go to but still do you think we'll see that with with rare focused on sea of thieves do you think uh, we'll no. see their like the team split and like i mean even if it is just like concept art like they take a page and say oh Everybody really wants Crash, so okay. Here's yeah, right. Here's a here's a taste of like uh, I, I wish, I wish like that's the thing. Like obviously, I'm pretty sure Rare's working on Sea of Thieves. Like they're doubling down on that one hardcore. That was like that last year at E3. But like even if like you know there was a smidgen of hope, maybe like you know say like hey now we're gonna start production on a, on a new banjo. That that just that'll be kind of cool in of itself, especially with Crash coming down the line, and as well as also Mario coming later this year. I feel like it'd be smart of Microsoft to maybe look into that, or rare to look into that. That'll be a to, thing because that's their version of it, basically. Yeah, to to reconnect with a with a or to to create, establish an, an Xbox platformer at this point. And, and keep um, in mind. This is all in the wake of also ukulele coming over the horizon. You know, yeah. platformers are going to be a thing in some form or fashion. Even though the Crash games are games that are like older games remastered. And and, and having played that game at PSX, I can tell you, like, granted, it still feels like Crash, but it doesn't look like old Crash. It just looks even better. But, like, platformers, 3D platformers, or traditional mascot platformers might be a thing that could have a resurgence. And if Microsoft wants to get on, get on the ball with it, they definitely need to go to uh, to Banjo-Kazooie with Rare. And here's the other thing, too. If they don't go to, like, a franchise like that, they could always go back to Perfect Dark. I always felt like Perfect Dark would always make a resurgence at some point because they had two games. You know, they had a game on the 360, and then you just never heard of it from it again. Yeah. like that but so it, i don't know there, there's a number of different things i would like to see there obviously i think we're gonna see scorpio 
or at least we're gonna hear more about it i i'd be very very cool with them actually showing it because they touted about scorpio last year at e3 like it's the second coming of jesus so like every they're like get they're like get ready guys we got a beast coming down the line so i think this is the year that you show it yeah it's that's the thing I'm most interested in is to see what and how Scorpio rolls out. Is it are they saying like basically this is the new generation and we're going to we're like this is the new generation and we're going to get away from like uh you know we've already got Nintendo kind of being a split gen system and not really trying to compete with Nintendo or with uh with Sony and and Microsoft uh and then so does the Scorpio become, and now we're going to create our own timeline and, you know, we're not going to care about the PS4 anymore. We're not going to care about the eventual PS5 when that comes out. This is just our, our thing. It plays everything in the past. Um, it'll play new things. The, one of the things that I'm like most curious about Scorpio is that is there is when they say like any, you know, any Xbox game you can play on your Xbox one, you'll be able to play on your Scorpio. We're not leaving anybody behind and your and your Scorpio vice versa. It's like, okay, at some point you're going to have to leave people behind exactly, um, and make Scorpio exclusive games or something like that. That's, that's, I don't, I don't get the, 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 the verbiage kind of, or the, the I think it's yeah, PR the, talk. The, yeah. I think it's straight up PR talk to be honest with you. And the thing is, is that we still don't know a lot about the Scorpio. Like we yeah. know the specs people have shared around the white paper that was from last year, by the way, which is yeah. again, uh, people find it out about it now, but that was literally from a long time ago. But also like, we don't know like what really is this console besides a beast of a hardware. Like yeah. they haven't really explained that. So they showed developers saying like, Hey, this thing is awesome and stuff, but like, why is it so awesome? Yeah, why I mean, is it and, awesome and, to me as a consumer? Yeah, and you have like Todd Howard saying like, "Oh, we're bringing Fallout to to uh, to VR, and the Scorpio can run it." And it's like, okay, well, Microsoft hasn't really seemed interested in getting into the VR game, so like that's a weird selling point in that in that video. But um, in terms of other things that I'm I'm interested, in, and admittedly, um, Microsoft's one of those that I always feel like I have to do some research for in terms of like, oh, I'm going to do predictions on what's in the conference, and I need to figure out. What might be in the conference? What, like, what could they talk about? But one thing I, I would love to see, and I, it's, it's like hoping against hope because I don't think we will ever see it, would be a Sunset Overdrive two, um, mm. like bring bring that like, every almost everybody I talk to, um, like that is their favorite game on the series. Um, it's mine, my or my, on the console. It's my favorite game on on the Xbox One. My favorite exclusive on the the Xbox One. If you're not like a shooter person that is the game that seems to connect with a lot of people. And um, I think it got hurt because Xbox was quote unquote losing so badly in the, uh, in the race at the time um, that it didn't like, it wouldn't have the traction. It couldn't have had the traction that, you know, anything on Sony was hitting at the time. So it's like, I would love to see them say, we're going to like, we're in a better place now we believe in this ip um uh and so like a collaboration between them and insomniac to bring it back you know mm. sony's gonna have sony's gonna have spider-man but we'll have we'll have sunset overdrive too we we paid again to lock it down even though insomniac owns that ip and could take it anywhere else like we we are we believe in it and we're gonna we want it on on xbox um that's what i'd love to see I, again i don't think we'll, i don't think we'll ever get that and i don't know if <laughs> insomniac will 
anytime soon if they're getting that Spider-Man money uh, <laughs> invest in uh, in coming up with uh, Sunset Overdrive 2 but it's mm. something I want I miss it I miss Sunset Overdrive <laughs> there's other games too I'm pretty sure we're forgetting there, there's other Xbox IP that I think oh, that we could go to uh, and that's, I mean and that's I would I'm say saying, Fable like... I would say Fable but that's kind of dead in the water I mean yeah I, 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 like I think they're I think they're more likely to get like partnerships and time exclusives and stuff than um that then like yeah revive um fable again or or come i mean because if they come up with anything fable um it lives in the shadow of fable legends being canceled so they've got they've got to put more space between that otherwise it's gonna like we're all gonna say okay um this is clearly three or four years away though because you're like you were already working on a fable thing and you killed it um so you couldn't have had you can't have anything worth while now to talk about that's not going to come out in the, for, in the next couple of years. I mean, like, like you say, Crackdown, like that's been out there for a couple of years now. And yeah, they showed it, it last it's, year. <laughs> it's, it's been very quiet for a while. Um, so that's hopefully, you know, they went quiet and they're going to come out and say, and it's going to be available in three months or something like that. Um, uh, but I don't think you'll see them do that all that much uh uh outside of that um and i just don't know enough about like uh like microsoft ips to know um what might be coming i mean like presumably you have cuphead finally coming out soon Um, that's another one i mean yeah um but yeah like uh the, the the cancellation of um fable legends and um what was scalebound uh scalebound yeah that being the the other big cancellation like that's like they need to figure out a way to basically shove all that aside, and maybe maybe this is the year they finally bring back Xbox uh, Xbox Arcade and go full into and say like we're working with these indies. We've got like we've got Undertale. We're gonna we're gonna be the console you know home for Undertale um, mm-hmm. uh, or something like that. Like something big on a on the small front that isn't necessarily AAA focused um, to kind of get that level of gamer back invested in uh in the microsoft ecosystem because like I mean, yeah, like inside was there for a month exclusivity and that was it and then it moved over to playstation so like they they used to run that game and they don't anymore um mm-hmm. and and i feel like playstation is kind of running circles around them in in some way but like that's what that's what got me to play Xbox in the last year was like Oxenfree was on there first and Inside was on there first. So I was like, okay, I'm going to play these games. They're probably going to come to PlayStation eventually, but I'm going to play them now to have them, you know, to, to have them in the conversation. Even Rise of the Tomb Raider. I yeah, I was it. just going to say, I yeah. played it a year before it came to PlayStation because, and I'm glad I did because I would not have wanted to try and throw Rise of the Tomb Raider in with everything else that was coming out last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where, as much as I hate like, console exclusivity stuff uh, and timed exclusivity i think that's that's most likely what you'll see instead of mm-hmm. like new instead of new ip uh, though he, i think phil spencer was teasing like a new ip um on twitter not mm. too long ago so that'd um, be cool yeah it'll be it'll be interesting i mean I, I love e3 conferences um regardless but i'm also now trying to be much more um diligent in paying attention to like 
did they date that or is this something we're not going to see for two years yeah uh, it's something like, we're not going to see for two years <laughs> and, and in most cases yeah it's it's like okay i would be way more excited about that if i knew it was imminent but i it's, i know it's not so um that's i would love to i mean realistically maybe they'll just throw a shit ton of money behind red dead redemption 2 and that will be a like you're gonna get stuff on xbox first and that's what they're like what their big takeaway will be um who knows even then i don't even think rockstar would do it but but that'd be crazy i mean they did it they did it last gen right that's like gta grand theft auto stuff was was on uh was on xbox first um like the the expansions and stuff Oh, though I guess I think they've already come out and, and made that deal with Sony, though. Now that I think about it, so mm. scratch that. Yeah, when uh, when that's right, when Red Dead Two like finally got its trailer, there was a thing up on the PlayStation blog of like, and you'll get stuff on PlayStation first. So never mind, yeah. that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Sucks to that prediction. Glad I made it here and talked myself out of it before we got around <laughs> to an actual E three prediction show. Um, but kind of bouncing off of all that, I wanted to talk to you because. Um, uh, they announced last week, obviously, um, that mm-hmm. they're opening up E3 to the public. And you, as somebody who's been at E3, uh, I kind of want to pick your brain. I, I saw some of your tweets and stuff about it um, uh, online, but what do you think that's going to do to the show? Well, here's the thing. And and I definitely, if you ever get a chance or anybody else gets a chance, check out the, the co-op podcast where I talked extensively about it because I really went in deep about it. But to kind of summarize most of that stuff, I think that opening up to the public is happening for a number of different reasons, okay? And I think part of it is a response to how the show is changing, whether it's becoming less relevant or that they're in dire need to keep the show afloat. That, that I think, is a big, is a real big thing. Uh, not only because opening up to 15,000 people, that's not a short number. That's a lot of people, yeah, especially that's... someone someone that's been to the L.A. Convention Center. Last year, they let in, I think it was like 500 people and stuff, and it was a madhouse. It was mm-hmm. absolutely insane. So That's, I was yeah I was running the numbers and and based on like estimates of the 2016 E3 numbers there were like 50,000 people there ish ar- yeah. around 50,000 people so a 15,000 increase is a 30% bump in in people and at the what like $150 for the first thousand tickets and then 250 for everything else that's like a few it's almost 3 million dollars that they're they're going to get from that revenue alone um, straight up obviously would not have been there before so that that's one thing about it and obviously it's money i think it's it's, it's a really big factor with it i also think that and like i said on the co-op this was probably a knee-jerk reaction if not a response to making sure that one of the big three doesn't leave the show because remember last year activision ea wargaming and disney did not go to the show activision and the ea have some of the biggest booths that are third party at e3 it's been like that for many years even my first two e3s that i went to i saw them there their booths were ridiculously huge last year when i went when they weren't there there was this big gaping area where they weren't around and then obviously like you know other places took a little bit of the space and kind of filled it up so it doesn't look so empty but you could tell like there was a difference in the air the other thing is also the reason why I say that is because if any of the big three, Microsoft, Sony, or Nintendo, left that show, not only would it become less relevant, it would cease to be E3. And then that's when you would really see a downward spiral for E3 going downhill. And I really believe that one of the big three at some point might be doing so. And I really believe it might be Sony because of PlayStation experience. Or Nintendo because Nintendo, their mindset with E3 and the way that they've gone to the show over the last couple of years has really changed 
big time, especially with the Nintendo Directs. They could just talk directly to their audiences. And Sony could just go to PlayStation Experience, and it's like E3 for Sony games. That's like how yeah. it is. You were you were there. You saw it. it. Like It was literally like how it's supposed to be. So if they never went to E3 again and they just went to PlayStation Experience or G- and GDC maybe all the uh, every single year they'd be totally good because all eyes would be on Sony during that time frame it's all the press all the media all the consumers that would just be focusing on PlayStation games and none of their competition is around so that's really why i think like that was why this move was made for E3 to go open to the public the other thing is too to touch on but what I, you mentioned but so so how would how does opening it to the public stop the big 3 from leaving because would be, people would be are there. Question. Because people are there. Because there now there's a more of influx of people that are going there seeing these games. It's not just the press and the media and industry personalities. It's literally a mass flux of people that are going there. So the companies could be like, oh, we could go and appeal to a lot of these people here that are the common consumer. Okay, it's not as opposed to where the the big reason to have a PlayStation experience, you know, or to just focus on a PlayStation experience is because everybody could go. It's not just media. It's also consumers could buy a ticket and they could go. Now, by doing this for E3, they're allowing that same type of experience, the same type of exposure for those companies that are going to show those games normally to just media. Now they could show it to all those people that are going there. Yeah, I guess. I, so what I'm what I'm more looking at there is that like last year, EA left and they did their own thing offsite. EA Play. And, and yeah, EA Play. And they're doing it again this year. Um, and and somebody was tweeting. Uh, I was tweeting with somebody basically when when the E3 news broke and stuff, and they were like, "Do you think this will bring EA back?" And I was like, "No, I think EA is going to be quite content making their own money doing their own event. Exactly. Um, as long as that as long as that is a money maker for them and not a money loss, um, they can make more money doing EA Play than they would lose doing like rejoining E3 or something. Because because and and so that's why I say like I don't think." Um, them opening, e- e- I don't think ESA opening it up to the public um, does anything for the big three or for anybody else there outside of themselves because it's not putting money in Sony's pocket, it's not putting money in Nintendo's pocket. So I could still just as easily see um, basically uh, Sony breaking off and doing summer PSX down exactly. the street or, or, or you know, a week later or something like that and having kind of um, like, I think doing that certainly would ruffle a lot more feathers industry wise um and that that's that's what i think is the bigger thing is that they don't want to um uh, like piss off the who they still need out of um the e3 kind of crowd um by making like it imagine you know you've got e3 and then a week later you've got a psx or something or you've got e3 here and then you've got playstation doing all their stuff across town like the media is going to be really pissed to have to cover. That's how things. EA Play was. That's exactly yeah. like how EA Play was. Exactly. As someone that went there, and it, I could tell you from experience because I had a horrible experience at EA Play, and I talked about it on the co-op. But to summarize it, basically was I had appointments and I had confirmations to go to the EA press conference, and they just straight up treated us like garbage. We didn't get into the press conference. I didn't get into any of my appointments. I couldn't cover any of the EA games. I had an appointment to go play Titanfall Two and Battlefield One there and literally everything just fell apart and i felt like i had did the work at the time to set up everything to like how you're supposed to do when you go to e3 and like everything out of my control just went wrong it was like murphy's law straight up and that the other thing about that since we mentioned ea play is that i also feel like this is also going to push some companies or some publishers to have more off-site events like yeah. for strictly just for media to get away from the craziness that that convention center is going to be. And it is going to be crazy. It's gonna, The problem is they're trying to turn E3 into Comic-Con. 
And yeah. the thing is, E3 was never an event like Comic-Con. It was always an industry media event. Now, while keeping the show afloat is not a bad thing, opening it up to the public is not a bad thing, in essence, even though there's going to be an influx of people there. The problem comes for me personally and for a lot of people that I know personally that are in the industry that work for or do this stuff for different websites and podcasts and stuff is when we can't get our job done. Because yeah. I have I have the unique experience that I talked about before where I went to an appointment and even though I had an appointment and they took me to the front of the line with the PR to go play a game and stuff, somebody wild out while waiting in line because they saw me doing that and they were like, why the hell you get to go in front and stuff? And there are people like that. Now, granted, that never got to like a really bad position or a really bad point. But now when you start injecting 15,000 people that are just regular people that are paying to be there and they're paying money now, mind you, to be there. When you're paying money, you're a little bit more irritable when you're not getting what you what you want and stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a much more higher chance of stuff like that happening and a much more higher chance of people being kind of like held back in their jobs and what they do overall, myself included. Even though the, the problem is also that I see with the reaction within, and I talked about it again on the on the co-op where I, a lot of people believe it's like a pompous privilege to go to E3. It is a privilege to an extent, but it's not something where it's all sunshines and rainbows. There's a lot of stuff that you're doing. You're on a time schedule when you go to E3. You're getting no sleep that whole week and stuff, and you need to get work done. You need to get work done, especially if you have everything set up beforehand. You're not trying to hear that like because the entire line is pissed off at you going to the front of the line that all of a sudden you can't go to your appointment. It don't work that way at E3 especially for people that do work at like an IGN or a Kotaku and stuff they have deadlines they have responsibilities to fulfill for a lot of other people out there and while it might be our problem and stuff it's still their jobs and stuff that are on the line on all this stuff that just makes it ridiculously harder yeah no it's like that's that's obviously the frustration I've heard kind of um in in recent years is even with the increase of uh or the the I guess the the lax um nature of like anybody with a blog can get in or something like that um uh that there are more f quote unquote fans getting in who are um are, are, are they're 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 there under the guise of work but they're really fans of um the industry people and don't take it as seriously or as professionally and so um it is kind of uh, a hindrance and so one of the one of the things i kind of tweeted about when when this news was breaking was the hope that some of that like couple million dollars at least goes towards improving logistics and, and stuff and, and maybe uh, allowing more uh, uh, like back uh, like back channels rooms or whatever um, to to have kind of still there will be like a public facing side of, of the event as well as a, a private facing. I mean like I remember uh, at PAX, PAX West last year um, I got invited to an offsite thing to, to see um, uh, South, the South Park game uh, to like, so I wouldn't have to deal with it on the show floor and, and with everybody around there. It was like, hey, like we will have, um, you know, we will have the the setup in this hotel room, set up an appointment and and come do it. And you know, exactly, you'll be, you'll be you know a couple blocks away from the show. Um, and I was like, uh, I I didn't take them up on it because I was like, I'm kind of here as as ign like in name only so uh like i'm gonna go ahead and leave that demo to like marty or Bri uh, uh or uh, or goldfarb they can they can take the south park demo i will contact my friends over at adult swim and take uh take their demos as as media um uh something that i know like they're not gonna go and cover um uh but yeah was, so i i can definitely see something like that happening at e3 i'm i'm definitely gonna 
do my best to to get out there. Um, I hope I'm, you go I'm, so I'm, that way you I'm, can go I'm, with I'm, me. Yeah, no, I'm 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 hoping. I've I've basically I went through like I was saying uh, earlier when we were talking about sacrifice. Um, I was talking um, or I I would was going through and mapping out all of my vacation time um, and how it's, how quickly it's going to accrue um, versus when I would be using it between now and E3. And um, and I'm basically, presumably if I go for the week of E3, um, I will come back that following Monday and have one day's vacation left at my, <laughs> my employment. <laughs> um, and so I'll be like, well... Just gonna have to wait a couple months for that to start replenishing, and hope that um, you know, hope that PAX West isn't suddenly a month later or something like that. Right. Um, uh, and even like, I mean, even that one day, it's basically like I, I hadn't factored it in, but now just thinking about, it, I'm like, oh crap, that one day is probably gonna go to beyond 500 in like two mm. weeks. Exactly. Um, so it'll just be so much easier if IGN just hires me and just brings me on full time and lets me avoid all And then of this going to these things will be your job. <laughs> exactly. That'll be that'll be great. Um, but yeah, that's that's I was I was definitely thinking that. So I I didn't bother trying to get one of the, like the consumer badges or anything. I'm gonna try and go through. Uh, I'll tell you like one thing though. Channels and stuff. I'll tell you one thing. That consumer badge is gonna <laughs> piss a lot of people off because they're gonna pay two hundred fifty dollars and they're gonna wait in lines all day and they're oh, not gonna play hardly yeah. any games. Like a lot of people don't understand that, and everybody keeps saying it, but it's not clicking. It's not getting through that. You know, normally because as a media show, this is why people don't pay the thousand dollars for the badge normally back then because you hardly don't see anything. You don't get to go to the appointments. You don't get to the behind closed doors presentations and stuff. You are just on the floor with this one because it's going to be so packed. You're going to be within the lines of those places like that, not being able to see everything. Yeah, no, that's and that's that's what I like because when I was tweeting out like, oh, I think this is going to make it more of like a PAX type show. Um uh, Greg Miller came and, and was like, no, it's going to be nothing like PAX. And I was like, I just mean like in terms of people waiting four hours in line to play a game. It's going to be worse. Like you it's going to be like, worse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, um, cause one of the, cause I was in LA just after E3 last year for, for the let's play live. And there at the, uh, we had a, a Buffalo wild wings meetup. Um, and one of the, like, while I was waiting for Joey Noel and other people to show up to the, to meet up, I'm talking to one of the assistant managers and he's talking about VR and how he had just been at E3 and we're talking and he was like, oh yeah, like my agency got, got me a ticket. So I went and saw like the last day and I played, you know, I played that Resident Evil game in VR and that was crazy. And, and, uh, and, and I was like, oh, like he, he got there because his acting agency had basically given him a pass. And I was like, well, you have no business being there, <laughs> um, but apparently people like you can get in. And so, and, and he, to, to his credit though, he was excited just to like, he knew, however he knew, he knew that he wasn't going to get to play much. So he basically like beelined it for where he wanted to go. Um, and so I imagine a lot of the people who are um, investing in going to that will at least be savvy enough to recognize that like, yes, it's not going to be nearly as or it's going to be way worse than they think it is but um like hopefully they'll at least get to play something and walk away and say okay that was cool i still like maybe i wouldn't do it again but i at least you know feel like i got my money's worth i don't think so i think people are going to be worse they're going to complain as soon as it's over you're going to see so many people complaining online i I just know it. i have a disturbance in the force is going to happen like it's funny well we will we will certainly see um Next up, uh, Scott Rabideau at Lucid Dream asks, uh, "How did you come up with your Twitter handle?" So you are at Venomous Fat Man One. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I've always just assumed it's a it's a Metal Gear Solid thing, isn't it? No, it's not. No, it, okay. it's actually a random name that I had chosen. It was a combination at the time because my original YouTube channel used to be Venomous Fat Man, and it was at the time I was trying to figure out an actual handle to use for the channel. I couldn't think of one, so I took a combination of my favorite Marvel character at the time, which is Venom, and then a combination of my favorite uh, e, uh, Street Fighter character at the time, which is E Honda that I used to use. So I, instead of calling it Venomous Honda and stuff, I called it Venomous Fat Man because he was a fat man. So I combined it together. I just rolled with it and okay. it stuck <laughs> nice and I'm, I'm fairly certain it wasn't addressed at me but snarky starky just came out because uh, I like alliteration and I'm a snarky son of a bitch and my last name's starky <laughs> um, it became like it was one of my nicknames at uh, I think when I, I think when I was working at the Fe- at Phoenix Theater um, that was one of the nicknames people gave me and I was like okay I'm gonna keep that and like when I finally signed up for a Twitter handle that was what I went with cool um uh, the Reverend Cam- Cameron Abbott at Unsexiest Comedy asks, favorite Pokemon and why? We we started to touch on this way mm. back when. Um, uh, favorite Pokemon and why? Uh, Squirtle? Is that, is that you? Squirtle. Well, Squirtle, 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 Squirtle Squad slash, uh, slash uh, Blastoise. Because like, like I was saying Suck earlier. Suck it, Wartortle. <laughs> yeah, right? Wartortle. He's, he's a turtle with wings on his head. Who cares? But the, the point is, is like Blastoise... Uh, to me, it was like a, it reminded me of Mobile Suit Gundam so much because he's got cannons on his back on a shell. Uh, to me, that's just cool. It just looks cool. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense, but it is, and it's just awesome. The Squirtle, uh, the reason why is because of the Squirtle Squad from the Pokemon anime. It's just a funny concept. It's just a funny thing. It's like a bunch of a bunch of Squirtles. It's like it, there's nothing important about them. There's nothing of significance. They just look funny together. <laughs> Yeah, I remember seeing you use that uh, that GIF a lot, the Squirtle yes. Squad GIF, <laughs> them in their sunglasses. Uh, I would say mine, um, like, uh, when this came through, I was like, initially I was like, Charizard, but that's a cheap and easy one, because Fire Dragon. Um, and so I was thinking, uh, mine's actually probably Alakazam. Because, really? um, like, I wrecked shop with my Alakazam um, uh, growing up in that first gen. And, like, I, I don't know, like, I, I, like, I'm a sucker for like the 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 magic naming um uh, and and he's got two spoons but uh but also like I just like the look of him and I mm-hmm. like I like that evolution um like it where it feels like one thing kind of growing up and and you get like Alakazam and he's got the Fu Manchu kind of mustachey thing um <laughs> uh uh as as the aged wisdom so um so yeah like uh, it's 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 much more so just because like um i like in that first gen um Mm -hmm. psychic type was my jam and uh uh like just felt like so um, like virtually unstoppably because in that in first gen it was way unbalanced and like big time nobody has a ghost type except like when you finally get to the 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 one of the 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 uh, tower the pokemon tower one of the elite four and stuff and yeah and the the tower but um yeah so i was like like okay, I can use Alakazam and kick ass for everything else, um, and then I'll switch to uh, to to like my Charizard for uh, uh, for Agatha or whatever it <laughs> for. Um, so yeah, it was it was just because like dominated with Psychic and like Psybeam and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and. Lastly, Alex O'Neill at Alfighter27 asks, when did Kingdom Hearts make you cry, and why is it so great? So, 
I never cried during a Kingdom Hearts game. I did feel stuff, obviously, through some of the games. There's a lot of emotional moments. I think the best emotional moment in the entire series is, comes from Kingdom Hearts 2 when you're in Hollow Bastion. And uh, if you remember, Goofy gets hit in the face uh, with uh, one of the one of the heartless, I think I forgot, mechanical enemies. And it looks like Goofy is out for the count and everybody just loses it. Even though it's a Disney game, you don't think he was going to die, but it was like the emotion there. The entire dynamic of what was happening there between the action and the narrative changes because all of a sudden you're not paired up with Donald or Mickey. You get paired up with the Final Fantasy characters and you're in a gauntlet against all these heartless. And that totally changed up the feel of the game. And it never reached that same point later in the game at all even towards the finale and stuff so for me that was the most emotional part in the entire series um why is it so great i think obviously it's the blending of uh kingdom hearts uh what is it uh final fantasy and disney uh the different franchises the original pitch for the first game if you remember those commercials i don't know if you remember seeing the commercials on tv when it had the otara Kaoru song and stuff it the mm-hmm. one of the phrases that he said in the commercial was that you'll never know who you run into next that was always the original pitch and the original concept behind Kingdom Hearts is that you're going to these different Disney worlds. Which one are you going to visit next? What's the next Disneyland world or Disney uh, Studios world that you're going to see? What characters are you going to interact with? Again, the charm of going to Tarzan, to Alice in Wonderland, Agrabah for the uh, Aladdin. Um, was it Pinocchio, which was like really unexpected in the first game? You know, uh, Neverland, you know, Big Ben and stuff like that. That stuff like that was always pretty damn cool like that uh, i think that a lot of it was lost towards the later games like after kingdom hearts 2 like kingdom hearts 2 continued that trend and you got stuff like pirates of the caribbean which nobody thought was going to make sense tron completely, tron over, yeah. completely out of left feels like what the hell um fantasia there was stuff like in some of the later games like you get influences from fantasia like uh cherubog and stuff like that uh, but again, once you get some more of the spinoff games like uh, Birth by Sleep, uh, Dream Drop Distance, uh, and also um, 358 over 2 and Recoded, that's when all those games start to lose that original pitch and stuff. But really the core of the series is like the mashing between the two franchises that does not supposed to make sense somehow works. Yeah. Um, for me, I don't. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm in the same boat, and I remember so much less of of one and two at this point, even because I because it has been so long since I've revisited them. You know, I'm, I'm, it is it has been what like 15 years or whatever since. Oh uh, yeah, 15 years, 15th anniversary first, since they were first coming out. So, um, like, uh, but but a moment that like when this, when when Alex's question came up uh, that I thought about was in Kingdom Hearts one. Um, pretty much everything in like hollow bastion where i'm like mm. oh this is like the beauty and the beast world and then it's like and then uh sora gets uh hit and turned into a heartless and i'm like whoa this was this changed and, and so <laughs> like um like coming out of all of that and when he kind of is restored um like i don't i can't i can't re i can't visualize it in my head but like i remember that being a a crazy wild moment because yeah i i was sold and i got into it because disney and final fantasy cool um i'm having to listen to very weird like (laughs) actors play these characters now but um uh i'm i'm invested and um i'm getting to like play through all of the you know the disney movies i loved alongside you know fighting cloud and sephiroth in in hercules's coliseum and stuff um uh, so that's like that's why I love the series, and it is like it was a mashup of things that I loved. But yeah, in terms of like emotional resonance, having really only played one and two, 
um, the the Hollow Bastion stuff in the first game is what um, what stands out to me. Um, you know, uh, you know something. There's one game, one moment in one of the games that I think I could point to that is an emotional tearjerker, even though it didn't really make me cry. In Kingdom Hearts three five eight over two, that whole game takes place between the time of Kingdom Hearts one and two. It tells the story of Roxas. If you remember Roxas from Kingdom Hearts 2, that's yeah. the entire beginning of that game. Uh, 358 over 2 is the time that that gap in time that they refer to, but you never really see in the second game. You actually play through all that. Now, granted, there's a lot of nuanced stuff that that game could be kind of useless to some extent. But the way that game ends, especially if you've played Kingdom Hearts 2, knowing how that's going to end and stuff, makes that a very sad moment. And it makes it very somber. It's like, wow, you really feel like crap at the point when you get to that point like that. And it's like that, that to me, that's a very emotional point where you could see the optimism in that character's eyes, but you know what's going to happen now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you know the tragedy that, that will befall them. It's like Crisis Core. Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII. That, yeah. At the very end of that, nobody was prepared for the ending of that, even though you knew what was coming. Yeah, you like... You saw that scene in the in the first game if you like unlocked that little hidden cutscene or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and and yeah, it's still like you playing it out. Um, that's uh, like I hadn't I hadn't thought about that scene in a while, but yeah, it's like that was a rough. It's like you beg thing. for it not to happen, but you know it's going to happen. It's just you're trying for it not to, yeah. but it the, happens anyway. Yeah, the Crisis Core, the best game made out of five minutes of uh, of another <laughs> game ever um like the best five minute stretched out scene um yeah Definitely. Uh, so thank you to everybody who uh who threw in some questions there um thank you uh jj for coming on and joining me this week um, thank you for it. fighting fighting through the technical woes uh <laughs> with me there you weren't that bad <laughs> no it was just that one like super horrible crash um <laughs> um so uh before we go uh ra- uh, uh before we wrap up um Give people the final, uh, this is where they can find you, plugs, plug whatever you want to plug. Sure. Uh, again, you guys can find me on Twitter at VenomousFatMan1. That's where I'm on Twitter. That's the easiest way to get in contact with me. Uh, I'm also on YouTube, Gamers with Gains. You can type in either Gamers with Gains or Gamers with Gains channel on the search bar, and you'll see my videos pop up. Again, there's a ton of vlogs and a ton of, ton of gameplay videos and even other kind of like, you know, podcast discussions that I have on there. I'm also on Twitch. Just search for Gamers with Gains. You'll find my Twitch channel. It's very easy to find. I'm usually streaming there every single day. Lately, I've been falling off the horse a little bit because of work stuff. Again, I've been working on the IGN guides and stuff, so that's been taking up a lot of my time. But tomorrow, I'm probably going to get back onto streaming. Probably stream some For Honor multiplayer or something like that. Uh, as well, yeah, I think that's pretty much about it. And again, you can find me on thecoalition.com. That's where I write all my reviews, all my editorials, uh, the co-op podcast, all that stuff. And again, my IGN is just me, Mega Man. That's where I post all my stuff again with the guides. Excellent. I will have links to most, if not all, of that stuff in the description. Um, uh, but yeah, thank you again for, for coming on. Uh, I can't wait to see you in a few weeks at uh, yeah. in Boston. We're getting we, beers, pizza, ice cream. At, We're doing everything. Absolutely ton of fun um it, it will be good to actually eat at a conference this time i should right or at, at, a, at, a, at a show this time i should definitely do that again that was yes that's that's i always i always forget that i always get to like five o'clock i'm like i haven't touched food today that was a bad call um <laughs> oops um yeah i'm looking forward to, to hanging out uh, it'll be good to see you again and uh and yeah hopefully we'll we'll be hitting up e3 together too definitely um 
Uh, uh, you can follow me at Snarky Starkey on Twitter. You can follow the show at Trove Talk. You can find out whatever I've been rambling about on uh, on video games on TrevorTrove.com. Um, uh, by the time this goes live, uh, uh, I w- the the last two weeks will have been kind of um, continuous reviews of a lot of the stuff I've been playing so far this year. Um, uh, lots of smaller games, but also a couple just like revisited classics. Um, working on a uh, a Dishonored one right now, um, the original Dishonored, because I had so much time fun with the the sequel that I went back and and replayed uh, the original Dishonored. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's all the the plugs I've got. We'll be it. Uh, we'll both be it at PAX East in a few weeks. Definitely. Um, so if you're there, come see us. Come say hi. Uh, should be a ton of fun. I'm sure there will be kind of funny events i'm sure there'll be an ign party um uh that will be uh, all of those will be open to the public no doubt uh so yeah come come hang out and it'll be a good old fun time in in boston there woot, woot. Mm. uh so until next time uh from everybody here at the trove treasure your friends <laughs> <laughs>